Bran In the yard below, Rickon ran with the wolves. Bran watched him from his window seat. Wherever the boy went, Grey Wind was there first, loping ahead to cut him off, until Rickon saw him, screamed in delight, and went pelting off in another direction. Shaggy Dog ran at his heels, spinning and snapping if the other wolves came too close. His fur had darkened until he was all black, and his eyes were green fire. Bran Summer came last. He was silver and smoke, with eyes of yellow gold that saw all there was to see. Smaller than Grey Wind, and more wary. Bran thought he was the smartest of the litter. He could hear his brother's breathless laughter as Rickon dashed across the hard-packed earth on little baby legs. His eyes stung. He wanted to be down there, laughing and running. Angry at the thought, Bran knuckled away the tears before they could fall. His eighth name day had come and gone. He was almost a man grown now, too old to cry. It was just a lie, he said bitterly, remembering the crow from his dream. I can't fly. I can't even run. Crows are all liars, old Nan agreed, from the chair where she sat doing her needlework. I know a story about a crow. I don't want any more stories, Bran snapped his voice petulant. He had liked old Nan and her stories once, before, but it was different now. They left her with him all day now to watch over him and clean him and keep him from being lonely, but she just made it worse. I hate your stupid stories. The old woman smiled at him toothlessly. My stories? No, my little lord, not mine. These stories are before me. And after me, before you too. She was a very ugly old woman, Bran thought spitefully, shrunken and wrinkled, almost blind, too weak to climb stairs, with only a few wisps of white hair left to cover a mottled pink scalp. No one really knew how old she was, but his father said she had been called Old Nan even when he was a boy. She was the oldest person in Winterfell for certain. Maybe the oldest person in the Seven Kingdoms. Nan had come to the castle as a wet nurse for a Brandon Stark whose mother had died birthing him. He had been an older brother of Lord Rickard, Bran's grandfather, or perhaps a younger brother, or a brother of Lord Rickard's father. Sometimes old Nan told it one way and sometimes another. In all the stories, the little boy died at three of a summer chill. But old Nan stayed on at Winterfell with her own children. She had lost both her sons to the war when King Robert won the throne, and her grandson was killed on the walls of Pike during Balon Greyjoy's rebellion. Her daughters had long ago married and moved away and died. All that was left of her own blood was Hodor, the simple-minded giant who worked in the stables, but old Nan just lived on and on, doing her needlework and retelling her stories. I don't care whose stories they are, Bran told her. I hate them. He didn't want stories, and he didn't want old Nan. He wanted his mother and father. He wanted to go running with Summer loping beside him. 
He wanted to climb the broken tower and feed corn to the crows. He wanted to ride his pony again with his brothers. He wanted it to be the way it had been before. I know a story about a boy who hated stories, old Nan said with her stupid little smile, her needles moving all the while, click, 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 until Bran was ready to scream at her. It would never be the way it had been, he knew. The crow had tricked him into flying, but when he woke up, he was broken, and the world was changed. They had all left him, his father and his mother and his sisters, and even his bastard brother John. His father had promised he would ride a real horse to King's Landing, but they'd gone without him. Maester Lewin had sent a bird after Lord Eddard, with a message, and another to mother, and a third to John on the wall, but there had been no answers. Oft-times the birds are lost, child, the maester had told him. There's many a mile and many a hawk between here and King's Landing. The message may not have reached them. Yet to Bran it felt as if they had all died while he had slept, or perhaps Bran had died, and they had forgotten him. Jory and Sir Roddick and Vayan Poole had gone too, and Holland and Harwin and Fat Tom and a quarter of the guard. Only Rob and Baby Rickon were still here, and Rob was changed. He was Rob the Lord now, or trying to be. He wore a real sword and never smiled. His days were spent drilling the guard and practising his sword-play, making the yard ring with the sound of steel as Bran watched forlornly from his window. At night he closeted himself with Maester Lewin, talking or going over account books. Sometimes he would ride out with Hallis Mollen and be gone for days at a time, visiting distant holdfasts. Whenever he was away more than a day, Rickon would cry and ask Bran if Rob was ever coming back. Even when he was home at Winterfell, Rob the Lord seemed to have more time for Hallis Mollen and Theon Greyjoy than he ever did for his brothers. "'I could tell you a story about Brandon the Builder,' old Ned said. "'That was always your favourite. Thousands and thousands of years ago, Brandon the Builder had raised Winterfell, and some said the wall. Bran knew the story, but it had never been his favourite. Maybe one of the other Brandons had liked that story. Sometimes Nan would talk to him as if he were her Brandon.' the baby she had nursed all those years ago, and sometimes she confused him with his uncle Brandon, who was killed by the Mad King before Bran was even born. She had lived so long, Mother had told him once, that all the Brandon Starks had become one person in her head. That's not my favourite, he said. My favourites were the scary ones. He heard some sort of commotion outside and turned back to the window. Rickon was running across the yard toward the gatehouse, the wolves following him, but the tower faced the wrong way for Bran to see what was happening. He smashed a fist on his thigh in frustration and felt nothing. "'Oh, my sweet summer child,' old Nan said quietly, "'what do you know of fear?' "'Fear is for the winter, my little lord, "'when the snows fall a hundred feet deep.' and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fear is for the long night, 
when the sun hides its face for years at a time, and little children are born and live and die all in darkness, while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry, and the white walkers move through the woods. You mean the others? Bran said querulously. The others? Old Nan agreed. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation, and kings shivered and died in their castles, even as the swine herds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve, and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. Her voice and her needles fell silent, and she glanced up at Bran with pale, filmy eyes and asked, So, child, this is the sort of story you like? Well, Bran said reluctantly, yes, only... Old Nan nodded. In that darkness, the others came for the first time, she said as her needles went click, click, click. They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over whole fasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babies found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Her voice had dropped very low, almost to a whisper, and Bran found himself leaning forward to listen. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Rhoyne, and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there, in the vastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it, and the others smelled 
the hot blood in him, and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. The door opened with a bang, and Bran's heart leapt up to his mouth in sudden fear. But it was only Maester Lewin, with Hodor, looming on the stairway behind him. Hodor, the stable boy announced, as was his custom, smiling hugely at them all. Maester Lewin was not smiling. We have visitors, he announced, and your presence is required, Bran. I'm listening to a story now, Bran complained. Stories wait, my little lord, and when you come back to them, why, here they are. Old Nan said, Visitors are not so patient, and oft times they bring stories of their own. Who is it? Bran asked Maester Lewin. Tyrion Lannister and some men of the Night's Watch with a word from your brother John. Rob is meeting with them now. Hoda, will you help Bran down the hall? Hodor. Hoda agreed happily. He ducked to get his great shaggy head under the door. Hodor was nearly seven feet tall. It was hard to believe that he was the same blood as old Nan. Bran wondered if he would shrivel up as small as his great-grandmother when he was old. It did not seem likely, even if Hodor lived to be a thousand. Hodor lifted Bran as easily as if he were a bale of hay and cradled him against his massive chest. He always smelled faintly of horses, and it was not a bad smell. His arms were thick with muscle and matted with brown hair. "'Hodor!' he said again. Theon Greyjoy had once commented that Hodor did not know much, but no one could doubt that he knew his name. Old Nan had cackled like a hen when Bran told her that, and confessed that Hodor's real name was Walder. No one knew where Hodor had come from, she said, but when he started saying it, they started calling him by it. It was the only word he had. They left old Nan in the tower room with her needles and her memories. Hodor hummed tunelessly as he carried Bran down the steps and through the gallery, with Maester Lewin following behind, hurrying to keep up with the stable boy's long strides. Rob was seated in father's high seat, wearing ringmail and boiled leather, and the stern face of Rob the Lord. Theon Greyjoy and Hallas Mullen stood behind him. A dozen guardsmen lined the grey stone walls beneath tall, narrow windows. In the centre of the room the dwarf stood with his servants, and four strangers in the black of the night's watch. Bran could sense the anger in the hall at the moment Hodar carried him through the doors. "'Any man of the night's watch is welcome here at Winterfell for as long as he wishes to stay,' Rob was saying with the voice of Rob the Lord." His sword was across his knees, the steel bare for all the world to see. Even Bran knew what it meant to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword. "'Any man of the night's watch,' the dwarf repeated, "'but not me. Do I take your meaning, boy?' Rob stood and pointed at the little man with his sword. "'I am the Lord 
while my mother and father are away, Lannister. I am not your boy. If you are a lord, you might learn a lord's courtesy, the little man replied, ignoring the sword point in his face. Your bastard brother has all your father's graces, it would seem. John, Bran gasped out from Hoda's arms. The dwarf turned to look at him. So it is true, the boy lives. I could scarce believe it. You Starks are hard to kill. You Lannister had best remember that, Rob said, lowering his sword. Hodor, bring my brother here. Hodor, Hodor said, as he trotted forward, smiling, and set Bran in the high seat of the Starks, where the lords of Winterfell had sat since the days when they called themselves the kings of the north. The seat was cold stone, polished smooth by countless bottoms. The carved heads of direwolves snarled on the ends of its massive arms. Bran clasped them as he sat, his useless legs dangling. The great seat made him feel half a baby. Rob put a hand on his shoulder. You said you had business with Bran. Well, here he is, Lannister. Bran was uncomfortably aware of Tyrion Lannister's eyes. One was black and one was green, and both were looking at him, studying him, weighing him. I am told you are quite a climber, Bran, the little man said at last. Tell me, how is it you happened to fall that day? I never, Bran insisted. He never fell. Never, never, never. The child does not remember anything of the fall or the climb that came before it, said Maester Lewin gently. Curious, said Tyrion Lannister. My brother is not here to answer questions, Lannister, Rob said curtly. Do your business, be on your way. I have a gift for you, the dwarf said to Bran. Do you like to ride, boy? Maester Lewin came forward. My lord, the child has lost the use of his legs. He cannot sit a horse. Nonsense, said Lannister. With the right horse and the right saddle, even a cripple can ride. The word was a knife through Bran's heart. He felt tears come unbidden to his eyes. I'm not a cripple. Then I am not a dwarf, the dwarf said with a twist of his mouth. My father will rejoice to hear it. Greyjoy laughed. What sort of horse and saddle are you suggesting? Maester Lewin said. A smart horse, Lannister replied. The boy cannot use his legs to command the animal, so you must shape the horse to the rider, teach it to respond to the reins, to the voice. I would begin with an unbroken yearling, with no old training to be unlearned. He drew a roll paper from his belt. Give this to your saddler. He will provide the rest. Maester Lewin took the paper from the dwarf's hand, curious as a small grey squirrel. He unrolled it, studied it. I see. You, you draw nicely, my lord. Yes, this ought to work. I should have thought of this myself. It came easier to me, Maester. It's not terribly unlike my own saddles. Will I truly be able to ride? Bran asked. He wanted to believe them, but he was afraid. Perhaps it was just another lie. The crow had promised him that he could fly. You will, 
the dwarf told him, and I swear to you, boy, on horseback, you will be as tall as any of them. Rob Stark seemed puzzled. Is this some trap, Lannister? What's brand to you? Why should you want to help him? Your brother John has asked it of me, and I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples and bastards and broken things. Tyrion Lannister placed a hand over his heart and grinned. The door to the yard flew open. Sunlight came streaming across the hall as Rickon burst in, breathless. The direwolves were with him. The boy stopped by the door, wide-eyed, but the wolves came on. Their eyes found Lannister, or perhaps they caught his scent. Summer began to growl first. Grey wind picked it up. They padded towards the little man, one from the right and one from the left. The wolves do not like your smell, Lannister, Theon Greyjoy commented. Perhaps it's time I took my leave, Tyrion said. He took a step backward, and Shaggy Dog came out of the shadows behind him, snarling. Lannister recoiled, and Summer lunged at him from the other side. He reeled away, unsteady on his feet, and Greywind snapped at his arm, teeth ripping at his sleeve and tearing loose a scrap of cloth. No! Bran shouted from the high seat as Lannister's men reached for their steel. Summer, here! Summer, to me! The dire wolf heard the voice, glanced at Bran, and again at Lannister. He crept backwards, away from the little man, and settled down below Bran's dangling feet. Robert had been holding his breath. He let it out with a sigh and called, Greywind! His dire wolf moved to him, swift and silent. Now there was only Shaggy Dog, rumbling at the small man, his eyes burning like green fire. Rickon called him, Bran shouted to his baby brother, and Rickon remembered himself and screamed, Home, Shaggy Dog, home now! The Black Wolf gave Lannister one final snarl and bounded off to Rickon, who hugged him tightly around the neck. Tyrion Lannister undid his scarf, mopped his brow, and said in a flat tone, "'How interesting!' "'Are you well, my lord?' asked one of the men, his sword in hand. He glanced nervously at the direwolves as he spoke. Oh, "'My sleeve is torn, and my breeches are unaccountably damp. But uh, nothing was harmed, save my dignity.' Even Rob looked shaken. "'The wolves, I, I don't know why they did that. No doubt they mistook me for dinner.' Lannister bowed stiffly to Bran. "'I thank you for calling them off, young sir. I promise you they would have found me quite indigestible, and now I will be leaving, truly.' "'A, a moment, my lord,' Maester Lewin said. He moved to Rob, and they huddled close together, whispering. Bran tried to hear what they were saying, but their voices were too low. Rob Stark finally sheathed his sword. "'I, um... I may have been hasty with you, he said. You've done Bran a kindness, and, well, Rob composed himself with an effort. The hospitality of Winterfell is yours, if you wish it, Lannister. Spare me your false courtesies, boy. You do not love me, and you do not want me here. I saw an inn outside your walls, in the winter town. I'll find a bed there, and both of us will sleep easier. For a few cuppers, I may even find a comely wench to warm the sheets for me. 
He spoke to one of the Black Brothers, an old man with a twisted back and a tangled beard. Yarin we go south at daybreak. You will find me on the road, no doubt. With that he made his exit, struggling across the hall on his short legs, past Ricken, and out of the door. His men followed. The four of the night's watch remained. Rob turned to them uncertainly. I've had rooms prepared, and you'll find no lack of hot water to wash off the dust of the road. I hope you will um, honour us at table tonight. He spoke the words so awkwardly that even Bran took note. It was a speech he had learned, not words from the heart, but the Black Brothers thanked him all the same. Summer followed them up the tower steps as Hodor carried Bran back to his bed. Old Nan was asleep in her chair. Hodor said, Hodor, gathered up his great-grandmother and carried her off, snoring softly while Bran lay thinking. Rob had promised that he could feast for the night's watch in the great hall. Summer, he called. The wolf bounded up to the bed. Bran hugged him so hard he could feel the hot breath on his cheek. I can ride now, he whispered to his friend. We can go hunting in the woods soon. Wait and see. After a time, he slept. In his dream, he was climbing again, pulling himself up an ancient windowless tower, his fingers forcing themselves between blackened stones, his feet scrabbling for purchase. Higher and higher he climbed, through the clouds and into the night sky, and still the tower rose before him. When he paused to look down, his head swam dizzily, and he felt his fingers slipping. Bran cried out and clung for dear life. The earth was a thousand miles beneath him, and he could not fly. He could not fly. He waited until his heart had stopped pounding, until he could breathe, and he began to climb again. There was no way to go but up. Far above him, outlined against a vast pale moon, he thought he could see the shapes of gargoyles. His arms were sore and aching, but he dare not rest. He forced himself to climb faster. The gargoyles watched him ascend. Their eyes glowed red as hot coals in a brazier. Perhaps once they had been lions, but now they were twisted and grotesque. Bran could hear them whispering to each other in soft stone voices terrible to hear. He must not listen, he told himself. He must not hear. So long as he did not hear them, he was safe. But when the gargoyles pulled themselves loose from the stone and padded down the side of the tower to where Bran clung, he knew he was not safe after all. I didn't hear, he wept as they came closer and closer. I didn't, I didn't. He woke, gasping, lost in darkness, and saw a vast shadow looming over him. I didn't hear, he whispered, trembling in fear. And then the shadow said, Hodor, and lit the candle by the bedside, and Bran sighed with relief. Hodor washed the sweat from him with a warm, damp cloth, and dressed him with deft and gentle hands. When it was time, he carried him down to the great hall, where a long trestle table had been set up near the fire. 
The Lord's seat at the head of the table had been left empty, but Rob sat to the right of it, with Bran across from him. They ate suckling pig that night, and pigeon pie, and turnip soaked in butter, and afterwards the cook had promised honeycombs. Summer snatched table scraps from Bran's hand, while Grey Wind and Shaggy Dog fought over a bone in the corner. Winterfell's dogs would not come near the hall now. Bran had found that strange at first, but he was growing used to it. Yorin was senior among the Black Brothers, so the steward had seated him between Rob and Maester Lewin. The old man had a sour smell, as if he had not washed in a long time. He ripped at the meat with his teeth, cracked the ribs to suck out the marrow from the bones, and shrugged at the mention of Jon Snow. "'Sir Alistair's bane,' he grunted, and two of his companions shared a laugh that Bran did not understand. But when Rob asked for news of their Uncle Benjamin, the Black Brothers grew ominously quiet. "'What is it?' Bran asked. Yorin wiped his fingers on his vest. "'There's hard news, my lords, and a cruel way to pay you for your meat and mead. But the man as asked the question must bear the answer. Stark's gone.' One of the other men said, "'The old bearer sent him out to look for Wayner Royce, and he's late returning, my lord.' "'Too long,' Yorin said. "'Most like he's dead.' "'My uncle is not dead,' Rob Stark said loudly, anger in his tones. He rose from the bench and laid his hand on the hilt of his sword. "'Do you hear me? My uncle is not dead!' His voice rang against the stone walls, and Bran was suddenly afraid. Old, sour-smelling Yorin looked up at Rob, unimpressed. "'Whatever you say, my lord,' he said. He sucked at a piece of meat between his teeth. The youngest of the Black Brothers shifted uncomfortably in his seat. "'There's not a man on the wall knows the haunted forest better than Benjamin Stark. He'll find his way back.' "'Well,' said Yorin, "'maybe he will, and maybe he won't.' Good men have gone into those woods before and never come out. All Bran could think of was old Nan's stories of the others, and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders as big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment, until he remembered how the story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. Theon Greyjoy sniggered, and Maester Lewin said, Bran, the children of the forest have been dead and gone for thousands of years. All that is left of them are the faces in the trees. Down here might be that's true, Maester, Yorin said, but up past the wall, who's to say? Up there, a man can't always tell what's alive and what's dead. That night, after the plates had been cleared, Rob carried Bran up to bed himself. Grey Wind led the way, and Summer came close behind. His brother was strong for his age, and Bran was as light as a bundle of rags. But the stairs were steep and dark, and Rob was breathing hard by the time they reached the top. He put Bran into bed, covered him with blankets, and blew out the candle. For a time, Rob sat beside him in the dark, Bran wanted to talk to him, but he did not know what to say. We'll find a horse for you. I promise.
Rob whispered at last. Are they ever coming back? Bran asked him. Yes, Rob said, with such hope in his voice that Bran knew he was hearing his brother and not just Rob the Lord. Mother will be home soon. Maybe we can ride out to meet her when she comes. Wouldn't that surprise her to see you a horse? Even in the dark room, Bran could feel his brother smile. And afterwards, we'll ride north to see the wall. We won't even tell John we're coming. We'll just be there one day. You and me. It will be an adventure. An adventure, Bran repeated wistfully. He heard his brother sob. The room was so dark, he could not see the tears on Rob's face. So he reached out and found his hand. Their fingers twined together. Eddard Lord Aaron's death was a great sadness for all of us, my lord. Grandmaster Pycelle said, I, I would be more than happy to tell you what I can of the manner of his passing to be seated. Would you care for refreshments? Some dates, perhaps? I have some very fine persimmons as well. Wine no longer agrees with my digestion, I fear. But I can offer you a cup of iced milk, sweetened with honey. I find it most refreshing in this heat. There was no denying the heat. Ned could feel the silk tunic clinging to his chest. Thick, moist air covered the city like a damp woolen blanket, and the riverside had grown unruly as the poor fled their hot, airless warrens to jostle for sleeping places near the water, where the only breath of wind was to be found. "'That would be most kind,' Ned said, seating himself. Pycelle lifted a tiny silver bell with thumb and forefinger and tinkled it gently. A slender young serving girl hurried into the solar. "'Iced milk for the king's hand and myself, if you will be so kind, child. Well sweetened.' As the girl went to fetch their drinks, the Grand Maester knotted his fingers together and rested his hands on his stomach. "'The small folk say uh, that the last year of summer is always the hottest. It is not so, yet oftentimes it feels that way, does it not?' On days like this, I envy you, northerners, your, your summer snows. The heavy jewel chain around the old man's neck clinked softly as he shifted in his seat. To be sure, Kingmaker's summer was hotter than this one, and near as long. There were fools, even in the citadel, who took that to mean that the great summer had come at last. The summer that never ends. But... In the seventh year it broke suddenly, and we had a short autumn and a terrible long winter. Still, the heat was fierce while it lasted. Old towns steamed and sweltered by day, and came alive only by night. We would walk in the gardens by the river and argue about the gods. I remember the smells of those nights, my lord, perfume and sweat, melons ripe to bursting, peaches and pomegranates, nightshade and moonbloom. I was a young man then, still forging my chain. The heat did not exhaust me as it does now. 
Paisal's eyes were so heavily lidded he looked half asleep. "'My pardons, Lord Edard, you did not come to hear foolish meanderings of a summer forgotten before your father was born. Uh, forgive an old man his wanderings, if you would. Mines are like swords, I do fear. The old ones go to rust. <laughs> and, and here is our milk.' The serving girl placed the tray between them, and Pycelle gave her a smile. "'Sweet child!' he lifted a cup. "'Tasted, nodded. "'Thank you. "'You may go.' "'When the girl had taken her leave, "'Pycelle peered at Ned through pale, roomy eyes. "'Now, uh, where were we? "'Oh, yes, you asked about Lord Aaron.' "'I did. "'Ned sipped politely at the iced milk. "'It was pleasantly cold, but oversweet to his taste.' If truth be told, the hand had not quite seemed himself for some time, Pycelle said. We had sat together on council many a year, he and I, and the signs were there to read, but I put them down to the great burdens he had borne so faithfully for so long. Those broad shoulders were weighed down by all the cares of the realm, and more besides. His son was ever sickly, and his lady wife so anxious that she would scarcely let the boy out of her sight. It was enough to weary even a strong man, and the Lord John was not young. A small wonder if he seemed melancholy and tired, or so I thought at the time, yet now I am less certain. He gave a ponderous shake of his head. What can you tell me of his final illness? The Grand Maester spread his hands in a gesture of helpless sorrow. He came to me one day, asking after a certain book, as hale and healthy as ever, though it did seem to me that something was troubling him deeply. The next morning he was twisted over in pain, too sick to rise from bed. Maester Coleman thought it was a chill on the stomach. The weather had been very hot— and the hand often iced his wine, which can upset the digestion. When Lord John continued to weaken, I went to him myself, but the guards did not grant me the power to save him. I have heard that you sent Maester Coleman away. The Grand Maester's nod was as slow and deliberate as a glacier. I did, and I fear... The Lady Lysa will never forgive me that. Maybe I was wrong, but at the time I thought it best. Maester Coleman is like her son to me, and I yield to none in my esteem for his abilities, but he is young, and the young oft-times do not comprehend the frailty of an older body. He was purging Lord Aaron with wasting potions and pepper juice, and I feared he might kill him. Did Lord Aaron say anything to you during his final hours? Pycelle wrinkled his brow. In the last stages of his fever, the hand called out the name Robert several times, but whether he was asking for his son or for the king, I could not say. Lady Lysa would not permit the boy to enter the sick room for fear that he too might be taken ill. The king did come, and he sat beside the bed for hours, 
talking and joking of times long past in hopes of raising Lord John's spirits. His love was fierce to see. Was there nothing else, no final words? When I saw that all hope had fled, I gave the hand the milk of the poppy, so he should not suffer. Just before he closed his eyes for the last time, he whispered something to the king and his lady wife, a blessing for his son. The seed is strong, he said. At the end, his speech was too slurred to comprehend. Death did not come until the next morning, but Lord John was at peace after that. He never spoke again. Ned took another swallow of milk, trying not to gag on the sweetness of it. Did it seem to you that there was anything unnatural about Lord Aaron's death? Unnatural? The aged maester's voice was thin as a whisper. No, I could not say so. Sad, for a certainty, yet in its own way, death is the most natural thing of all, Lord Eddard. John Aaron rests easy now, his burdens lifted at last. This illness that took him, said Ned, have you ever seen its like before in other men? Uh, nearly forty years I have been Grand Maester of the Seven Kingdoms, Pycelle replied, under our good King Robert and Aerys Targaryen before him, and his father Jaehaerys the Second before him, and even for a few short months under Jaehaerys' father, Aegon the Fortunate, the fifth of his name. I have seen more of illness than I care to remember, my lord. I will tell you this. Every case is different, and every case is alike. Lord John's death was no stranger than any other. His wife thought otherwise. The Grand Maester nodded. I recall now the widow is sister to your own noble wife. If an old man may be forgiven his blunt speech, let me say that grief can derange even the strongest and most disciplined of minds, and the Lady Lysa was never that. Since her last stillbirth, she has seen enemies in every shadow, and the death of her lord husband left her shattered and lost. So you are quite certain that John Aaron died of a sudden illness? I am, Pycelle replied gravely. If not illness, my good lord, what else could it be? Poison? Ned suggested quietly. Pycelle's sleepy eyes flicked open. The aged maester shifted uncomfortably in his seat. A disturbing thought. We are not the free cities where such things are common. Grand Maester Aethelmuir wrote that all men carry murder in their hearts, yet even so, the poisoner is beneath contempt. He fell silent for a moment, his eyes lost in thought. What you suggest is possible, my lord, yet I do not think it likely. Every hedge-maester knows the common poisons, and Lord Aaron displayed none of the signs, and the hand was loved by all. 
what sort of monster in man's flesh would dare to murder such a noble lord? I've heard it said that poison is a woman's weapon. Pycelle stroked his beard thoughtfully. It is said, women, cravens, and eunuchs. He cleared his throat and spat a thick glob of phlegm onto the rushes. Above them, a raven cawed loudly in the rookery. The Lord Varus was born a slave in lice. Did you know? Put not your trust in spiders, my lord. That was scarcely anything Ned needed to be told. There was something about Varus that made his flesh crawl. I will remember that, maester, and I thank you for your help. I've taken enough of your time. He stood. Grandmaster Pycelle pushed himself up from his chair slowly and escorted Ned to the door. I hope I have helped in some small way to put your mind at ease. If there is any other service I might perform, you need only ask. One thing, Ned told him. I should be very curious to examine the book that you lent John the day before he fell ill. I fear you will find it of little interest, Pycelle said. It was a ponderous tome by Grand Maester Malian on the lineages of the great houses. Still, I should like to see it. The old man opened the door. As you wish. I have it here somewhere. When I find it, I shall have it sent to your chambers straight away. You have been most courteous, Ned told him. Then almost as an afterthought he said, One last question, if you would be so kind. You mentioned that the king was at Lord Aaron's bedside when he died. I wonder, was the queen with him? Why, no, Pycelle said. She and the children were making the journey to Casterly Rock in company with their father. Lord Tywin had brought a retinue to the city for the tourney on Prince Joffrey's name-day, no doubt hoping to see his son, Jamie, win the champion's crown. In that he was sadly disappointed. It failed to me to send the Queen word of Lord Aaron's sudden death. Never have I sent off a bird with a heavier heart. Dark wings, dark words, Ned muttered. It was a proverb old Nan had taught him as a boy. So the fishwife say, Grand Maester Pycelle agreed, but we know it is not always so. When Maester Lewin's bird brought the word about your bran, the message lifted every true heart in the castle, did it not? As you say, Maester. The guards are merciful. Pycelle bowed his head. Come to me as often as you like, Lord Eddard. I am here to serve. Yes. Ned thought, as the door swung shut. But whom? On the way back to his chambers, he came upon his daughter Arya on the winding steps of the Tower of the Hand, windmilling her arms as she struggled to balance on one leg. The rough stone had scuffed her bare feet. Ned stopped and looked at her. Arya? What are you doing? Sirio says... A water-dancer can stand on one toe for hours. Her hands flailed at the air to steady herself. Ned had to smile. 
Which toe? he teased. Any toe, Arya said, exasperated with the question. She hopped from her right leg to her left, swaying dangerously before she regained her balance. Must you do your standing here? he asked. It's a long, hard fall down these steps. Syria says a water dancer never falls. She lowered her leg to stand on two feet. Father, will Bran come and live with us now? Not for a long time, sweet one, he told her. He needs to win his strength back. Arya bit her lip. What will Bran do when he's of age? Ned knelt beside her. He has years to find that answer, Arya. For now it is enough to know that he will live. The night the bird had come from Winterfell, Eddard Stark had taken the girls to the castle Godswood, an acre of elm and alder and black cottonwood overlooking the river. The heart tree there was a great oak, its ancient limbs overgrown with smokeberry vines. They knelt before it to offer their thanksgiving, as if it had been a weirwood. Sansa drifted to sleep as the moon rose. Arya, several hours later, curling up in the grass under Ned's cloak. All through the dark hours he kept his vigil alone. When dawn broke over the city, the dark red blooms of dragon's breath surrounded the girls where they lay. I dreamt of Bran, Sansa had whispered to him. I saw him smiling. He was going to be a knight, Arya was saying now, a knight of the king's guard. Can he still be a knight? No, Ned said. He saw no use in lying to her. Yet some day he may be the lord of a great holdfast and sit on the king's council. He might raise castles like Brandon the Builder, or sail a ship across the Sunset Sea, or enter your mother's faith and become the High Septon. But he will never run beside his wolf again, he thought with a sadness too deep for words, or lie with a woman, or hold his own son in his arms. Arya cocked her head to one side. Can I be a king's counselor and build castles and become the High Septon? You, Ned said, kissing her lightly on the brow, will marry a king and rule his castle, and your sons will be knights and princes and lords, and yes, perhaps even a high septon. Arya screwed up her face. Nah, she said. That's Sansa. She folded up her right leg and resumed her balancing. Ned sighed and left her there. Inside his chambers, he stripped off his sweat-stained silks, and sluiced cold water over his head from the basin beside the bed. Alan entered as he was drying his face. My lord, he said, Lord Baelish is without and begs audience. Escort him to my solar, Ned said, reaching for a fresh tunic, the lightest linen he could find. I'll see him at once. Littlefinger was perched on the window seat when Ned entered watching the knights of the King's Guard practice at swords in the yard below. "'If only old Selmy's mind was nimble as his blade,' he said wistfully. "'Our council meetings would be a great deal livelier. "'Sir Barriston is as valiant and honourable as any man in the King's Landing.' Ned had come to have a deep respect for the aged, white-haired Lord Commander of the King's Guard. "'And as tiresome,' Littlefinger added." though I dare say he should do well in the tourney. Last year he unhorsed the hound, 
and it was only four years ago he was champion. The question of who might win the tourney interested Eddard Stard not in the least. Is there any reason for this visit, Lord Patar, or are you simply here to enjoy the view from my window? Littlefinger smiled. I promised Cat I would help you in your inquiries, and so I have. That took Ned aback. Promise or no promise, he could not find it in him to trust Lord Patar Baelish, who struck him as too clever by half. You have something for me? Someone, Littlefinger corrected, for someones, if truth be told. Had you thought to question the hand's servants? Ned frowned. Would that I could. Lady Aaron took her household back to the Eyrie. Lysa has done him no favour in that regard. All those who had stood closest to her husband had gone with her when she fled. John's maester, his steward, the captain of his guard, his knights and retainers. Most of her household, Littlefinger said. Not all. A few remain. A pregnant kitchen girl, hastily wed to one of Lord Renly's grooms. A stable hand who joined the city watch a potboy discharged from service for theft, and Lord Aaron's squire. His squire? Ned was pleasantly surprised. A man's squire often knew a great deal of his comings and goings. Sir Hugh of the Vale, Littlefinger named him. The king knighted the boy after Lord Aaron's death. I shall send for him, Ned said, and the others. Littlefinger winced. "'My lord, step over here to the window, if you will be so kind. "'Why? Come, and I'll show you, my lord.' Frowning, Ned crossed to the window. Patar Baelish made a casual gesture. "'There, across the yard, at the door of the armory, "'do you see the boy squatting by the steps, "'honing a sword with an oilstone? "'What of him?' "'He reports to Varys.' The spider has taken a great interest in you and all your doings. He shifted in the window seat. Now glance at the wall farther west, above the stables. The guardsman, leaning on the ramparts? Ned saw the man. Another of the eunuch's whisperers? No, this one belongs to the queen. Notice that he enjoys a fine view of the door to this tower. The better to note who calls on you. There are others, many unknown even to me. The Red Keep is full of eyes. Why do you think I hid Cat in a brothel? Eddard Stark had no taste for these intrigues. Seven hells, he swore. It did seem as though the man on the walls was watching him. Suddenly uncomfortable, Ned moved away from the window. Is everyone someone's informer in this cursed city? "'Scarcely,' said Littlefinger. "'He counted on the fingers of his hand. "'Why, there's me, you, the king, "'although, come to think of it, "'the king tells the queen much too much, "'and I'm less than certain about you.' "'He stood up. "'Is there a man in your service "'that you trust utterly and completely?' "'Yes,' said Ned. Oh, in that case, I have a delightful palace in Valeria I would dearly love to sell you, Littlefinger said with a mocking smile. The wiser answer was no, my lord. 
but be that as it may. Send this paragon of yours to Sir Hugh and the others. Your own comings and goings will be noted, but even Varys the Spider cannot watch every man in your service every hour of the day. He started for the door. Lord Pattaya, Ned called after him, I am grateful for your help. Perhaps I was wrong to distrust you. Littlefinger fingered his small pointed beard. You are slow to learn, Lord Eddard. Distrusting me was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed down off your horse. John John was showing Darren how best to deliver a side-stroke when the new recruit entered the practice yard. Your feet should be further apart, he urged. I don't want to lose your balance. That's good. Now pivot as you deliver the stroke. Get all your weight behind the blade. Darren broke off and lifted his visor. Seven gods, he murmured. Would you look at this, John? John turned. Through the eye-slit of his helm, he beheld the fattest boy he had ever seen standing in the doorway of the armory. By the look of him, he must have weighed twenty stone. The fur collar of his embroidered surcoat was lost beneath his chins. Pale eyes moved nervously in a great round moon of a face, and plump, sweaty fingers wiped themselves on the velvet of his doublet. They... they told me I was to come here for... for training, he said to no one in particular. A lordling, Pip observed to John. Southern, most like near High Garden. Pip had travelled the Seven Kingdoms with a mummer's troop, and bragged that he could tell what you were and where you'd been born just from the sound of your voice. A striding huntsman had been worked in scarlet thread upon the breast of the fat boy's fur-trimmed surcoat. John did not recognise the sigil. Sir Alistair Thorne looked over his new charge and said, "'It would seem they've run short of poachers and thieves down south. Now they send us pigs to man the wall. Is fur and velvet your notion of armour, my lord of hem?' It was soon revealed that the new recruit had brought his own armour with him. Padded doublet, boiled leather, mail and plate and helm, even a great wood and leather shield blazoned with the same striding huntsman he wore in his surcoat. As none of it was black, however, Sir Alistair insisted that he re-equip himself from the armoury. That took half the morning. His girth required Donald Noy to take apart a male hauberk and refit it with leather panels at the side. To get a helm over his head, the armourer had to detach the visor. His leathers bound so tightly around his legs and under his arms that he could scarcely move. Dressed for battle, the new boy looked like an overcooked sausage about to burst its skin. "'Well, let us hope that you're not as inept as you look,' Sir Alistair said. "'Alder, see what Sir Piggy can do.' John Snow winced. Halder had been born in a quarry and apprenticed as a stonemason. He was sixteen, tall and muscular, and his blows were as hard as any John had ever felt. "'This will be uglier than a horse arse,' Pip muttered, and it was. The fight lasted less than a minute before the fat boy was on the ground, his whole body shaking as blood leaked through his shattered helm, 
and between his pudgy fingers. I yield, he shrilled. No more. I yield. Don't, don't hit me. Rass and some of the other boys were laughing. Even then, Sir Alistair would not call an end. On your feet, Sir Piggy, he called. Pick up your sword. When the boy continued to cling to the ground, Thorn gestured to Halda. Hit him with a flat of your blade until he finds his feet. Halda delivered attentive smack to the foe's upraised cheeks. You can hit harder than that, Thorn taunted. Halda took hold of his longsword with both hands and brought it down so hard the blow split leather, even on the flat. The new boy screeched in pain. John Snow took a step forward. Pip laid a mailed hand on his arm. John, no, the small boy whispered with an anxious glance at Sir Alistair Thorne. On your feet, Thorne repeated. The fat boy struggled to rise, slipped and fell heavily again. Sir Piggy is starting to grasp the notion, Sir Alistair observed. Again, Halder lifted the sword for another blow. Cut us off, Am, Rast urged, laughing. John shook off Pip's hand. Halder, enough! Halder looked to Sir Alistair. The bastard speaks, and the peasants tremble, the master of arms said in that sharp, cold voice of his. I remind you that I am the master at arms here, Lord Snow. Look at him, Halder, John urged, ignoring Thorn as best he could. There's no honour in beating a fallen foe. He yielded. He knelt beside the fat boy. Halder lowered his sword. He yielded, he echoed. Sir Alistair's onyx eyes were fixed on Jon Snow. It would seem our bastard is in love, he said, as Jon helped the fat boy to his feet. Show me a steel, Lord Snow. Jon drew his longsword. He dared defy Sir Alistair only to a point, and he feared he was well beyond it now. Thorn smiled. The bastard wishes to defend his lady love, so shall we make an exercise of it? Rat, pimple, help our stone in here. Rest and Albert moved to join Halder. Three of you ought to be sufficient to make Lady Piggy squeal. All you need do is get past the bastard. Stay behind me, John said to the fat boy. Sir Alistair had often sent two foes against him, but never three. He knew he would likely go to sleep, bruised and bloody tonight. He braced himself for the assault. Suddenly, Pip was beside him. Three to two will make for far better sport, the small boy said cheerfully. He dropped his visor and slid out his sword. Before John could even think to protest, Gren had stepped up to make a third. The yard had grown deathly quiet. John could feel Sir Alice's eyes. Why are you waiting? he asked Rest and the others in a voice gone deceptively soft. But it was John who moved first. Halder barely got his sword up in time. John drove him backward, attacking with every blow, keeping the older boy on the heels. Know your foe, Sir Roderick had taught him once. John knew Halder, brutally strong but short of patience, with no taste for defence. Frustrate him, and he would leave himself open, as certain as sunset. The clang of steel echoed through the yard as the others joined battle around him. John blocked a savage cut at his head, the shock of impact running up his arm as the swords crashed together. He slammed a side stroke into Halder's ribs and was rewarded with a muffled grunt of pain. The counterstroke caught John on the shoulder. Chainmail crunched and pain flared up his neck 
but for an instant Halder was unbalanced. John cut his left leg from under him, and he fell with a curse and a crash. Gren was standing his ground, as John had taught him, giving Albert more than he cared for, but Pip was hard-pressed. Rast had two years and forty pounds on him. John stepped up behind him and rang the raper's helm like a bell. As Rast went reeling, Pip slid in under his guard, knocking him down, and leveled a blade at his throat. By then John had moved on. Facing two swords, Albert backed away. "'I yield!' he shouted. Sir Alistair Thorne surveyed the scene with disgust. "'The mummer's farce has gone on long enough for today.' He walked away. The session was at an end. Darren helped Halder to his feet. The quarryman's son wrenched off his helm and threw it across the yard. "'For an instant I thought I finally had you, Snow.' "'For an instant you did,' John replied. Under his mail and leather his shoulder was throbbing. He sheathed his sword and tried to remove his helm, but when he raised his arm, the pain made him grit his teeth. "'Let me,' a voice said. Thick-fingered hands unfastened helm from Gorget and lifted it off gently. "'Did he hurt you?' "'Well, I've been bruised before.' He touched his shoulder and winced. The yard was emptying around them. Blood matted the fat boy's hair, where Halder had split his helm asunder. "'My name is Samuel Tarley, of Horn—' He stopped and licked his lips. "'I, I mean, I was of Horn Hill until I left. "'I've come to take the black. "'My father is Lord Randall, a bannerman, to the Tyrrells of Highgarden. I, "'I used to be his heir, only—' His voice trailed off. "'I'm John Snow, Ned Stark's bastard of Winterville.' Samuel Tarley nodded. "'I, uh, if you want, you can call me Sam. My mother calls me Sam.' "'You can call him Lord Snow,' Pip said, as he came up to join him. "'You don't want to know what his mother calls him.' "'These two are Gren and Pippa,' John said. "'Gren's the ugly one,' Pip said. Gren scowled. "'You're ugly and me.' At least I don't have ears like a bat. My thanks to all of you, the fat boy said gravely. Why didn't you get up and fight, Gren demanded. I, I wanted to, truly. I, I just... I, I couldn't. I didn't want him to hit me any more. He looked at the ground. I... I fear I'm a coward. My lord father always said so. Gren looked thunderstruck. Even Pip had no words to say to that and Pip had words for everything. What sort of a man would proclaim himself a coward? Samuel Tarley must have read their thoughts on their faces. His eyes met John's and darted away, quick as frightened animals. I, uh, I, I'm sorry, he said. I, I, I don't mean to, uh, to be like I, I am. He walked heavily towards the armory. John called after him. You were hurt, he said. Tomorrow you'll do better. Sam looked mournfully back over one shoulder. No, I won't, he said, blinking back tears. I never do better. When he was gone, Gren frowned. Nobody likes cravens, he said uncomfortably. I wish we hadn't helped him. What if they think we're craven too? You're too stupid to be craven, Pip told him. I am not, Gren said. Yes, you are, 
If a bear attacked you in the woods, you'd be too stupid to run away. I would not, Gren insisted. I'd run away faster than you. He stopped suddenly, scowling when he saw Pip's grin and realised what he'd just said. His thick neck flushed to dark red, and John left them there, arguing as he returned to the armoury, hung up his sword, and stripped off his battered armour. Life at Castle Black followed certain patterns. The mornings were for swordplay, the afternoons for work. The Black Brothers set new recruits to many different tasks, to learn where their skills lay. John cherished the rare afternoons when he was sent out with Ghost ranging at his side to bring back game for the Lord Commander's table, but for every day spent hunting, he gave a dozen to Donald Noy in the armory, spinning the whetstone while the one-armed smith sharpened axes, grown dull from use, or pumping the bellows as Noy hammered out a new sword. Other times he ran messages, stood at guard, mucked out stables, fletched arrows, assisted Maester Eamon with his birds, or Bowen Marsh with his counts and inventories. That afternoon, the watch commander sent him to the winch cage, with four barrels of fresh crushed stone to scatter gravel over the icy footpaths atop the wall. It was lonely and boring work, even with ghosts along for company, but John found he did not mind. On a clear day you could see half the world from the top of the wall, and the air was always cold and bracing. He could think here, and he found himself thinking of Samuel Tarley, and utterly of Tyrion Lannister. He wondered what Tyrion would have made of the fat boy. Most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it, the dwarf had told him, grinning. The world was full of cravens who pretended to be heroes. It took a queer sort of courage to admit to cowardice, as Samuel Tarley had. His sore shoulder made the work go slowly. It was late afternoon before John finished graveling the paths. He lingered on high to watch the sun go down, turning the western sky the colour of blood. Finally, as dusk was settling over the north, John rolled the empty barrels back into the cage and signalled the winchmen to lower him. The evening meal was almost done by the time he and Ghost reached the common hall. A group of the Black Brothers were dicing over mulled wine near the fire. His friends were at a bench near the west wall, laughing. Pip was in the middle of a story. The mummer's boy, with the big ears, was a born liar with a hundred different voices, and he did not tell his stories so much as live them, playing all the parts as needed. A king one moment, and the swine heard the next. When he turned into an alehouse girl or a virgin princess, he used a high falsetto voice that reduced them all to tears of helpless laughter, and his eunuchs were always eerily accurate caricatures of Sir Alistair. John took as much pleasure from Pip's antics as anyone, yet that night he turned away and went instead to the end of the bench, where Samuel Tarley sat alone, as far from the others as he could get. He was finishing the last of the pork pie the cooks had served up for supper when John sat down across from him. The fat boy's eyes widened at the sight of Ghost. "'Is that a wolf?' A direwolf, John said. His name is Ghost. The direwolf is the sigil of my father's house. Ours is a trading huntsman, Samuel Tarley said. 
Do you like to hunt? Well, the fat boy shuddered. Oh, I ate it! He looked as though he was going to cry again. What's wrong now? John asked. Why are you always so frightened? Sam stared at the last of his pork pie and gave a feeble shake of his head, too scared even to talk. A burst of laughter filled the hall. John heard Pip squeaking in a high voice. He stood. Let's go outside. The round, fat face looked up at him, suspicious. Why? What will we do outside? Talk, John said. Have you seen the wall? I'm fat, not blind, Samuel Tarley said. Of course I saw it. It's seven hundred feet high. Yet he stood up all the same, wrapped a fur-lined cloak around his shoulders, and followed John from the common hall. Still wary, as if he suspected some cruel trick was waiting for him in the night. Ghost padded along beside them. I never thought it would be like this, Sam said as they walked, his words steaming in the cold air. Already he was huffing and puffing as he tried to keep up. All the buildings are falling down, and it's so, so... Cold? A hard frost was settling over the castle, and John could hear the soft crunch of grey weeds beneath his boots. Sam nodded miserably. I ate the cold, he said. Last night I woke up in the dark, and the fire had gone out, and I was certain I was going to freeze to death by morning. It must have been warmer where you come from. I never saw snow until last month. We were crossing the Barrowlands, me and the men my father sent to see me north, and this white stuff began to fall like a soft rain. At first I thought it so beautiful, like feathers drifting from the sky, but it kept on and on until I was frozen to the bone. The men had crusts of snow in their beards and on their shoulders, and it still kept coming. I was afraid it would never end. John smiled. The wall loomed before them, glimmering palely in the light of the half-moon. In the sky above, the stars burned clear and sharp. "'Are they going to make me go up there?' Sam asked, his face curdled like old milk as he looked at the great wooden stairs. "'I'll die if I have to climb that.' "'There's a winch,' John said, pointing. "'They can draw you up in a cage.' Samuel Tarley sniffed. "'I don't like high places.' It was too much. John frowned, incredulous. Are you afraid of everything, he asked? I don't understand. If you are truly so craven, why are you here? Why would a coward want to join the Night's Watch? Samuel Tarley looked at him for a long moment, and his round face seemed to cave in on itself. He sat down on the frost-covered ground and began to cry, huge choking sobs that made his whole body shake. John Snow could only stand and watch. Like the snowfall on the Barrowlands, it seemed the tears would never end. It was Ghost who knew what to do. Silent as shadow, the pale direwolf moved closer and began to lick the warm tears off Samuel Tarley's face. The fat boy cried out, startled, and somehow, in a heartbeat, his sobs turned to laughter. John Snow laughed with him. Afterward they sat on the frozen ground, huddled in their cloaks, with ghosts between them. John told the story of how he and Rob had found the pups newborn in the late summer snows. It seemed a thousand years ago now. Before long he found himself talking of Winterville, 
Sometimes I dream about it, he said. I'm walking down this long, empty hall. My voice echoes all around, but no one answers. So I walk faster, opening doors, shouting names. I don't even know who I'm looking for. Most nights, it's my father. But sometimes, it's Rob instead. Or my little sister, Aria. Or my uncle. The thought of Benjamin Stark saddened him. His uncle was still missing. The old bear had sent out rangers in search of him. Sir Jeremy Riker had led two sweeps, and Quarren Halfhand had gone forth from the Shadow Tower, but they found nothing aside from a few blazes in the trees that his uncle had left to mark his way. In the stony highlands to the northwest, the mark stopped abruptly, and all trace of Ben Stark vanished. "'Do you ever find anyone in your dream?' Sam asked. John shook his head. "'No one. The castle is always empty.' He had never told anyone of the dream, and he did not understand why he was telling Sam now. Yet somehow it felt good to talk of it. Even the ravens have gone from the rookery, and the stables are full of bones. That always scares me. I start to run then, throwing open doors, climbing the tower three steps at a time, screaming for someone, for anyone. And then I find myself in front of the door to the crypts. It's black inside, and I can see the steps spiraling down. Somehow I know I have to go down there, but I don't want to. I'm afraid of what might be waiting for me. The old kings of winter are down there, sitting on their thrones with stone walls at their feet and iron swords across their laps. But it's not them I'm afraid of. I scream that I'm not a Stark, that this isn't my place, but it's no good. I have to go anywhere. So I start down, feeling the walls as I descend, with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker, until I want to scream. He stopped, frowning, embarrassed. That's when I always wake. His skin, cold and clammy, shivering in the darkness of his cell, ghosts would leap up beside him, his warmth, as comforting as daybreak. He would go back to sleep with his face pressed into the dire wolf's shaggy white fur. Do you dream of Hornhill? John asked. No, Sam's mouth grew tight and hard. I hated it there. He scratched ghosts behind the ear, brooding, and John let the silence breathe. After a long while, Samuel Tarley began to talk, and John Snow listened quietly and learn how it was that a self-confessed coward found himself on the wall. The Tarleys were a family old in honour, bannermen to Mace Tyrell, Lord of High Garden and Warden of the South, the eldest son of Lord Randall Tarley. Samuel was born heir to rich lands, a strong keep, a storied two-handed greatsword named Hartsbane, forged of Valerian steel, and passed down from father to son near five hundred years. Whatever pride his lord father might have felt at Samuel's birth vanished as the boy grew up plump, soft, and awkward. Sam loved to listen to music and make his own songs, to wear soft velvets, to play in the castle kitchen beside the cooks, 
drinking in the rich smells as he snitched lemon cakes and blueberry tarts. His passions were books and kittens and dancing, clumsy as he was. But he grew ill at the sight of blood, and wept to see even a chicken slaughtered. A dozen master-at-arms came and went at Hornhill, trying to turn Samuel into the knight his father wanted. The boy was cursed and caned, slapped and starved. One man had him sleep in his chainmail to make him more martial. Another dressed him in his mother's clothing and paraded him through the bailey to shame him into valour. He only grew fatter and more frightened, until Lord Randall's disappointment turned to anger and then to loathing. One time, Sam confided, his voice dropping from a whisper, two men came to the castle, warlocks from Carth, with white skin and blue lips. They slaughtered a bull oryx and made me bathe in the hot blood. But it didn't make me brave as they promised. I got sick and wretched. Father had them scourged. Finally, after three girls and as many years, Lady Tarley gave her lord husband a second son. From that day, Lord Randall ignored Sam, devoting all his time to the younger boy, a fierce, robust child, more to his liking. Samuel had known several years of sweet peace with his music and his books. Until the dawn of his fifteenth name day, when he had been awakened to find his horse saddled and ready. Three men-at-arms had escorted him into a wood near Horn Hill, where his father was skinning a deer. "'You are almost a man-grown now, and my heir,' Lord Randall Tarley had told his eldest son, his knife laying bare the carcass as he spoke. "'You have given me no cause to disown you, but neither will I allow you to inherit the land and title that should be Dickens.' Heartsbane must go to a man strong enough to wield her, and you are not worthy to touch her ilt. So I have decided that you shall this day announce that you wish to take the black. You will forsake all claim to your brother's inheritance and start north before evenfall. If you do not, then on the morrow we shall have a hunt, and somewhere in these woods your horse will stumble, and you will be thrown from your saddle to die." Or so I will tell your mother. She has a woman's heart, and finds it in her to cherish even you, and I have no wish to cause her pain. Please do not imagine that it will truly be that easy should you think to defy me. Nothing would please me more than to hunt you down like the pig you are. His arms were red to the elbows as he laid the skinning knife aside. So, there is your choice. The night's watch... He reached inside the deer, ripped out its heart, and held it in his fist, red and dripping, or this. Sam told the tale in a calm, dead voice, as if it were something that had happened to someone else, not to him. And strangely, John thought, he did not weep, not even once. When he was done, they sat together and listened to the wind for a time. There was no other sound in all the world. Finally, John said, We should go back to the common hall. Why? Sam asked. John shrugged. There's hot cider to drink, or mulled wine if you prefer. Some nights Darian sings for us, if the mood is on him. He was a singer before, 
Well, not truly, but almost. An apprentice singer. How did he come here? Sam asked. Lord Rowan of Golden Grove found him in bed with his daughter. The girl was two years older, and Darian swears she helped him through her window, but under her father's eye she named it Rape. So here he is. When Maester Eamon heard him sing, he said his voice was honey poured over thunder. John smiled. Toad sometimes sings, too, if you call it singing. Drinking songs he learned in his father's wine sink. Pip says his voice is piss poured over a fart. They laughed at that together. I should like to hear them both, Sam admitted, but they would not want me there. His face was troubled. He's going to make me fight again on the morrow, isn't he? He is, John was forced to say. Sam got awkwardly to his feet. I'd better try to sleep. He huddled down in his cloak and plodded off. The others were still in the common room when John returned, alone but for ghost. Where have you been? Pip asked. Talking with Sam, he said. He truly is craven, said Gren. At supper there were still places on the bench when he got his pie, but he was too scared to come sit with us. The Lord of Ham thinks he's too good to eat with the likes of us, suggested Jerrin. I saw him eat a pork pie, Toad said, smirking. Do you think it was a brother? He began to make oinking noises. Stop it, John snapped angrily. The other boys fell silent, taken aback by his sudden fury. Listen to me, John said into the quiet, and he told them how it was going to be. Pip backed him, as he'd known he would, but when Halder spoke up, it was a pleasant surprise. Gren was anxious at the first, but John knew the words to move him. One by one, the rest fell in line. John persuaded some, cajoled some, shamed the others, made threats where threats were required. At the end, they had all agreed. All but rest. You girls do as you please, rest said. But if Thorn sends me against Lady Piggy, I'm going to slice me off a rasher of bacon. He laughed in John's face and left them there. Hours later, as the castle slept, three of them paid a call on his cell. Gren held his arms while Pip sat on his legs. John could hear Rass's rapid breathing as Ghost leapt onto his chest. The direwolf's eyes burned red as embers as his teeth nipped lightly at the soft skin of the boy's throat, just enough to draw blood. Remember, we know where you sleep, John said softly. The next morning, John heard Rass tell Albert and Toad how his razor had slipped while he shaved. From that day forth, neither Rast nor any of the others would hurt Samuel Tarley. When Sir Alistair matched them against him, they would stand their ground and swat aside his slow, clumsy strokes. If the master-at-arms screamed for an attack, they would dance in and tap Sam lightly on breastplate or helm or leg. Sir Alistair raged and threatened and called them all cravens and women and worse, yet Sam remained unhurt. A few nights later, at John's urging, he joined them for the evening meal, taking a place on the bench beside Halder. It was another fortnight before he found the nerve to join their talk, but in time he was laughing at Pip's faces and teasing Gren with the best of them. Fat and awkward, 
and frightened he might be, but Samuel Tarley was no fool. One night he visited John in his cell. I don't know what you did, he said, but I know you did it. He looked away shyly. I've never had a friend before. We're not friends, John said. He put a hand on Sam's broad shoulder. We're brothers. And so they were, he thought to himself, after Sam had taken his leave. Rob and Bran and Rickon were his father's sons, and he loved them still, yet John knew that he had never truly been one of them. Catelyn Stark had seen to that. The grey walls of Winterfell might still haunt his dreams, but Castle Black was his life now, and his brothers were Sam and Gren and Halder and Pip and the other castouts who wore the black of the Night's Watch. "'My uncle spoke truly,' he whispered to Ghost. He wondered if he would ever see Benjamin Stark again to tell him. Eddard "'It's the Hans Tourney that's the cause of all the trouble, my lords,' the commander of the City Watch complained to the King's Council. "'The King's Tourney,' Ned corrected him, wincing. "'I assure you the Hand wants no part of it. "'Well, call it what you will, my lord. "'The knights have been arriving from all over the realm, "'and for every knight we get two free riders, three craftsmen, six men-at-arms, a dozen merchants, two dozen whores, "'and more thieves than I dare guess.' This cursed heat has half the city in a fever to start, and now with all these visitors, last night we had a drowning, a tavern riot, three knife fights, a rape, two fires, robberies beyond count, and a drunken horse race down the street of the sisters. The night before, a woman's head was found in the great sept, floating in the rainbow pool. No one seems to know how it got there or who it belongs to. How dreadful, Varys said with a shudder. Lord Renly Baratheon was less sympathetic. If you cannot keep the king's peace, Janus, perhaps a city watch should be commanded by someone who can. Stout Jarley, Janus Slint pulled himself up like an angry frog, his bald pate reddening. Aegon, the dragon himself, could not keep the peace, Lord Renly. I need more men. How many? Ned asked, leaning forward. As ever, Robert had not troubled himself to attend the council session, so it fell to his hand to speak for him. As many as can be gotten, Lord Hand. Hire fifty new men, Ned told him. Lord Baelish will see that you will get the coin. I will, Littlefinger said. You will. You found forty thousand golden dragons for a champion's purse. Surely you can scrape together a few coppers to keep the king's peace? Ned turned back to Janus Slint. I will also give you twenty good swords from my own household guard to serve with the watch until the crowds have left. All thanks, Lord Hand, Slint said, bowing. I promise you, they shall be put to good use. When the commander had taken his leave, Eddard Stark turned to the rest of the council. The sooner this folly is done with, the better I shall like it. As if the expense and trouble were not irksome enough, all and sundry insisted on salting Ned's wound by calling it the hands tawny, as if he were the cause of it, and Robert honestly seemed to think he should feel honoured. 
the realm prospers from such events, my lord, Grand Maester Pycelle said. They bring the great the chance of glory, and the lowly a respite from their woes. And put coins in many a pocket, Littlefinger added. Every inn in the city is full, and the whores are walking bow-legged and jingling with each step. Lord Renly laughed. We're fortunate my brother Stannis is not with us. Remember the time he proposed to outlaw brothels? The king asked him if perhaps he'd like to outlaw eating, shitting, and breathing while he was at it. If truth be told, I oft-times wonder how Stannis ever got that ugly daughter of his. He goes to his marriage bed, like a man marching to a battlefield with a grim look in his eyes and a determination to do his duty. Ned had not joined the laughter. I wonder about your brother Stannis as well. I wonder whether he intends to end his visit to Dragonstone and resume his seat on this council. No doubt as soon as we have scourged all those whores into the sea, Littlefinger replied, provoking more laughter. I've heard quite enough about whores for one day, Ned said, rising. Until the morrow. Harwin had the door when Ned returned to the Tower of the Hand. Summon jury to my chambers. And tell your father to saddle my horse, Ned told him too brusquely. As you say, my lord. The Red Keep and the hands tawny were chafing him raw, Ned reflected as he climbed. He yearned for the comfort of Catelyn's arms, for the sounds of Rob and John crossing swords in the practice yard, for the cool days and cold nights of the north. In his chambers he stripped off his council silks and sat for a moment with a book while he waited for Jory to arrive. The lineages and histories of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms, with descriptions of many high lords and noble ladies and their children, by Grand Maester Melian. Pycelle had spoken truly. It made for ponderous reading. Yet John Aaron had asked for it, and Ned felt certain he had reasons. There was something here, some truth buried in these brittle yellow pages if only he could see it. But what? The tome was over a century old. Scarcely a man now alive had yet been born when Malian had compiled his dusty lists of weddings, births, and deaths. He opened to the section of House Lannister once more and turned the pages slowly, hoping against hope that something would leap out at him. The Lannisters were an old family, tracing their descent back to Lan the Clever, a trickster from the Age of Heroes, who was no doubt as legendary as Bran the Builder, though far more beloved of singers and tale-tellers. In the songs, Lan was a fellow who winkled the castleys out of Castle Rock with no weapon but his wits, and stole gold from the sun to brighten his curly hair. Ned wished he were here now to winkle the truth out of this damnable book. A sharp rap on the door heralded Jory Cassell. Ned closed Malian's tome and bid him enter. I have promised the city watch twenty of my guard until the tourney is done, he told him. I rely on you to make the choice. Give Alan the command and make certain the men understand that they are needed to stop fights, not start them. Rising, Ned opened a cedar chest and removed a light linen undertunic. Did you find the stable boy? 
The watchman, my lord, Jory said, he vows he'll never touch another horse. What do you have to say? He claims he knew Lord Aaron well. Fast friends they were, Jory snorted. The hand always gave the lads a cupper on their name days, he says. Had a way with horses. Never rode his mounts too hard and brought them carrots and apples, so they was always pleased to see him. Carrots and apples, Ned repeated. It sounds as if this boy would be even less use than the others. And he was the last of the four Littlefinger had turned up. Jory had spoken to each of them in turn. Sir Hugh had been brusque and uninformative and arrogant, as only a new-made knight can be. If the hand wished to talk to him, he should be pleased to receive him. But he would not be questioned by a mere captain of guards, even if said captain was ten years older and a hundred times a swordsman. The serving girl had at least been pleasant. She said Lord John had been reading more than was good for him, that he was troubled and melancholy over his young son's frailty, and gruff with his lady wife. The pot-boy, Noel Cordwainer, had never exchanged so much as a word with Lord John, but he was full of oddments of kitchen gossip. The Lord had been quarrelling with the King. The Lord only picked at his food. The Lord was sending his boy to be fostered on Dragonstone. The Lord had taken a great interest in the breeding of hunting hounds. The Lord had visited Master Armourer to commission a new suit of plate, wrought all in plain silver, with a blue jasper falcon and a mother-of-pearl moon on the breast. The king's own brother had gone with him to help choose the design, the potboy said. No, not Lord Renly, the other one, Lord Stannis. Did our watchman recall anything else of note? The lad swears Lord John was as strong as a man half his age. Often went riding with Lord Stannis, he says. Stannis again, Ned thought. He found that curious. John Aaron and he had been cordial but never friendly, and while Robert had been riding north to Winterfell, Stannis had removed himself to Dragonstone, the Targaryen island fastness he had conquered in his brother's name. He had given no word as to when he might return. Where did they go on these rides? Ned asked. A boy said they visited a brothel. A brothel? Ned said. The Lord of the Eyrie and Hand of the King visited a brothel with Stannis Baratheon? He shook his head, incredulous, wondering what Lord Renly would make of this titbit. Robert's lusts were the subject of ribald drinking songs throughout the realm, but Stannis was a different sort of man, a bare year younger than the king, yet utterly unlike him, stern, humorless, unforgiving, grim in his sense of duty. The boy insists it's true. The hand took three guardsmen with him, and the boy says they were joking of it when he took their horses afterwards. Which brothel? Ned asked. The boy did not know the guards would. A pity Lysa carried them off to the Vale, Ned said dryly. The guards are doing their best to vex us. Lady Lysa, Maester Coleman, Lord Stannis... Everyone who might actually know the truth of what happened to John Aaron is a thousand leagues away. Will you summon Lord Stannis back from Dragonstone? Not yet, Ned said. Not until I have a better notion of what this is all about and where he stands. The matter nagged at him. Why did Stannis leave? 
Had he played some part in John Aaron's murder? Or was he afraid? Ned found it hard to imagine what could frighten Stannis Baratheon, who had once held Storm's End through a year of siege, surviving on rats and boot leather, while the Lords Tyrell and Redwine sat outside with their hosts banqueting in sight of his walls. Bring me my doublet, if you would, the grey, with a direwolf sigil. I want this armour to know who I am. It might make him more forthcoming. Jory went to the wardrobe. Lord Renly is brother to Lord Stannis, as well as the king. Yes, it seems that he was not invited on these rides. Ned was not sure what to make of Renly, with all his friendly ways and easy smiles. A few days passed, it taken Ned aside to show him an exquisite rose-gold locket. Inside was a miniature, painted in the vivid mirish style, of a lovely young girl with doe eyes and a cascade of soft brown hair. Renly had seemed anxious to know if the girl reminded him of anyone, and when Ned had no answer but a shrug, he seemed disappointed. The maid was Loras Tyrell's sister Marjorie, he'd confessed. But there were those who said she looked like Lyanna. No, Ned had told him, bemused. Could it be that Lord Renly, who looked so like a young Robert, had conceived a passion for a girl he fancied to be young Lyanna? That struck him as more than passing queer. Jory held out the doublet, and Ned slid his hands through the armholes. Perhaps Lord Stannis will return for Robert's tawny he said as Jory laced the garment up the back. "'That would be a stroke of fortune, my lord,' Jory said. Ned buckled on his longsword. In other words, not bloody likely. His smile was grim. Jory draped Ned's cloak across his shoulders and clasped it at the throat with a hand's badge of office. "'The armourer lives above his shop, in a large house at the top of the Street of Steel. Alan knows the way, my lord.' Ned nodded. The gods help this pot-boy if he sent me off herring after shadows. It was a slim enough staff to lean on. The John Aaron that Ned Stark had known was not one to wear a jeweled and silvered plate. Steel was steel. It was meant for protection, not ornament. He might have changed his views, to be sure. He would scarcely have been the first man who came to look on things differently after a few years at court. But the change was marked enough to make Ned wonder. "'Is there any other service I might perform? I suppose you'd best begin visiting whorehouses.' "'Hard duty, my lord,' Jory grinned. "'The men will be glad to help. Porter has made a fair start already.' Ned's favourite horse was saddled and waiting in the yard. Varley and Jax fell in beside him as he rode through the yard. Their steel caps— and shirts of mail must have been sweltering, yet they said no word of complaint. As Lord Eddard passed beneath the King's Gate into the stink of the city, his grey and white cloak streaming from his shoulders, he saw eyes everywhere and kicked his mount into a trot. His guard followed. He looked behind him frequently as they made their way through the crowded streets. Tamard and Desmond had left the castle early this morning, to take up positions on the route they must take, and watch for anyone following them. But even so, Ned was uncertain. The shadow of the king's spider and his little birds 
had him fretting like a maiden on a wedding night. The Street of Steel began at the market square beside the River Gate, as it was named on maps, or the Mud Gate, as it was commonly called. A mummer on stilts was striding through the throngs like some great insect, with a horde of barefoot children trailing behind him, hooting. Elsewhere, two ragged boys, no older than Bran, were dueling with sticks, to the loud encouragement of some and the furious curses of others. An old woman ended the contest by leaning out of her window and emptying a bucket of slops on the heads of the combatants. In the shadow of the wall, farmers stood beside their wagons, bellowing out, "'Apples! The best apples! Cheap at twice the price! And blood melons! Sweet as honey! And turnips! Onions! Roots! Here you go! Here! Here you go! Turnips! Onions! Roots! Here you go! Here!' The mudgate was opened, and a squad of city watchmen stood under the portcullis in their golden cloaks leaning on spears. When a column of riders appeared from the west, the guardsmen sprang into action, shouting commands and moving the carts and foot traffic aside to let the knight enter with his escort. The first rider, through the gate, carried a long black banner. The silk rippled in the wind like a living thing, Across the fabric was blazoned a night sky slashed with purple lightning. "'Make way for Lord Berwick!' the rider shouted. "'Make way for Lord Berwick!' And close behind came the young lord himself, a dashing figure on a black courser, with red-gold hair and a black satin cloak dusted with stars. "'Here to fight in the hands tawny, my lord!' a guardsman called out to him. "'Here to win the hands tawny,' Lord Berwick shouted back as the crowd cheered. Ned turned off the square where the street of steel began and followed its winding path up a long hill past blacksmiths working at open forges, free riders haggling over mail shirts and grizzled ironmongers selling old blades and razors from their wagons. The farther they climbed, the larger the buildings grew. The man they wanted was all the way at the top of the hill, in a huge house of timber and plaster, whose upper stories loomed over the narrow street. The double doors showed a hunting scene carved in ebony and weirwood. A pair of stone knights stood sentry at the entrance, armoured in fanciful suits of polished red steel that transformed them into griffin and unicorn. Ned left his horse with jacks and shouldered his way inside. The slim young serving girl took quick note of Ned's beds and the sigil on his doublet, and the master came hurrying out all smiles and bows. "'Wine for the king's hand,' he told the girl, gesturing Ned to a couch. "'I am Topo Mutt, my lord. Please, please, put yourself at ease.' He wore a black velvet coat with hammers embroidered on the sleeves and silver thread. Around his neck was a heavy silver chain and a sapphire as large as a pigeon's egg. "'If you are in need of new arms for the hands tawny, you've come to the right shop.' Ned did not bother to correct him. "'My work is costly, and I make no apologies for that, my lord,' he said as he filled two matching silver goblets. "'You will not find craftsmanship equal to mine anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms, I promise you.' Visit every forge in King's Landing, if you like, and compare for yourself. 
any village smith can hammer out a shirt of mail, my work is art. Ned sipped his wine and let the man go on. The Knight of Flowers bought all his armor here, Tubbo boasted, and many high lords, the ones who knew fine steel, and even Lord Renly, the king's own brother. Perhaps the hand had seen Lord Renly's new armor, the green plate with the golden antlers. No other armor in the city could get that deeper green. He knew the secret of putting color in the steel itself. Paint and enamel were the crutches of a journeyman. Or mayhaps the hand wanted a blade. Tubho had learned to work Valyrian steel at the forges of Kuhor as a boy. Only a man who knew the spells could take old weapons and forge them anew. The direwolf was a sigil of our stark, is it not? I could fashion a direwolf helm so real the children will run from you in the street, he vowed. Ned smiled. Did you make a falcon helm for Lord Aaron? Tophomart paused a long moment and set aside the wine. The hand did call upon me with Lord Stennis, the king's brother. I regret to say they did not honor me with their patronage. Ned looked at the man evenly, saying nothing, waiting. He had found over the years that silence sometimes yielded more than questions, and so it was this time. They asked to see the boy, the armorer said. So... I took them back to the forge. The boy? Ned echoed. He had no notion who the boy might be. I should like to see the boy as well. Tapomut gave him a cool, careful look. As you wish, my lord, he said, with no trace of his former friendliness. He led Ned out of a rear door and across a narrow yard back to the cavernous stone barn where the work was done. When the armor opened the door, the blast of hot air that came through made Ned feel as though he was walking into a dragon's mouth. Inside a forge blazed in each corner, and the air stank of smoke and sulphur. Journeyman armorers glanced up from their hammers and tongues just long enough to wipe the sweat from their brows, while bare-chested apprentice boys worked the bellows. The master called over a tall lad, about Rob's age, his arms and chest corded with muscle. This is Lord Stark, the new hand of the king, he told him as the boy looked at Ned through sullen blue eyes and pushed back sweat-soaked hair with his fingers. Thick hair, shaggy and unkempt, and black as ink. The shadow of a new beard darkened his jaw. This is Gendry, strong for his age, and he works hard. Show the hand that helmet you made, lad. Almost shyly, the boy led them to his bench, and a steel helm shaped like a bull's head with two great curving horns. Ned turned the helm over in his hands. It was raw steel, unpolished, but expertly shaped. This is fine work. I would be pleased if you would let me buy it. The boy snatched it out of his hands. It's not for sale. Tobomut looked horror-struck. Boy, this is the king's hand. If his lordship wants this helm, make him a gift of it. He honors you by asking. I made it for me, the boy said stubbornly. A hundred pardons, my lord, his master said hurriedly to Ned. 
the boy is crude, as new steel and like new steel would profit from some beating. That helm is journeyman's work at best. Forgive him, and I will promise I will craft you a helm like none you have ever seen. He has done nothing that requires my forgiveness. Gendry, when Lord Aaron came to see you, what did you talk about? He asked me questions, is all, my lord. What sort of questions? The boy shrugged. How was I, and was I well treated, and if I liked the work, and, and stuff about my mother, who she was, and what she looked like, and all? What did you tell him? Ned asked. The boy shoved a fresh fall of black hair off his forehead. She died when I was little. She had yellow hair, and sometimes she used to sing to me, I remember. She worked in an alehouse. Did Lord Stannis question you as well? The, the ball one? No, not him. He, he never said no word, just glared at me, thought I was some raper who'd done for his daughter. Mind your filthy tongue, the master said. This is the king's own hand. The boy lowered his eyes. A smart boy, eh? But stubborn. That helm. The others called him bullheaded, so he threw it in their teeth. Ned touched the boy's head, fingering the thick black hair. Look at me, Gendry. The apprentice lifted his face. Ned studied the shape of his jaw, the eyes like blue ice. Yes, he thought. I see it. Go back to your work, lad. I am sorry to have bothered you. He walked back to the house with the master. Who paid the boy's apprentice fee, he asked lightly. Mott looked fretful. You saw the boy, such a strong boy. Those hands of his... Those hands were made for hammers. He had such promise. I took him on without a fee. The truth now, Ned said. The streets are full of strong boys. The day you take on an apprentice without a fee will be the day the wall comes down. Who paid for him? Uh, Lord, the master said reluctantly. He gave no name and wore no sigil on his coat. He paid in gold twice the customary sum and he said he was paying once for the boy and once for my silence. Describe him. He, he was stout, round of shoulder, not so tall as you. Brown beard, but there was a bit of red in it elsewhere. He, he wore a rich cloak, that I do remember, heavy purple velvet worked with silver threads, but the hood shadowed his face, and I never did see him clear. He hesitated a moment. My lord, I want no trouble. None of us wants trouble, but I fear these are troubled times, Master Mutt, Ned said. You know who the boy is. I'm only an armourer, my lord. I know what I'm told. You know who the boy is, Ned repeated patiently. That is not a question. The boy is my apprentice, the master said. He looked Ned in the eye, stubborn as old iron. Who he was before he came to me, that's none of my concern. Ned nodded. He decided that he liked Tubho Mutt, Master Armourer. If the day ever comes when Gendry would rather wield a sword than forge one, send him to me. He has the look of a warrior. Until then, you have my thanks, Master Mutt, and my promise. 
Should I ever want a helm to frighten children, this will be the first place I visit. His guard was waiting outside with the horses. Did you find anything, my lord? Jax asked as Ned mounted up. I did, Ned told him, wondering. What had John Aaron wanted with a king's bastard? And why was it worth his life? Catelyn My lady, you ought to cover your head, Sir Roderick told her as their horses plodded north. You will take a chill. It's only water, Sir Roderick, Catelyn replied. Her hair hung wet and heavy, a loose strand stuck to her forehead, and she could imagine how ragged and wild she must look, but for once she did not care. The southern rain was soft and warm. Catelyn liked the feel of it on her face, gentle as her mother's kisses. It took her back to her childhood, to long grey days at River Run. She remembered the god's wood, drooping branches heavy with moisture, and the sound of her brother's laughter as he chased her through piles of damp leaves. She remembered making mud pies with Lysa, the weight of them, the mud slick and brown between her fingers. They had served them to Littlefinger giggling, and he'd eaten so much mud he was sick for a week. How young they all had been. Catelyn had almost forgotten. In the north the rain fell cold and hard, and sometimes at night it turned to ice. It was as likely to kill a crop as nurture it, and it sent grown men running for the nearest shelter. That was no rain for little girls to play in. I'm soaked through, Sir Roderick complained. Even my bones are wet. The woods pressed close around them, and the steady pattering of rain on leaves was accompanied by the small sucking sounds the horses made as their hooves pulled free of the mud. We will want a fire tonight, my lady, and a hot meal would serve us both. There is an inn at the crossroad up ahead, Catelyn told him. She had slept many a night there in her youth, travelling with her father. Lord Huster Tully had been a restless man in his prime, always riding somewhere. She still remembered the innkeep, a fat woman named Masha Heddle, who chewed sour leaf night and day and seemed to have an endless supply of smiles and sweet cakes for the children. The sweet cakes had been soaked with honey, rich and heavy on the tongue. But how Catelyn had dreaded those smiles! The sour leaf had stained Masha's teeth a dark red and made her smile a bloody horror. An inn, Sir Roderick repeated wistfully. If only... But we, we dare not risk it. If, if we wish to remain unknown, I think it best we seek out some small holdfast. He broke off as they heard sounds up the road. Splashing water, the clink of mail, a horse's whinny. Riders, he warned, his hand dropping to the hilt of his sword. Even on the king's road, it never hurt to be wary. They followed the sounds around a lazy bend of the road and saw them. A column of armed men noisily fording a swollen stream. Catelyn reined up to let them pass. The banner in the hand of the foremost rider hung sudden and limp, but the guardsmen wore indigo cloaks, and on their shoulders flew the silver eagle of Seaguard. Malisters, Sir Roderick whispered to her. 
as if she had not known. My lady, best pull up your hood. Catelyn made no move. Lord Jason Malister himself rode with them, surrounded by his knights, his son Patrick by his side, and their squires close behind. They were riding for King's Landing and the Hound's Tawny, she knew. For the past week the travellers had been thick as flies upon the King's Road. Knights and free riders, singers with their harps and drums, heavy wagons laden with hops or corn or casks of honey, traders and craftsmen and whores, and all of them moving south. She studied Lord Jason bolding. The last time she had seen him, he had been jesting with her uncle at her wedding feast. The Malisters stood bannermen to the Tullys, and his gifts had been lavish. His brown hair was salted with white now, his face chiseled gaunt by time. Yet the years had not touched his pride. He rode like a man who feared nothing. Catelyn envied him that. She had come to fear so much. As the riders passed, Lord Jason nodded a curt greeting, but it was only a high lord's courtesy to strangers chance met on the road. There was no recognition in those fierce eyes, and his son did not even waste a look. He did not know you, Sir Roderick said after, wandering. He saw a pair of mud-spattered travellers by the side of the road, wet and tired. It would never occur to him to suspect that one of them was the daughter of his liege lord. I think we shall be safe enough at the end, Sir Roderick. It was near dark when they reached it. At the crossroads, north of the great confluence of the Trident. Masha Heddle was fatter and greyer than Catelyn remembered, still chewing her sour leaf, but she gave them only the most cursory of looks, with nary a hint of a ghastly red smile. Two rooms at the top of the stairs, that's all there is,' she said, chewing all the while. "'They're under the bell tower, so you won't be missing meals. Though there's some thinks it's too noisy.' Can't be helped. We're full up. Or as near as makes no matter. It's those rooms or the road. It was those rooms. Low, dusty garrets at the top of a cramped narrow staircase. Leave your boots down here, Marcia told them, after she'd taken their coin. The boy will clean them. I won't have you trekking mud up my stairs. Mind the bell. Those who come late to meals don't eat. There were no smiles, and no mention of sweet cakes. When the supper bell rang, the sound was deafening. Catelyn had changed into dry clothes. She sat by the window, watching rain run down the pane. The glass was milky and full of bubbles, and a wet dusk was falling outside. Catelyn could just make out the muddy crossing where the two great roads met. The crossroads gave her pause. If they turned west from here, it was an easy ride down to River Run. Her father had always given her wise counsel when she needed it most, and she yearned to talk to him, to warn him of the gathering storm. If Winterfell needed to brace for war, how much more so River Run, so much closer to King's Landing, with a par of casterly rock looming to the west like a shadow? If only her father had been stronger, she might have chanced it, but Hoster Tully had been bedridden these past two years, and Catelyn was loath to tax him now.
the eastern road was wilder and more dangerous, climbing through rocky foothills and thick forests into the mountains of the moon, past high passes and deep chasms to the Vale of Erin and the stony fingers beyond. Above the Vale, the airy stood high and impregnable, its towers reaching for the sky. There she would find her sister, and perhaps some of the answers Ned sought. Surely Lysa knew more than she had dared to put in a letter. She might have the very proof that Ned needed to bring the Lannisters to ruin, and if it came to war they would need the Aarons and the Eastern Lords who owed them service. Yet the mountain road was perilous. Shadow cats prowled those passes, rock slides were common, and the mountain clans were lawless brigands, descending from the heights to rub and kill, and melting away like snow whenever the knights rode out from the vale in search of them. Even John Aaron, as great a lord as any the Airy had ever known, had always travelled in strength when he crossed the mountains. Catelyn's only strength was one elderly knight armoured in loyalty. No, she thought, River Run and the Airy would have to wait. Her path ran north to Winterfell, where her sons and her duty were waiting for her. As soon as they were safely past the Neck, she could declare herself to one of Ned's bannermen and send riders racing ahead with orders to mount a watch on the King's Road. The rain obscured the fields beyond the crossroads, but Catelyn saw the land clear enough in her memory. The marketplace was just across the way, and the village a mile further on, half a hundred white cottages surrounding a small stone sept. There would be more now. The summer had been long and peaceful. North of here, the King's Road ran along the green fork of the Trident, through fertile valleys and green woodlands, past thriving towns and stout holdfasts and the castles of the river lords. Catelyn knew them all, the Blackwoods and the Brackens, ever enemies whose quarrels her father was obliged to settle. Lady Went, last of her line, who dwelt with her ghosts in the cavernous vaults of Harrenhal. Irascible Lord Frey, who had outlived seven wives and filled his twin castles with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and bastards and grand-bastards as well. All of them were bannermen to the Tullys, their swords sworn to the service of River Run. Catelyn wondered if that would be enough, if it came to war. Her father was the staunchest man who had ever lived, and she had no doubt that he would call his banners. But would the banners come? The Darys and Rigers and Moutons had sworn oaths to River Run as well, yet they had fought with Rhaegar Targaryen on the Trident, while Lord Frey had arrived with his levies well after the battle was over, leaving some doubt as to which army he had planned to join. Theirs he had assured the victors solemnly in the aftermath, but ever after her father had called him the late Lord Frey. It must not come to war, Catelyn thought fervently. They must not let it. Sir Roderick came for her just as the bell ceased its clangour. We'd best make haste if we hope to eat tonight, my lady. It might be safer if we were not knight and lady until we passed the neck, she told him. 
common travellers attract less notice. Her father and daughter taken to the road on some family business, say. As you say, my lady, Sir Roderick agreed. It was only when she had laughed that he realised what he'd done. The old curses die hard, my, uh, my daughter. He tried to tug on his missing whiskers and sighed with exasperation. Catlin took his arm. Come, father, she said. You'll find that Masha Heddle sets a good table, I think, but try not to praise her. You truly don't want to see her smile. The common room was long and draughty, with a row of huge wooden kegs at one end and a fireplace at the other. A serving boy ran back and forth with skewers of meat while Masha drew beer from the kegs, chewing her sour leaf all the while. The benches were crowded, townsfolk and farmers mingling freely with all manner of travellers. The crossroads made for odd companions. Dyers, with black and purple hands, shared a bench with rivermen reeking of fish. An ironsmith, thick with muscles squeezed in between a wizened old septon, hard-bitten sellswords, and soft, plump merchants swapped news like boon companions. The company included more swords than Catelyn would have liked. Three by the fire wore the red stallion badge of the Brackens, and there was a large party in blue steel ringmail and capes of silvery grey. On their shoulder was another familiar sigil, the twin towers of House Frey. She studied their faces, but they were all too young to have known her. The senior among them would have been no older than Bran when she went north. Sir Roderick found them an entry place on the bench near the kitchen. Across the table, a handsome youth was fingering a wood harp. Seven blessings to you, good folk,' he said as they sat. An empty wine cup stood on the table before him. "'And to you, singer,' Catelyn returned. Sir Roderick called for bread and meat and beer, in a tone that meant now. The singer, a youth of some eighteen years, eyed them boldly and asked where they were going and from whence they had come and what news they had, letting the questions fly as quick as arrows and never pausing for an answer. We left King's Landing a fortnight ago, Catelyn replied, answering the safest of his questions. Oh, that's where I'm bound, the youth said. As she had suspected, he was more interested in telling his own story than hearing theirs. Singers love nothing half so well as the sound of their own voices. The hands tawny means rich lords with fat purses. The last time I came away with more silver than I could carry, or would have, if I hadn't lost it all betting on the King's Slayer to win the day. The gods frown on the gambler, Sir Roderick said sternly. He was of the North and shared the stark views on tournaments. They frowned on me for certain, the singer said. Your cruel gods and the Knight of Flowers all together did me in. No doubt there was a lesson for you, Sir Roderick said. It was. This time, my coin will champion Sir Loris. Sir Roderick tried to tug at whiskers that were not there. But before he could frame a rebuke, the serving boy came scurrying up. He laid trenches of bread before them and filled them with chunks of brown meat off a skewer, dripping with hot juice. Another skewer held tiny onions, fire peppers, and fat mushrooms. 
Sir Roderick set to lustily as the lad ran back to fetch them beer. "'My name is Marillion,' the singer said, plucking a string on his wood harp. "'Doubtless you've heard me play somewhere.' His manner made Catelyn smile. Few wandering singers ever ventured as far north as Winterfell, but she knew his like from her girlhood in Riverrun. "'I fear not,' she told him. He drew a plaintive chord from his wood harp. "'That is your loss,' he said. "'Who was the finest singer you've ever heard?' A liar of Brevos, Sir Roderick answered at once. I'm much better than that old stick, Marillion said. If you have the silver for a song, I'll gladly show you. I might have a copper or two, but I'd sooner toss it down a well than pay for your harling, Sir Roderick grasped. His opinion of singers was well known. Music was a lovely thing for girls, but he could not comprehend why any healthy boy would fill his hand with a harp when he might have had a sword. "'Your grandfather has a sour nature,' Marillion said to Catelyn. "'I meant to do you honour, an homage to your beauty. In truth, I was made to sing for kings and high lords.' "'Oh, I can see that,' Catelyn said. "'Lord Tully is fond of song, I hear. No doubt you've been to River Run.' "'A hundred times,' the singer said airily. "'They keep a chamber for me.' and the young lord is like a brother. Catelyn smiled, wondering what Edmure would think of that. Another singer had once bedded a girl her brother fancied, and he had hated the breed ever since. And Winterfell, she asked him, have you travelled north? Why would I? Marillion asked. It's all blizzards and bearskins up there, and the Starks know no music but the howling of wolves. Distantly she was aware of the door banging open at the far end of the room. "'Innkeep,' a servant's voice called out behind her. "'We have horses that want stabling, and my lord of Lannister requires a room and a hot bath.' "'Oh, God!' Sir Roderick said before Catelyn reached out to silence him, her fingers tightening around his forearm. Masha Heddle was bowing and smiling her hideous red smile. "'I'm sorry, my lord, truly. We're full up, every room.' There were four of them, Catelyn saw. An old man in the black of the night's watch, two servants, and him. Standing there, small and bold as life. "'My men will sleep in your stable, and as for myself, well, I do not require a large room, as you can plainly see.' He flashed a mocking grin. So long as the fire's warm and the straw reasonably free of fleas, I am a happy man. Masha Heddle was beside herself. My lord, there's nothing. It's a tawny. There's no help for it. Oh, oh, oh. Tyrion Lannister pulled a coin from his purse and flicked it up over his head, caught it, tossed it up again. Even across the room where Catelyn sat, the wink of gold was unmistakable. A free rider in a faded blue cloak lurched to his feet. You're welcome to my room, my lord. Now there's a clever man, Lannister said, as he sent the coin spinning across the room. The free rider snatched it from the air. And a nimble one to boot. The dwarf turned back to Masha Heddle. You will be able to manage food, I trust. "'Anything you like, my lord, anything at all,' 
the innkeep promised. And may he choke on it, Catelyn thought. But it was Bran she saw, choking, drowning on his own blood. Lannister glanced at the nearest tables. My men will have whatever you're serving these people. Double portions, we've had a long, hard ride. I'll take a roast fowl, chicken, duck, pigeon, it makes no matter, and send up a flagon of your best wine. A yarin, will you sup with me? Aye, my lord, I will, the black brother replied. The dwarf had not so much as glanced toward the far end of the room, and Catelyn was thinking how grateful she was for the crowded benches between them, when suddenly Marillion bounded to his feet. My lord of Lannister, he called out, I would be pleased to entertain you while you eat. Let me sing you the lay of your father's great victory at King's Landing. Nothing would be more likely to ruin my supper, the dwarf said dryly. His mismatched eyes considered the singer briefly, started to move away, and found Catelyn. He looked at her for a moment, puzzled. She turned her face away, but too late. The dwarf was smiling. Lady Stark, oh, what an unexpected pleasure, he said. I was sorry to miss you at Winterfell. Marillion gaped at her, confusion giving way to chagrin, as Catelyn rose slowly to her feet. She heard Sir Roderick curse. If only the man had lingered at the wall, she thought, if only. Lady Stark, Masha Heddle said thickly. I was still Catelyn Tully the last time I bedded here, she told the innkeeper. She could hear the muttering, feel the eyes upon her. Catelyn glanced around the room, at the faces of the knights and sworn swords, took a deep breath to slow the frantic beating of her heart. Did she dare take the risk? There was no time to think it through. Only the moment and the sound of her own voice ringing in her ears. You in the corner, she said to an older man she had not noticed until now. Is that the black bat of Harrenhal I see embroidered on your surcoat, sir? The man got to his feet. It is, my lady. And his lady went, a true and honest friend to my father, Lord Huster Tolly of Riveron. She is, the man replied stoutly. Sir Roderick rose quietly and loosened his sword in its scabbard. The dwarf was blinking at them, blank-faced, with puzzlement in his mismatched eyes. The red stallion was ever a welcome sight at River Run, she said to the trio by the fire. My father counts Jonas Bracken amongst his oldest and most loyal bannermen. The three men-at-arms exchanged uncertain looks. Our lord is honoured by his trust, one of them said hesitantly. I envy your father all these fine friends, Lannister quipped, but I do not quite see the purpose of this Lady Stark. She ignored him, turning to the large party in blue and grey. They were the heart of the matter. There were more than twenty of them. I know your sigil as well, the Twin Towers of Frey. How fares your good lord, sirs? Their captain rose. Lord Walder is well, my lady. He promises to take a new wife on his ninetieth name day, and has asked your lord father to honour the wedding with his presence.
Tyrion Lannister sniggered. That was when Catelyn knew he was hers. This man came as a guest into my house, and there conspired to murder my son, a boy of seven, she proclaimed to the room at large, pointing. Sir Roderick moved to her side, his sword in hand. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. She did not know what was the more satisfying, the sound of a dozen swords drawn as one, or the look on Tyrion Lannister's face. Sansa Sansa rode to the hands tourney with Septa Mordain and Jane Poole in a litter with curtains of yellow silk so fine she could see right through them. They turned the whole world gold. Beyond the city walls, a hundred pavilions had been raised beside the river, and the common folk came out in the thousands to watch the games. The splendor of it all took Sansa's breath away. The shining armor, the great chargers, caparisoned in silver and gold, the shouts of the crowd, the banners snapping in the wind, and the knights themselves, the knights most of all. It is better than the songs, she whispered, when they found the places that her father had promised her, among the high lords and ladies. Sansa was dressed beautifully that day, in a green gown that brought out the auburn of her hair, and she knew they were looking at her and smiling. They watched the heroes of a hundred songs ride forth, each more fabulous than the last. The seven knights of the King's Guard took the field, all but Jamie Lannister, in scaled armour the colour of milk, their cloaks as white as fresh-fallen snow. Sir Jamie wore the white cloak as well, but beneath it he was shining gold from head to foot, with a lion's head helm and a golden sword. Sir Gregor Clegane, the mountain that rides, thundered past them like an avalanche. Sansa remembered Lord Jan Royce, who had guested at Winterfell two years before. His armour is bronze, thousands and thousands of years old, engraved with magic runes that ward him against harm, she whispered to Jane. Septim Ordain pointed out Lord Jason Malister, in indigo chased with silver, the wings of an eagle on his helm. He had cut down three of Rhaegar's bannermen on the trident. The girls giggled over the warrior priest, Thoris of Myrrh, with his flapping red robes and shaven head, until the scepter told them that he had once scaled the walls of Pike with a flaming sword in hand. Other riders Sansa did not know, hedge knights from the Fingers and High Garden and the Mountains of Dawn, unsung free riders and new-made squires, the younger sons of high lords and the heirs of lesser houses. Younger men, most had done no great deeds as yet, but Sansa and Jane agreed that one day the Seven Kingdoms would resound to the sound of their names. Sir Balon Swan, Lord Bryce Caron of the Marches, Bronze Yon's heir, Sir Andar Royce, and his younger brother, Sir Robar. Their silver steel plate filigreed in bronze with the same ancient runes that warded their father. The twins, Sir Horace and Sir Harbour, whose shields displayed the grape-cluster sigil of the red wines, burgundy on blue. Patrick Malister, Lord Jason's son. Six Frays of the Crossing. 
Sir Jared, Sir Hostine, Sir Danwell, Sir Emmon, Sir Theo, Sir Perwin, sons and grandsons of old Lord Walder Frey, and his bastard son Martin Rivers as well. Jane Poole confessed herself frightened by the look of Jalabar Zoe, an exiled prince from the Summer Isles who wore a cape of green and scarlet feathers over skin as dark as night. But when she saw young Lord Beric Dondarrion, with his hair like red gold and his black shield slashed by lightning, she pronounced herself willing to marry him on the instant. The hound entered the list as well, and so too the king's brother, handsome Lord Renly of Storm's End. Jory, Alan, and Harwin rode for Winterfell on the north. Jory looks a beggar amongst these others, Septimordane sniffed when he appeared. Sansa could only agree. Jory's armour was blue-grey plate without device or ornament, and a thin grey cloak hung from his shoulders like a soiled rag. Yet he acquitted himself well, on horsing Horace Redwine in his first joust, and one of the Freys in his second. In his third match he rode three passes at a free rider named Lothar Brun, whose armour was as drab as his own. Neither man lost his seat, but Brun's lance was steadier and his blows better placed, and the king gave him the victory. Alan Harwin fared less well. Harwin was unhorsed in his first tilt by Sir Merrin of the King's Guard, while Alan fell to Sir Balan Swan. The jousting went on all day and into the dusk, the hooves of the great war-horses pounding down the lists until the field was a ragged wasteland of torn earth. A dozen times Jane and Sansa cried out in unison as riders crashed together, lances exploding into splinters, while the common screamed for their favourites. Jane covered her eyes whenever a man fell, like a frightened little girl, but Sansa was made of sterner stuff. A great lady knew how to behave at tournaments. Even Septimordain noted her composure and nodded in approval. The Kingslayer rode brilliantly. He overthrew Sir Andar Royce and the marcher Lord Bryce Caron as easily as if he were riding at rings, and then took a hard-fought match from white-haired Barristan Selmy, who had won his first two tilts against men thirty and forty years his junior. Sandor Clegane and his immense brother, Sir Gregor the Mountain, seemed unstoppable as well, riding down one foe after the next in ferocious style. The most terrifying moment of the day came during Sir Gregor's second joust, when his lance rode up and struck a young knight from the vale under the gorget with such force that it drove through his throat, killing him instantly. The youth fell not ten feet from where Sansa was seated. The point of Sir Gregor's lance had snapped off in his neck, and his life's blood flowed out in slow pulses, each weaker than the one before. His armour was shiny new, a bright streak of fire ran down his outstretched arm as the steel caught the light. Then the sun went behind a cloud, and it was gone. His cloak was blue, the colour of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons, but as his blood seeped into it, the cloth darkened and the moons turned red one by one. Jane Poole wept so hysterically that Septimordain finally took her off to regain her composure, 
but Sansa sat with her hands folded in her lap, watching with a strange fascination. She had never seen a man die before. She ought to be crying, too, she thought, but the tears would not come. Perhaps she had used up all her tears for Lady and Bran. It would be different if it had been Jory or Sir Rudrick or Father, she told herself. The young knight in the blue cloak was nothing to her, some stranger from the Vale of Aaron, whose name she had forgotten as soon as she heard it. And now the world would forget his name, too, Sansa realized. There would be no song sung for him. That was sad. After they carried off the body, a boy with a spade ran onto the field and shoveled dirt over the spot where he had fallen to cover up the blood. Then the jousts resumed. Sir Balon Swan also fell to Gregor, and Lord Renly to the hound. Renly was on horse so violently that he seemed to fly backward off his charger, legs in the air. His head hit the ground with an audible crack that made the crowd gasp, but it was just the golden antler on his helm. One of the tines had snapped off beneath him. When Lord Renly climbed to his feet, the commons cheered wildly, for King Robert's handsome young brother was a great favourite. He handed the broken tine to his conqueror with a gracious bow. The hound snorted and tossed the broken antler into the crowd, where the commons began to punch and claw over the little bit of gold, until Lord Renly walked out among them and restored the peace. By then, Septor Mordain had returned, alone. Jane had been feeling ill, she explained. She had helped her back to the castle. Sansa had almost forgotten about Jane. Later, a hedge knight, in a checkered cloak, disgraced himself by killing Beric Dondarrion's horse and was declared forfeit. Lord Beric shifted his saddle to a new mount, only to be knocked right off by Thoris of Myr. Sir Aaron Santigar and Lothar Brune tilted thrice without result. Sir Aaron fell afterwards to Lord Jason Malister, and Brune to Jan Royce's younger son, Robar. In the end it came down to four, the Hound and his monstrous brother, Gregor, Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer, and Sir Loras Tyrell, the youth they called the Knight of Flowers. Sir Loras was the youngest son of Mace Tyrell, the Lord of High Garden and Warden of the South. At sixteen he was the youngest rider on the field, yet he had unhorsed three knights of the King's Guard that morning in his first three jousts. Sansa had never seen anyone so beautiful. His plate was intricately fashioned and enameled as a bouquet of a thousand different flowers, and his snow-white stallion was draped in a blanket of red and white roses. After each victory, Sir Loras would remove his helm and ride slowly round the fence, and finally pluck a single white rose from the blanket and toss it to some fair maiden in the crowd. His last match of the day was against the younger Royce. Sir Robar's ancestral runes proved small protection, as Sir Loras split his shield and drove him from his saddle to crash with an awful clangor in the dirt. Robar lay moaning as the victor made his circuit of the field. Finally, they called for a litter and carried him off to his tent, dazed and unmoving. Sansa never saw it. Her eyes were only for Sir Loras. When the white horse stopped in front of her, she thought her heart would burst. 
To the other maidens he had given white roses, but the one he plucked for her was red. Sweet lady, he said, no victory is half so beautiful as you. Sansa took the flower timidly, struck dumb by his gallantry. His hair was a mass of lazy brown curls, his eyes like liquid gold. She inhaled the sweet fragrance of the rose and sat clutching it long after Sir Loras had ridden off. When Sansa finally looked up, a man was standing over her staring. He was short, with a pointed beard and a silver streak in his hair, almost as old as her father. "'You must be one of her daughters,' he said to her. He had grey-green eyes that did not smile when his mouth did. "'You have the Tully look.' "'I am Sansa Stark,' she said, ill at ease. The man wore a heavy cloak with a fur collar, fastened with a silver mockingbird, and he had the effortless manner of a high lord. But she did not know him. "'I have not had the honour, my lord.' Septa Mordain quickly took a hand. Sweet child, this is Lord Patar Baelish of the King's Small Council. Your mother was my queen of beauty once, the man said quietly. His breath smelled of mint. You have her hair. His fingers brushed against her cheek as he stroked one auburn lock. Quite abruptly he turned and walked away. By then the moon was well up and the crowd was tired so the king decreed that the last three matches were to be fought the next morning before the melee. While the commons began their walk home, talking of the day's jousts and the matches to come on the morrow, the court moved to the riverside to begin the feast. Six monstrous huge oryx had been roasting for hours, turning slowly on wooden spits while kitchen boys basted them with butter and herbs until the meat crackled and spit. Tables and benches had been raised outside the pavilions, piled high with sweet grass and strawberries and fresh-baked bread. Sansa and Septimordain were given places of high honour to the left of the raised dais where the king himself sat beside his queen. When Prince Joffrey seated himself to her right, she felt her throat tighten. He had not spoken a word to her since the awful thing had happened, and she had not dared to speak to him. At first she thought she hated him for what they'd done to Lady, but after Sansa had wept her eyes dry, she told herself it had not been Joffrey's doing, not truly. The Queen had done it. She was the one to hate, her and Arya. Nothing bad would have happened except for Arya. She could not hate Joffrey tonight. He was too beautiful to hate. He wore a deep blue doublet studded with a double row of golden lion's heads, and around his brow a slim coronet made of gold and sapphires. His hair was as bright as a metal. Sansa looked at him and trembled, afraid he might ignore her or worse, turn hateful again, and send her weeping from the table. Instead, Joffrey smiled and kissed her hand, handsome and gallant as any prince in the songs, and said, Sir Loras has a keen eye for beauty, sweet lady. He was too kind, she demurred, trying to remain modest and calm, though her heart was singing. Sir Loras is a true knight. Do you think he will win tomorrow, my lord? No, Geoffrey said. My dog will do for him, or perhaps my uncle Jamie. And in a few years, when I'm old enough to enter the lists, 
I shall do for them all. He raised his hand to summon a servant with a flagon of iced summer wine and poured her a cup. She looked anxiously at Scepter Mordain, until Geoffrey leaned over and filled the Scepter's cup as well. So she nodded and thanked him graciously and said not another word. The servants kept their cups filled all night, yet afterwards Sansa could not recall ever tasting the wine. She needed no wine. She was drunk on the magic of that night, giddy with glamour, swept away by beauty she had dreamt of all her life and never dared hope to know. Singers sat before the king's pavilion, filling the dusk with music. A juggler kept a cascade of burning clubs spinning through the air. The king's own fool, the pie-faced simpleton called Moonboy, danced about on stilts, all in motley, making mock of everyone with such deft cruelty that Sansa wondered if he was simple after all. Even Septimondain was helpless before him. When he sang his little song about the high Septon, she laughed so loud she spilled wine on herself. And Joffrey was the soul of courtesy. He talked to Sansa all night, showering her with compliments, making her laugh, sharing little bits of court gossip, explaining Moonboy's japes. Sansa was so captivated that she quite forgot all her courtesies and ignored Septimordain seated to her left. All the while the courses came and went, a thick soup of barley and venison, salads of sweet grass and spinach and plums sprinkled with crushed nuts, snails in honey and garlic. Sansa had never eaten snails before. Joffrey showed her how to get the snail out of the shell and fed her the first sweet morsel himself. Then came trout, fresh from the river, baked in clay. Her prince helped her crack open the hard casing to expose the flaky white flesh within. And when the meat course was brought out, he served to himself, slicing a queen's portion from the joint, smiling as he laid it on her plate. She could see from the way he moved that his right arm was still troubling him, yet he uttered not a word of complaint. Later came sweetbreads and pigeon pie and baked apples fragrant with cinnamon and lemon cakes frosted in sugar. But by then Sansa was so stuffed that she could not manage more than two little lemon cakes, as much as she loved them. She was wondering whether she might attempt a third when the king began to shout. King Robert had grown louder with each course. From time to time Sansa could hear him laughing or roaring a command over the music and the clangor of plates and cutlery, but they were too far away for her to make out his words. Now everyone heard him. No! he thundered in a voice that drowned out all other speech. Sansa was shocked to see the king on his feet, red of face, reeling. He had a goblet of wine in one hand, and he was drunk as a man could be. You do not tell me what to do, woman, he screamed at Queen Cersei. I am king here. Do you understand? I rule here, and if I say that I will fight tomorrow, I will fight. Everyone was staring. Sansa saw Sir Barristan and the king's brother Renly, and the short man who had talked to her so ugly and touched her hair, but no one made a move to interfere. The queen's face was a mask, so bloodless that it might have been sculpted from snow. She rose from the table gathered her skirts around her, and stormed off in silence, servants trailing behind. Jamie Lannister put a hand on the king's shoulder. 
but the king shoved him away hard. Lannister stumbled and fell. The king guffawed. The great knight! I can still knock you in the dirt. Remember that, Kingslayer? He slapped his chest with his jeweled goblet, splashing wine all over his satin tunic. Give me my hammer, and not a man in the realm can stand before me. Jamie Lannister rose and brushed himself off. As you say, Your Grace. His voice was stiff. Lord Renly came forward, smiling. You've spilled your wine, Robert. Let me fetch you a fresh goblet. Sansa started as Joffrey laid a hand on her arm. It grows late, the prince said. He had a queer look in his face, as if he were not seeing her at all. Do you need an escort back to the castle? No, Sansa began. She looked for Septim Ordain, and was startled to find her with her head on the table, snoring soft and ladylike snores. I mean to say, yes, thank you, that would be most kind. I am tired, and the way is so dark, I should be glad for some protection. Joffrey called out, Dog! Sandor Clegane seemed to take form out of the night, so quickly did he appear. He had exchanged his armor for a red woolen tunic with a leather dog's head sewn on the front. The light of the torches made his burned face shine a dull red. Yes, your grace, he said. Take my betrothed back to the castle and see that no harm befalls her, the prince told him brusquely, and without even a word of farewell, Joffrey strode off, leaving her there. Sansa could feel the hound watching her. Did you think Joff was going to take you himself? He laughed. He had a laugh like the snarling of dogs in a pit. Small chance of that. He pulled her unresisting to her feet. Come, you're not the only one who needs sleep. I've drunk too much, and I may need to kill my brother tomorrow. <laughs> he laughed again. Suddenly terrified, Sansa pushed at Septon Mordain's shoulder, hoping to wake her, but she only snored the louder. King Robert had stumbled off, and half the benches were suddenly empty. The feast was over, and the beautiful dream had ended with it. The hound snatched up a torch to light their way. Sansa followed close beside him. The ground was rocky and uneven. The flickering light made it seem to shift and move beneath her. She kept her eyes lowered, watching where she placed her feet. They walked among the pavilions, each with its banner and its armor hung outside, the silence weighing heavier with every step. Sansa could not bear the sight of him. He frightened her so. Yet she had been raised in all the ways of courtesy. A true lady would not notice his face, she told herself. You rode gallantly today, Sir Sandor, she made herself say. Sandor Clegane snarled at her. Spare me your empty little compliments, girl. And your sirs. I'm no knight. I spit on them, and their vows. My brother is a knight. Did you see him ride today? Yes, Sansa whispered, trembling. He was... Gallant, the hound finished. He was mocking her, she realized. No one could withstand him, she managed at last, proud of herself. It was no lie. Sandra Clegane stopped suddenly in the middle of a dark and empty field. She had no choice but to stop beside him. Some scepter trained you well. You're like one of those birds from the Summer Isles, aren't you? 
pretty little talking bird, repeating all the pretty little words they taught you to recite. That's unkind. Sansa could feel her heart fluttering in her chest. You're frightening me. I want to go now. No one could withstand him, the hound rasped. That's truth enough. No one could ever withstand Gregor. That boy today, his second joust, oh, that was a pretty bit of business. You saw that, did you? Fool boy. He had no business riding in this company. No money, no squire, no one to help him with his armour. That gorget wasn't fastened proper. You think Gregor didn't notice that? You think Sir Gregor's lance rode up by chance, do you? Pretty little talking girl, you believe that. You're empty-headed as a bird for true. Gregor's lance goes where Gregor wants it to go. Look at me, look at me. Sandor Clegane put a huge hand on her chin and forced her face up. He squatted in front of her and moved the torch close. There's pretty for you. Take a good long stare. You know you want to. I've watched you turning away all the way down the King's Road. Piss on that. Take your look. His fingers held her jaw as hard as an iron trap. His eyes watched hers, drunken eyes, sullen with anger. She had to look. The right side of his face was gaunt, with sharp cheekbones and a grey eye beneath a heavy brow. His nose was large and hooked, his hair thin, dark. He wore it long and brushed it sideways because no hair grew on the other side of that face. The left side of his face was a ruin. His ear had been burned away. There was nothing left but a hole. His eye was still good, but all around it was a twisted mass of scar, slick black flesh, hard as leather, pocked with craters and fissured by deep cracks that gleamed red and wet when he moved. Down by his jaw, you could see the hint of bone where the flesh had been seared away. Sansa began to cry. He let go of her then and snuffed out the torch in the dirt. No pretty words for that, girl. No little compliment the scepter taught you. When there was no answer, he continued, most of them. They think it was some battle. A siege, a burning tower, an enemy with a torch. One fool asked me if it was dragon's breath. <laughs> His laugh was softer this time, but just as bitter. I'll tell you what it was, girl, he said, in a voice from the night, a shadow leaning so close now that she could smell the sour stench of wine on his breath. I was younger than you. Six, maybe seven. A woodcarver set up shop in a village under my father's keep, and to buy a favour he sent us gifts. The old man made marvellous toys. I don't remember what I got, but it was Gregor's gift I wanted. A wooden knight all painted up, every joint peg separate, and fixed with strings, so you could make him fight. Gregor is five years older than me. A toy was nothing to him. He was already a squire, six feet tall and muscled like an ox. So I took his knight. But there was no joy in it, I tell you. I was scared all the while, and true enough, he found me. There was a brazier in the room. Gregor never said a word. 
just picked me up on his arm and shoved the side of my face down on the burning coals and held me there while I screamed and screamed. You saw how strong he is. Even then, it took three grown men to drag him off me. The Septons preach about the seven hells. What do they know? Only a man who's been burned knows what hell is truly like. My father told everyone my bedding had caught fire, and our maester gave me ointments. Ointments? Gregor got his ointments too. Four years later, they anointed him with the seven oils, and he recited his nightly vows, and Rhaegar Targaryen tapped him on his shoulder and said, Arise, Sir Gregor. The rasping boys trailed off. He squatted silently before her, a hulking black shape, shrouded in the night, hidden from her eyes. Sansa could hear his ragged breathing. She was sad for him, she realized. Somehow the fear had gone away. The silence went on and on, so long that she began to grow afraid once more. But she was afraid for him now, not for herself. She found his massive shoulder with her hand. He was no true knight, she whispered to him. The hound threw back his head and roared. Sansa stumbled back away from him, but he caught her arm. No, he growled her. No, little bird, he was no true knight. The rest of the way into the city, Sandor Clegane said not a word. He led her to where the carts were waiting, told a driver to take them back to the Red Keep, and climbed in after her. They rode in silence through the King's Gate and up torch-lit city streets. He opened the postern door and led her into the castle, his burned face twitching and his eyes brooding, and he was one step behind her as they climbed the tower stairs. He took her safe all the way to the corridor outside her bedchamber. Thank you, my lord, Sansa said meekly. The hound caught her by the arm and leaned close. The things I told you tonight, he said, his voice sounding even rougher than usual. If you ever tell Joffrey, your sister, your father, any of them. I won't, Sansa whispered. I, I promise. It was not enough. If you ever tell anyone, he finished, I'll kill you. Edward, I stood last vigil for him myself, Sir Barristan Selmy said, as they looked down at the body in the back of the cart. He had no one else, a mother in the veil, I'm told. In the pale dawn light, the young knight looked as though he were sleeping. He had not been handsome, but death had smoothed his rough-hewn features, and the silent sisters had dressed him in his best velvet tunic, with a high collar, to cover the ruin the lance had made of his throat. Eddard Stark looked at his face and wondered if it had been for his sake that the boy had died. Slain by a Lannister bannerman, before Ned could speak to him? Could that be mere happenstance? He supposed he would never know. 
Hugh was John Aaron's squire for four years, Selmy went on. The king knighted him before he rode north in John's memory. The lad wanted it desperately, yet I fear he was not ready. Ned had slept badly last night, and he felt tired beyond his years. None of us is ever ready, he said. For knighthood? For death. Gently, Ned covered the boy with his cloak, a blood-stained bit of blue, bordered in crescent moons. When his mother asked why her son was dead, he reflected bitterly. They would tell her they had fought to honour the king's hand, Eddard Stark. This was needless. War should not be a game, Ned turned to the woman beside the cart, shrouded in grey, face hidden, but for her eyes. The silent sisters prepared men for the grave, and it was ill fortune to look on the face of death. Send his armour home to the Vale. The mother will want to have it. It is worth a fair piece of silver, Sir Barristan said. The boy had it forged special for the tawny. Plain work, but good. I do not know if he had finished paying the smith. He paid yesterday, my lord, and he paid dearly, Ned replied. And to the silent sister he said, Send the mother the armour. I will deal with this smith. She bowed her head. Afterwards, Sir Barristan walked with Ned to the king's pavilion. The camp was beginning to stir. Fat sausages sizzled and spit over fire pits, spicing the air with a sense of garlic and pepper. Young squires hurried about on errands as their masters woke, yawning and stretching to meet the day. A serving man with a goose under his arm bent his knee when he caught sight of them. "'My lords,' he muttered as the goose honked and pecked at his fingers. The shields displayed outside each tent heralded its occupant. The silver eagle, a sea guard. Bryce Caron's field of nightingales, a cluster of grapes for the red wines. Brindle boar, red ox, burning tree, white ram, triple spiral— Purple unicorn, dancing maiden, black adder, twin towers, horned owl, and last, the pure white blazons of the king's guard, shining like the dawn. The king means to fight in the melee today, Sir Barristan said, as they were passing Sir Merrin's shield, its paint solid by a deep gash, where Loras Tyrell's lance had scarred the wood as he drove him from his saddle. Yes, Ned said grimly. Jory had woken him last night to bring him that news. Small wonder he had slept so badly. Sir Barristan's look was troubled. They say night's beauties fade at dawn, and the children of wine are oft disowned in the morning light. They say so, Ned agreed, but not of Robert. Other men might reconsider words spoken in drunken bravado, but Robert Baratheon would remember— and remembering would never back down. The king's pavilion was close by the water, and the morning mists of the river had wreathed it in wisps of grey. It was all of golden silk, the largest and grandest structure in the camp. Outside the entrance, Robert's war hammer was displayed beside an immense iron shield blazoned with a crown stag of House Baratheon. Ned had hoped to discover the king still abed 
in a wine-soaked sleep, but luck was not with him. They found Robert drinking beer from a polished horn and roaring his displeasure at two young squires who were trying to buckle him into his armour. "'Your grace,' one was saying, almost in tears, "'it's made too small. It, it won't go.' He fumbled, and the gorget he was trying to fit around Robert's thick neck tumbled to the ground. Seven hells, Robert swore. Do I have to do it myself? Piss on the both of you. Pick it up. Don't just stand there gaping, Lancel. Pick it up. The lad jumped, and the king noticed his company. Look at these oaths, Ned. My wife insisted I take these two to squire for me, and they're worse than useless. Can't even put a man's armour on properly. Squires, they say? I say they're swineherd, dressed up in silk. Ned only needed a glance to understand the difficulty. Uh, the boys are not at fault, he told the king. You're too fat for your armour, Robert. Robert Baratheon took a long swallow of beer, tossed the empty horn onto his sleeping furs, wiped his mouth on the back of his hand, and said darkly, Fat? Fat, is it? Is that how you speak to your king? He let go his laughter, sudden as a storm, Oh, damn you, Ned! <laughs> Why are you always right? The squires smiled nervously until the king turned on them. You, yes, both of you. You heard the hand? The king is too fat for his armour. Go find Sir Aaron Sanigar. Tell him I need the breastplate stretcher. Now, what are you waiting for? The boys tripped over each other in the haste to be quit of the tent. Robert managed to keep a stern face until they were gone, then he dropped back in his chair, shaking with laughter. Sir Barristan Selmy chuckled with him. Even Eddard Stark managed a smile. Always, though, the graver thoughts crept in. He could not help taking note of the two squires. Handsome boys, fair and well-made. One was Sansa's age, with long golden curls, the other perhaps fifteen. Sandy-haired, with a wisp of a moustache, and the emerald-green eyes of the Queen. "'I wish I could be there to see Sanagar's face,' Robert said. "'I hope he'll have the wit to send them to someone else. We ought to keep them running all day.' "'Those boys,' Ned asked him. "'Lannisters?' Robert nodded, wiping tears from his eyes. "'Cousins, sons of Lord Tywin's brother. One of the dead ones.' Or perhaps the live one, not I come to think of it. I don't recall. My wife comes from a very large family, Ned. A very ambitious family, Ned thought. He had nothing against the squires, but it troubled him to see Robert surrounded by the Queen's kin, waking and sleeping. The Lannister appetite for officers and honours seemed to know no bounds. The talk is you and the Queen had angry words last night. The mirth curdled on Robert's face. The woman tried to forbid me to fight in the melee. She's sulking in the castle now, dammer. Your sister would never shame me like that. You never knew Leanna as I did, Robert, Ned told him. You saw her beauty, but not the iron underneath. She would have told you that you have no business in the melee. You too, the King Vron. You're a sour man, Stark. Too long in the north. All the juices have frozen inside you. 
Well, mine are still running. He slapped his chest to prove it. You are the king, Ned reminded him. I sit on the damned iron seat where I must. Does that mean I don't have the same ongers as other men? A bit of wine now and again? A girl squealing in bed? The feel of horse between my legs? Seven hells, Ned. I want to hit someone. Sir Barristan Selmy spoke up. Your grace, he said, it is not seemly that the king should ride into the melee. It would not be a fair contest. Who would dare strike you? Robert seemed honestly taken aback. Why, all of them damn it if they can. And the last man left standing will be you, Ned finished. He saw at once that Selmy had hit the mark. The dangers of the melee were only a savour to Robert, but this touched on his pride. Sir Barristan is right. There's not a man in the Seven Kingdoms who would dare risk your displeasure by hurting you. The king rose to his feet, his face flushed. Are you telling me those prancing cravens will let me win? For a certainty, Ned said, and Sir Barristan Selmy bowed his head in silent accord. For a moment Robert was so angry he could not speak. He strode across the tent, whirled, strode back, his face dark and angry. He snatched up his breastplate from the ground and threw it at Barristan Selmy in a wordless fury. Selmy dodged. Get out, the king said then, coldly. Get out before I kill you. Sir Barristan left quickly. Ned was about to follow when the king called out again. Not you, Ned. Ned turned back. Robert took up his horn again, filled it with beer from a barrel in the corner, and thrust it at Ned. Drink, he said brusquely. I've no thirst. Drink! Your king commands it. Ned took the horn and drank. The beer was black and thick, so strong it stung the eyes. Robert sat down again. Damn you, Ned Stark, you and John Aaron. I loved you both. What have you done to me? You were the one should have been king, you or John. You had the better claim, Your Grace. I told you to drink, not to argue. You made me king. You could at least have the courtesy to listen when I talk, damn you. Look at me, Ned. Look at what kinging has done to me. God's too fat for me armour. How did it ever come to this? Robert, drink and stay quiet. The king is talking. I swear to you, I was never so alive as when I was winning this throne, or so dead as now that I've won it. And seriously, I've John Aaron to thank for her. I had no wish to marry after Leanna was taken from me, but John said the realm needed an heir. Cersei Lannister would be a good match, he told me. She would bind Lord Tywin to me, should Viserys Targaryen ever try to win back his father's throne. The king shook his head. I love that old man, I swear it, but now I think he was a bigger fool than Moon Boy. Oh, Cersei is, is lovely to look at, truly, but cold. Oh, the way she guards her cunt. You'd think she'd had all the gold of Casterly Rock between her legs. Here, give me that beer, if you won't drink it. He took the horn, upended it, belched, wiped his mouth. 
I'm sorry for your girl, Ned, truly. About the wolf, I mean. My son was lying. I'll stake my soul on that. My son... You love your children, don't you? With all my heart, Ned said. Let me tell you a secret, Ned. More than once, I have dreamed of giving up the crown. Take a ship for the free cities with my horse and my hammer. Spend my time warring and whoring. That's what I was made for. The sellsword king. How the singers would love me. You know what stops me? The thought of Joffrey on the throne, with Cersei standing behind him, whispering in his ear. My son. How could I have made a son like that, Ned? He's only a boy, Ned said awkwardly. He had small liking for Prince Joffrey, but he could hear the pain in Robert's voice. Have you forgotten how wild you were at his age? It would not trouble me if the boy was wild, Ned. You don't know him as I do. He sighed and shook his head. Ah, perhaps you're right. John despaired of me often enough. Yet I grew into a good king. Robert looked at Ned and scowled at his silence. You might speak up and agree now, you know. Your grace, Ned began carefully. Robert slapped Ned on the back. Ah, say I'm a better king than Ares and be done with it. You never could lie for love nor honour, Ned Stark. I'm still young, and now that you're here with me, things will be different. We'll make this a reign to sing of, and damn the Lannisters to seven hells. I smell bacon. Who do you think our champion will be today? Have you seen Mace Tyrell's boy? The Knight of Flowers, they call him. Now there's a son any man would be proud to own to. Last tourney, he dumped the Kingslayer on his golden rump. You ought to have seen the look on Cersei's face. <laughs> I laughed till my sides hurt. <laughs> Renly says he has this um, sister, a maid of fourteen. Ooh, lovely as a dawn. They broke their fast on black bread and boiled goose eggs and fish fried up with onions and bacon at a trestle table by the river's edge. The king's melancholy melted away with the morning mist, and before long Robert was eating an orange and waxing fond about a morning at the Erie when they had been boys. I'd given John a barrel of oranges, remember? <laughs> Only the things had gone rotten, so I flung mine across the table and hit Dax right on the nose. <laughs> you remember? Red Ford's Pockface Squire. <laughs> it tossed one back at me, and before John could so much as fart, there were oranges flying across the high hall in every direction. <laughs> he laughed uproariously, and even Ned smiled, remembering. This was a boy he had grown up with, he thought. This was the Robert Baratheon he'd known and loved. If he could prove that the Lannisters were behind the attack on Bran, prove that they had murdered John Aaron, this man would listen. Then Cersei would fall, and the Kingslayer with her, and if Lord Tywin dared to rouse the West, Robert would smash him as he had smashed Rhaegar Targaryen on the Trident. He could see it all so clearly. That breakfast tasted better than anything Eddard Stark had eaten in a long time, and afterward his smile came easier and more often until it was time for the tournament to resume.
Ned walked with the king to the jousting field. He had promised to watch the final tilts with Sansa. Septon was ill today, and his daughter was determined not to miss the end of the jousting. As he saw Robert to his place, he noted that Cersei Lannister had chosen not to appear. The place beside the king was empty. That, too, gave Ned cause to hope. He shouldered his way to where his daughter was seated, and found her as the horns blew for the day's first joust. Sansa was so engrossed, she scarcely seemed to notice his arrival. Sandor Clegane was the first rider to appear. He wore an olive-green cloak over his soot-gray armor. That and his hound's-head helm were his only concessions to ornament. "'A hundred golden dragons on the Kingslayer,' Littlefinger announced loudly, as Jamie Lannister entered the list, riding an elegant blood-bay destrier. The horse wore a blanket of gilded ringmail, and Jamie glittered from head to heel. Even his lance was fashioned from the golden wood of the summer isles. Done, Lord Renly shouted back. The hound has a hungry look about him this morning. Even hungry dogs know better than to bite the hand that feeds them, Littlefinger called dryly. Sandor Clegane dropped his visor with an audible clang and took up his position. Sir Jamie tossed a kiss to some woman in the commons, gently lowered his visor, and rode to the end of the lists. Both men couched their lances. Ned Stark would have loved nothing so much as to see them both lose, but Sansa was watching it all moist-eyed and eager. The hastily erected gallery trembled as the horses broke into a gallop. The hound leaned forward as he rode, his lance rock-steady. But Jamie shifted his seat deftly in the instant before impact. Clegane's point was turned harmlessly against the golden shield with a line blazon, while his own hit square. Wood shattered, and the hound reeled, fighting to keep his seat. Sansa gasped. A ragged cheer went up from the commons. "'I wonder how I ought to spend your money,' Littlefinger called down to Lord Renly. The hound just managed to stay in the saddle. He jerked his mount around hard and rode back to the lists for the second pass. Jamie Lannister tossed down his broken lance and snatched up a fresh one, jesting with his squire. The hound spurred forward at a hard gallop. Lannister rode to meet him. This time, when Jamie shifted his seat, Sandor Clegane shifted with him. Both lances exploded. By the time the splinters had settled, a riderless blood bay was trotting off in search of grass, while Sir Jamie Lannister rolled in the dirt, golden and dented. Sansa said, I knew the hound would win. Littlefinger overheard. If you know who's going to win the second match, speak up now, before Lord Renly plucks me clean, he called to her. Ned smiled. A pity the Imper's not here with us, Lord Renly said. I should have won twice as much. Jamie Lannister was back on his feet, but his ornate lion helmet had been twisted around and dented in his fall, and now he could not get it off. The commons were hooting and pointing, the lords and ladies were trying to stifle their chuckles and failing, and over it all Ned could hear King Robert laughing louder than anyone. Finally they had to lead the Lion of Lannister off to a blacksmith, blind and stumbling.
By then, Sir Gregor Clegane was in position at the head of the lists. He was huge, the biggest man that Eddard Stark had ever seen. Robert Baratheon and his brothers were all big men, as was the Hound, and back at Winterfell there was a simple-minded stable-boy named Hodor, who dwarfed them all. But the knight they called the Mountain That Rides would have towered over Hodor. He was well over seven feet tall, closer to eight, with massive shoulders and arms as thick as the trunks of small trees. His gesture seemed a pony in between his armoured legs, and the lance he carried looked as small as a broom-handle. Unlike his brother, Sir Gregor did not live at court. He was a solitary man, who seldom left his own lands, but for wars and tourneys. He had been with Lord Tywin when King's Landing fell, a new-made knight of seventeen years, even then distinguished by his size and his implacable ferocity. Some said it had been Gregor, who dashed the skull of the infant prince Aegon Targaryen against a wall, and whispered that afterwards he had raped the mother, the Dornish princess Elia, before putting her to the sword. These things were not said in Gregor's hearing. Ned Stark could not recall ever speaking to the man, though Gregor had written with them during Balon Greyjoy's rebellion, one night among thousands. He watched them with disquiet. Ned seldom put much stock in gossip, but the things said of Sir Gregor were more than ominous. He was soon to be married for the third time, and one heard dark whisperings about the deaths of his first two wives. It was said that his keep was a grim place, where servants disappeared unaccountably, and even the dogs were afraid to enter the hall. And there had been a sister, who had died young under queer circumstances, and the fire that had disfigured his brother, and the hunting accident that had killed their father— Gregor had inherited the keep, the gold, and the family estates. His younger brother, Sandor, had left the same day to take service with the Lannisters as a sworn sword, and it was said that he had never returned, not even to visit. When the Knight of Flowers made his entrance, a murmur ran through the crowd, and he heard Sansa's fervent whisper, "'Oh, he's so beautiful!' Sir Loras Tyrell was slender as a reed, dressed in a suit of fabulous silver armour, polished to a blinding sheen, and filigreed with twining black vines and tiny blue forget-me-nots. The commons realised in the same instant as Ned that the blue of the flowers came from sapphires. A gasp went up from a thousand throats. Across the boy's shoulders his cloak hung heavy, it was woven of forget-me-nots, real ones, hundreds of fresh blooms sewn into a heavy woolen cape. His courser was as slim as her rider, a beautiful grey mare, built for speed. Sir Gregor's huge stallion trumpeted as he caught her scent. The boy from Highgarden did something with his legs, and his horse pranced sideways, nimble as a dancer. Sansa clutched at his arm. Father... Don't let Sir Gregor hurt him, she said. Ned saw she was wearing the rose that Sir Loras had given her yesterday. Jory had told him about that as well. These are tawny lances, he told his daughter. They make them to splinter on impact, so no one is hurt. 
Yet he remembered the dead boy in the cart, with his cloak of crescent moons, and the words were raw in his throat. Sir Gregor was having trouble controlling his horse. The stallion was screaming and pawing the ground, shaking his head. The mountain kicked at the animal savagely with an armoured boot. The horse reared and almost threw him. The Knight of Flowers saluted the king, rode to the far end of the list, and couched his lance ready. Sir Gregor brought his animal to the line, fighting with the reins, and suddenly it began. The mountain stallion broke into a hard gallop, plunging forward wildly, while the mare charged as smooth as a flow of silk. Sir Gregor wrenched his shield into position, juggling with his lance, and all the while fought to hold his unruly mount on a straight line, and suddenly Loras Tyrell was on him, placing the point of his lance just there, and in an eye-blink the mountain was falling. He was so huge that he took his horse down with him in a tangle of steel and flesh. Ned heard applause, cheers, whistles, shocked gasps, excited muttering, and over it all the rasping, raucous laughter of the hound. The knight of flowers reined up at the end of the list. His lance was not even broken. His sapphires winked in the sun as he raised his visor, smiling. The commons went mad for him. In the middle of the field, Sir Gregor Clegane disentangled himself and came boiling to his feet. He wrenched off his helm and slammed it down onto the ground. His face was dark with fury, and his hair fell down into his eyes. "'My sword!' he shouted to his squire, and the boy ran it out to him. By then his stallion was back on his feet as well. Gregor Clegane killed the horse with a single blow of such ferocity that it half-severed the animal's neck. Cheers turned to shrieks in a heartbeat. The stallion went down to its knees, screaming as it died. By then, Gregor was striding down the lists towards the lowest Tyrell, his bloody sword clutched in his fist. Stop him! Ned shouted, but his words were lost in the roar. Everyone else was yelling as well, and Sansa was crying. It all happened so fast. The Knight of Flowers was shouting for his own sword as Sir Gregor knocked his squire aside and made a grab for the reins of his horse. The mare scented blood and reared. Loras Tyrell kept his seat, but barely. Sir Gregor swung his sword, a savage two-handed blow that took the boy in the chest and knocked him from his saddle. The courser dashed away in panic as Sir Loras lay stunned in the dirt. But as Gregor lifted his sword for the killing blow, a rasping voice warned, Leave him be! And a still-clad hand wrenched him away from the boy. The mountain pivoted in wordless fury, swinging his longsword in a killing arc with all his massive strength behind it, but the hound caught the blow and turned it. And for what seemed an eternity, the two brothers stood hammering at each other as a dazed Loras Tyrell was helped to safety. Thrice Ned saw Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the hound's head helmet, yet not once did Sandor send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. It was the king's voice that put an end to it. The king's voice and twenty swords. John Aaron had told them that a commander needs a good battlefield voice, and Robert had proved the truth of that on the trident. 
He used that voice now. Stop this madness, he boomed. In the name of your king! The hound went to one knee. Sir Gregor's blow cut air, and at last he came to his senses. He dropped his sword and glared at Robert, surrounded by his king's guard and a dozen other knights and guardsmen. Wordlessly, he turned and strode off, shoving past Barristan Selmy. Let him go, Robert said, and as quickly as that, it was over. Is the hound the champion now? Sansa asked Ned. No, he told her, there will be one final joust between the hound and the knight of flowers. But Sansa had the right of it after all. A few moments later, Sir Loras Tyrell walked back onto the field in a simple linen doublet and said to Sandor Clegane, I owe you my life. The day is yours, sir. I'm no sir, the hound replied, but he took the victory and the champion's purse, and for perhaps the first time in his life, the love of the commons. They cheered him as he left the lists to return to his pavilion. As Ned walked with Sansa to the archery field, Littlefinger and Lord Renly and some of the others fell in with them. Tyrell had to know the mare was in heat, Littlefinger was saying. I swear the boy planned the whole thing. Gregor has always favoured huge, ill-tempered stallions with more spirit than sense. The notion seemed to amuse him. It did not amuse Sir Barristan Selmy. There is small honour in tricks, the old man said stiffly. Small honour and twenty thousand golds, Lord Renly smiled. That afternoon, a boy named Anguy, an unherited commoner from the Dornish marches, won the archery competition, outshooting Sir Balon Swan and Jalabar Zoe at a hundred paces after all the other bowmen had been eliminated at the shorter distances. Ned sent Alan to see him out and offer him a position with the hands guard, but the boy was flush with wine and victory and riches undreamed of, and he refused. The melee went on for three hours. Nearly forty men took part. Free riders and hedge knights, new-made squires in search of a reputation, they fought with blunted weapons in a chaos of mud and blood, small troops fighting together and then turning on each other as alliances formed and fractured, until only one man was left standing. The victor was the Red Priest, Thoris of Myrrh, a madman who shaved his head and fought with a flaming sword. He had won melees before. The fire sword frightened the mounts of the other riders, and nothing frightened Thoris. The final tally was three broken limbs, a shattered collarbone, a dozen smashed fingers, two horses that had to be put down, and more cuts, sprains, and bruises than anyone cared to count. Ned was desperately pleased that Robert had not taken part. That night, at the feast, Eddard Stark was more hopeful than he had been in a great while. Robert was in a high good humour, the Lannisters were nowhere to be seen, and even his daughters were behaving. Jory brought Arya down to join them, and Sansa spoke to her sister pleasantly. The tournament was magnificent, she sighed. You should have come. 
How was your dancing? I'm sore all over, Aria reported happily, proudly displaying a huge purple bruise on her leg. You must be a terrible dancer, Sansa said doubtfully. Later, while Sansa was off listening to a troupe of singers perform the complex round of interwoven ballads called The Dance of the Dragons, Ned inspected the bruise himself. I hope Pharrell is not being too hard on you, he said. Arya stood on one leg. She was getting much better at that of late. Sirio says that every hurt is a lesson, and every lesson makes you better. Ned frowned. The man, Sirio Pharrell, had come with an excellent reputation, and his flamboyant, bravassi style was well suited to Arya's slender blade, yet still... A few days ago, she had been wandering round with a swatch of black silk tied over her eyes. Sirio was teaching her to see with her ears and her nose and her skin, she told him. Before that, he had her doing spins and backflips. Aria, are you certain you want to persist in this? She nodded. Tomorrow, we're going to catch cats. Cats? Ned sighed. Perhaps it was a mistake to hire this bravassi. If you like, I will ask Jory to take over your lessons, or I might have a quiet word with Sir Barriston. He was the finest sword in the Seven Kingdoms in his youth. I don't want them, Arya said. I want Syria. Ned ran his fingers through his hair. Any decent master at arms could give Arya the rudiments of slash and parry without this nonsense of blindfolds, cartwheels, and hopping around on one leg but he knew his youngest daughter well enough to know there was no arguing with that stubborn jut of jaw. As you wish, he said. Surely she would grow tired of this soon. Try to be careful. I will, she promised solemnly, as she hopped smoothly from a right leg to a left. Much later, after he'd taken the girls back through the city and seen them both safe in bed, Sansa with her dreams and Arya with her bruises, Ned ascended to his own chamber atop the Tower of the Hand. The day had been warm, and the room was close and stuffy. Ned went to the window and unfastened the heavy shutters to let in the cool night air. Across the great yard he noticed the flickering glow of candlelight from Littlefinger's windows. The hour was well past midnight. Down by the river the rebels were only now beginning to dwindle and die. He took out the dagger— and studied it. Littlefinger's blade, won by Tyrion Lannister in a tawny wager. Sent to slay Bran in his sleep? Why? Why would the dwarf want Bran dead? Why would anyone want Bran dead? The dagger, Bran's fall, all of it was linked somehow to the murder of John Aaron. He could feel it in his gut, but the truth of John's death remained as clouded to him as when he had started. Lord Stannis had not returned to King's Landing for the tourney. Lysa Aaron held her silence behind the high walls of the Eyrie. The squire was dead, and Jory was still searching the whorehouses. What did he have but Robert's bastard? That the armorous sullen apprentice was the king's son, Ned had no doubt. The Baratheon look was stamped on his face, in his jaw, his eyes, that black hair— Renly was too young to have fathered a boy of that age, Stannis, too cold and proud in his honour. Gendry had to be Robert's. Yet knowing all that, 
What had he learned? The king had other base-born children scattered throughout the Seven Kingdoms. He had openly acknowledged one of his bastards, a boy of Bran's age, whose mother was high-born. The lad was being fostered by Lord Rennis Castellan at Storm's End. Ned remembered Robert's first child as well, a daughter, born in the Vale when Robert was scarcely more than a boy himself. A sweet little girl. The young lord of Storm's End had doted on her. He used to make daily visits to play with the babe long after he'd lost interest in the mother. Ned was often dragged along for company, whether he willed it or not. The girl would be seventeen or eighteen now, he realized, older than Robert had been when he fathered her. <laughs> Strange thought. Cersei could not have been pleased by her lord husband's by-blows, yet in the end it mattered little whether the king had one bastard or a hundred. Law and custom gave the base-born few rights. Gendry, the girl in the Vale, the boy at Storm's End, none of them could threaten Robert's true-born children. His musings were ended by a soft rap on his door. "'A man to see you, my lord,' Harbin called. "'He will not give his name.' "'Send him in,' Ned said, wondering. The visitor was a stout man in cracked, mud-caked boots and a heavy brown robe of the coarsest rough spot, his features hidden by a cowl, his hands drawn up in voluminous sleeves. "'Who are you?' Ned asked. "'A friend,' the cowl man said in a strange, low voice. "'We must speak alone, Lord Stark.' Curiosity was stronger than caution. "'Harwin, leave us,' he commanded. Not until they were alone behind closed doors did the visitor draw back his cowl. "'Lord Varys,' Ned said in astonishment. "'Lord Stark,' Varys said politely, seating himself. I wonder if I might trouble you for a drink. Ned filled two cups with summer wine and handed one to Varus. I might have passed within a foot of you and never recognized you, he said incredulous. He had never seen the eunuch dress in anything but silk and velvet and the richest damasks, and this man smelled of sweat instead of lilacs. That was my dearest hope, Varus said. It would not do if certain people learned that we had spoken in private. The Queen watches you closely. His wine is very choice, thank you. How did you get past my other guards? Ned said. Porther and Kane had been posted outside the tower, and Alan on the stairs. The Red Keep has ways known only to ghosts and spiders. Vary smiled apologetically. I, I will not keep you long, my lord. There are things you must know. You are the King's hand, and the King is a fool. The eunuch's clawing turns were gone. Now his voice was thin and sharp as a whip. Your friend, I know, yet a fool, nonetheless, and doomed, unless you save him. Today was a near thing. They had hoped to kill him during the melee. For a moment Ned was speechless with shock. Who? Varys sipped his wine. If I truly need to tell you that, you are a bigger fool than Robert, and I am on the wrong side. The Lannisters? Ned said the Queen? No, I will not believe that. Not even of Cersei. She asked him not to fight. She forbade him to fight. In front of his brother, his knights, and half the court. Tell me truly, 
"'Do you know any surer way to force King Robert into the melee?' I asked you. Ned had the sick feeling in his gut. The eunuch had hit upon a truth. Tell Robert Baratheon he could not, should not, or must not do a thing, and it was as good as done. Even if he'd fought, who would have dared to strike the king? Varys shrugged. There were forty riders in the melee. The Lannisters have many friends. Amidst all that chaos, with horses screaming and bones breaking and forests of myrrh waving that absurd fire sword of his, who could name it murder if some chance blow failed his grace? He went to the flagon and refilled his cup. After the deed was done, the slayer would be beside himself with grief. I can almost hear him weeping, so sad. Yet no doubt the gracious and compassionate widow would take pity, lift the poor unfortunate to his feet, and bless him with a gentle kiss of forgiveness. Good King Joffrey would have no choice but to pardon him. The eunuch stroked his cheek, or perhaps Cersei would let Sir Ilian strike off his head. Less risk for the Lannisters that way, though quite an unpleasant surprise for their little friend. Ned felt his anger rise. You knew of this plot, and you did nothing. I command whisperers, not warriors. You might have come to me earlier. Oh, yes, I confess it. And you would have rushed straight to the king, yes? And when Robert heard of his peril, what would he have done, I wonder? Ned considered that. He would have damned them all, and fought anyway, to show he did not fear them. Varys spread his hands. I will make another confession, Lord Eddard. I was curious to see what you would do. Why not come to me, you ask, and I must answer why? Because I did not trust you, my lord. You did not trust me? Ned was frankly astonished. The Red Keep shelters two sorts of people, Lord Eddard, Varys said. Those who are loyal to the realm— and those who are loyal only to themselves. Until this morning, I could not say which you might be. So I waited to see, and now I know for a certainty. He smiled, a plump, tight little smile, and for a moment his private face and public mask were one. I begin to comprehend why the Queen fears you so much. Oh, yes, I do. You are the one she ought to fear, Ned said. No, I am what I am. The king makes use of me, but it shames him. A most puissant warrior is our Robert, and such a manly man has little love for sneaks and spies and eunuchs. If a day should come when Cersei whispers, Kill that man, Iliad Payne will sneak off my head in a twinkling. And who will mourn poor Varius then? North or south, they sing no songs for spiders. He reached out and touched Ned with a soft hand. But you, Lord Stark, I think no, I know. He would not kill you, not even for his queen. And there may lie our salvation. It was all too much. For a moment, Eddard Stark wanted nothing so much as to return to Winterfell, to the clean simplicity of the North where the enemies were winter and the wildlings beyond the wall. 
Surely Robert has other loyal friends, he protested. His brothers, his... Wife, Varys finished, with a smile that cut. His brothers hate the Lannisters, true enough, but hating the Queen and loving the King are not quite the same thing, are they? Sir Barristan loves his honour, Grand Maester Pycelle loves his office, and Littlefinger loves Littlefinger. The King's Guard, a paper shield, the eunuch said, Try not to look so shocked, Lord Stark. Jamie Lannister is himself a sworn brother of the White Swords, and we all know what his oath is worth. The days when men like Ryam Redwine and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight wore the white cloak are gone to dust and song. Of these seven, only Sir Barristan Selmy is made of the true steel, and Selmy is old. Sir Boris and Sir Merrin are the Queen's creatures to the bone, and I have deep suspicions of the others. No, my lord, when the swords come out in earnest, you will be the only true friend Robert Baratheon will have. Robert must be told, Ned said. If what you say is true, if even a part of it is true, the King must hear it for himself. And what proof shall we lay before him? My words against theirs, my little birds against the queen and the kingslayer, against his brothers and the council, against the wardens of east and west, against all the might of castly rock. Pray send for Sir Ilian directly. It will save us all some time. I know where that road ends. Yet if what you say is true, they will only bide their time and make another attempt. Oh, indeed they will, said Varius, and sooner rather than later, I do fear. You are making the most anxious, Lord Eddard, but my little birds will be listening, and together we may be able to forestall them, you and I. He rose and pulled up his cowl, so his face was hidden once more. Thank you for the wine. We will speak again. When you see me next at council, be certain to treat me with your accustomed contempt. You should not find that difficult. He was at the door when Ned called, Varius, the eunuch turned back. How did John Aaron die? I wondered when you would get round to that. Tell me. The tears of life, they call it, a rare and costly thing. "'clear and sweet as water, and it leaves no trace. "'I begged Lord Aaron to use a taster. "'In this very room I begged him, but he would not hear of it. "'Only one who was less than a man would even think of such a thing,' he told me. "'Ned had to know the rest. "'Who gave him the poison? "'Some dear sweet friend who often shared meat and mead with him, no doubt. "'Ah, but which one?' There were many such. Lord Aaron was a kindly, trusting man. The eunuch sighed. There was one boy. All he was, he owed John Aaron. But when the widow fled to the area with her household, he stayed in King's Landing and prospered. It always gladdens my heart to see the young rise in the world. The whip was in his voice again. Every word a stroke. 
He must have caught a gallant figure in the tawny, him in his bright new armour with those crescent moons on his cloak. A pity he died so untimely, before you could talk to him. Ned felt half-poisoned himself. The squire, he said. Sir Hugh. Wheels within wheels within wheels. Ned's head was pounding. Why? Why now? John Aaron had been hand for fourteen years. What was he doing that they had to kill him? Asking questions, Vary said, slipping out of the door. Tyrion As he stood in the pre-dawn chill watching Chigan butcher his horse, Tyrion Lannister chalked up one more debt owed the Starks. Steam rose from inside the carcass when the squat sellsword opened the belly with his skinning knife. His hands moved deftly, with never a wasted cut. The work had to be done quickly before the stink of blood brought the shadowcats down from the heights. None of us will go hungry tonight, Bronn said. He was near a shadow himself, bone-thin and bone-hard, with black eyes and black hair and a stubble of beard. Some of us may, Tyrion told him. I am not fond of eating horse, particularly my horse. Meat is meat, Bronn said with a shrug. A Dothraki like horse more than beef or pork. Do take me for a Dothraki, Tyrion asked sourly. The Dothraki ate horse. In truth, they also left deformed children out for the feral dogs who ran behind their calisars. Dothraki customs had scant appeal for him. Chigan sliced a thin strip of bloody meat off the carcass and held it up for inspection. Want a taste, dwarf? My brother Jamie gave me that mare for my twenty-third name day, Tyrion said in a flat voice. Thank him for us, then. If you ever see him again, Chigan grinned, showing yellow teeth, and swallowed the raw meat in two bites. Tastes well bred. Better if you fry it up with onions, Bronn put in. Wordlessly, Tyrion limped away. The cold had settled deep in his bones, and his legs were so sore he could scarcely walk. Perhaps his dead mare was a lucky one. He had hours more riding ahead of him followed by a few mouthfuls of food and a short, cold sleep on hard ground, and then another night of the same and another and another, and the guards only knew how it would end. Damn her, he muttered as he struggled up the road to rejoin his captors, remembering. Damn her and all the Starks. The memory was still bitter. One moment he'd been ordering supper, and an eye-blink later he was facing a room of armed men, with Jeek reaching for his sword, and the fat innkeep shrieking, No swords not here, please, my lords! Tyrion wrenched down Jeek's arm hurriedly, before he got them both hacked to pieces. Where are your courtesies, Jeek? Our good hostess said no swords. Do as she asks. He forced a smile that must have looked as queasy as it felt. You're making a sad mistake, Lady Stark. I had no part... In any attack on your son, on my honour. Lannister honour, was all she said. She held up her hands for all the room to see. His dagger left these scars, the blade he sent to open my son's throat. 
Tyrion felt the anger all around him. Sick and smoky, fed by the deep cuts in the Stark woman's hands. Kill him! hissed some drunken slattern from the back, and other voices took up the call. Faster than he would have believed, strange as all. Friendly enough only a moment ago, and yet now they cried for his blood like hounds on a trail. Tyrion spoke up loudly, trying to keep the quaver from his voice. If Lady Stark believes I have some crime to answer for, I will go with her and answer for it. It was the only possible course. Trying to cut their way out of this was a sure invitation to an early grave. A good dozen swords had responded to this dark woman's plea for help. The Harrenhal man, the three Brackens, a pair of unsavory cell swords, who looked as though they'd kill him as soon as spit, and some fool field hands who doubtless had no idea what they were doing. Against that, what did Tyrion have? A dagger at his belt, and two men. Jick swung a fair enough sword, but Morak scarcely counted. He was part groom, part cook, part body servant, and no soldier. As for Yorin, whatever his feelings might have been, the Black Brothers were sworn to take no part in the quarrels of the realm. Yorin would do nothing. And, indeed, the Black Brothers stepped aside silently when the old knight, by Catelyn Stark's side, said, "'Take their weapons,' and the cell-sword bronze stepped forward to pull the sword from Jick's fingers and relieve them all of their daggers. "'Good,' the old man said, as the tension in the common room ebbed palpably. "'Excellent!' Tyrion recognized the gruff voice, Winterfell's master-at-arm shorn of his whiskers. Scarlet-tinged spit flew from the fat innkeeper's mouth as she begged of Catelyn Stark, "'Don't kill him here!' "'Don't kill him anywhere,' Tyrion urged. "'Take him somewhere else. No blood here, my lady. I want no high lordling's quarrels.' "'We are taking him back to Winterfell,' she said. And Tyrion thought, "'Well, perhaps.' By then, he had a moment to glance over the room and get a better idea of the situation. He was not altogether displeased by what he saw. Oh, the Stark woman had been clever, no doubt of that.' Force them to make a public affirmation of the oath sworn her father by the lords they served, and then call on them for succor, and her, a woman, yes, that was sweet. Yet her success was not as complete as she might have liked. There were close to fifty in the common room, by his rough count. Catelyn Stark's plea had roused a bare dozen. The others looked confused, or frightened, or sullen. Only two of the phrase had stirred, Tyrion noted, and they sat back down quick enough when their captain failed to move. He might have smiled if he'd dared. Winterfell it is, then, he said instead. That was a long ride, as he could well attest, having just ridden it the other way. So many things could happen along the way. My father will wonder what has become of me, he added, catching the eye of the swordsman who'd offered to yield up his room. He'll pay a handsome reward to any man who brings him word of what happened here today. Lord Tywin would do no such thing, of course, but Tyrion would make up for it if he won free. Sir Roderick glanced at his lady, his look worried, as well it might be. 
"'His men come with him,' the old knight announced, "'and will thank the rest of you to stay quiet about what you've seen here.' It was all Tyrion could do not to laugh. "'Quiet? The old fool. Unless he took the whole in, the word would begin to spread the instant they were gone. The free rider with a gold coin in his pocket would fly to Castle Rock like an arrow. If not him, then someone else. Yorin would carry the story south. That fool singer might make a lay of it. The phrase would report back to their lord, and the guards only knew what he might do. Lord Walder Frey might be sworn to River Run, but he was a, a cautious man who had lived a long time by making certain he was always on the winning side. At the very least he would send his birds winging south to King's Landing, and he might well dare more than that. Catelyn Stark wasted no time. We must ride at once. We want fresh mounts and provisions for the road. You men know that you have the eternal gratitude of House Stark. If any of you choose to help us guard our captives and get them safe to Winterfell, I promise you shall be well rewarded. That was all it took. The fools came rushing forward. Tyrion studied their faces. They would indeed be well rewarded, he vowed himself, but perhaps not quite as they imagined. Yet even as they were bundling him outside, saddling the horses in the rain, and tying his hands with a length of coarse rope, Tyrion Lannister was not truly afraid. They would never get him to Winterfell. He would have given odds on that. Riders would be after them within the day. Birds would take wing. And surely one of the river lords would want to curry favour with his father enough to take a hand. Tyrion was congratulating himself on his subtlety when someone pulled a hood down over his eyes and lifted him onto a saddle. They set out through the rain at a hard gallop, and before long Tyrion's thighs were cramped and aching and his butt throbbed with pain. Even when they were safely away from the inn, and Catelyn Stark slowed them to a trot, it was a miserable, pounding journey over rough ground made worse by his blindness. Every twist and turn put him in danger of falling off his horse. The hood muffled sound so he could not make out what was being said around him, and the rain soaked through the cloth and made it cling to his face until even breathing was a struggle. The rope chafed his wrists raw and seemed to grow tighter as the night wore on. I was about to settle down to a warm fire and a roast fowl, and that wretched singer had to open his mouth, he thought mournfully. The wretched singer had come along with them. There's a great song to be made from this, and I'm the one to make it, he told Catelyn Stark when he announced his intention of riding with them to see how the splendid adventure turned out. Tyrion wondered whether the boy would think the adventure quite so splendid once the Lannister riders caught up with them. The rain had finally stopped, and dawn light was seeping through the wet cloth over his eyes when Catelyn Stark gave the command to dismount. Rough hands pulled him down from his horse, untied his wrists, and yanked the hood off his head. When he saw the narrow, stony road, the foothills rising high and wild all around them, and the jagged, snow-capped peaks on the distant horizon, all the hope went out of him in a rush. "'This is the eye road,' he gasped, looking at Lady Stark with accusation. "'The eastern road. You said we were riding for Winterfell.' 
Catelyn Stark favoured him with the faintest of smiles. Often and loudly, she agreed. No doubt your friends will ride that way when they come after us. I wish them good speed. Even now, long days after, the memory filled him with a bitter rage. All his life, Tyrion had prided himself on his cunning, the only gifts the guards had seen fit to give him, and yet this seven-times-damned she-wolf, Catelyn Stark, had outwitted him at every turn. The knowledge was more galling than the bare fact of his abduction. They stopped only as long as it took to feed and water the horses, and then they were off again. This time Tyrion was spared the hood. After the second night they no longer bound his hands, and once they had gained the heights they scarcely bothered to guard him at all. It seemed they did not fear his escape, and why should they? Up here the land was harsh and wild, and the high road little more than a stony track. If he did run, how far could he hope to go, alone and without provisions? The shadow cats would make a morsel of him, and the clans that dwelt in the mountain fastnesses were brigands and murderers who bowed to no law but the sword. Yet still the Stark woman drove them forward relentlessly. He knew where they were bound. He had known it since the moment they pulled off his hood. These mountains were the domain of House Aaron, and the late Hand's widow was a Tully, Catelyn Stark's sister and no friend to the Lannisters. Tyrion had known the Lady Lysa slightly during her years at King's Landing, and did not look forward to renewing the acquaintance. His captors were clustered around a stream a short ways down the high road. The horses had drunk their fill of the icy cold water and were grazing on clumps of brown grass that grew from clefts in the rock. Jick and Morrick huddled close, sullen and miserable. Mohor stood over them, leaning on his spear and wearing a round iron cap that made him look as if he had a bowl on his head. Nearby, Marillion the singer, sat oiling his wood harp, complaining of what the damp was doing to his strings. "'We must have some rest, my lady,' the hedge knight, Sir Willis Wode, was saying to Catelyn Stark as Tyrion approached. He was Lady Wentzman, stiff-necked and stolid, and the first to rise to aid Catelyn Stark back at the inn. Uh, "'Sir Willis speaks true, my lady,' Sir Roderick said. "'This is the third horse we have lost.' We will lose more than horses if we're overtaken by the Lannisters, she reminded them. Her face was wind-burnt and gaunt, but it lost none of its determination. Small chance of that here, Tyrion put in. The lady did not ask your views, dwarf, snapped Curly Cat, a great fat oath with short-cropped hair and a pig's face. He was one of the Brackens, a man-at-arms in the service of Lord Jonas. Tyrion had made a special effort to learn all their names so that he might thank them later for their tender treatment of him. A Lannister always pays his debts. Curlicket would learn that some day, as would his friends, Laris and Mohar, and the good Sir Willis, and the sellswords Bronn and Chigan. He planned an especially sharp lesson for Marillion. Him of the wood harp and the sweet tenor voice, who was struggling so manfully to rhyme imp with gimp and limp, so he could make a song of this outrage. 
Let him speak, Lady Stark commanded. Tyrion Lannister seated himself on a rock. By now our pursuit is likely racing across the neck, chasing your lie up the king's road, assuming there is a pursuit, which is by no means certain. Oh, no doubt the word has reached my father, but my father does not love me overmuch, and I am not at all sure that he will bother to bestir himself. It was only half a lie. Lord Tywin Lannister cared not a fig for his deformed son, but he tolerated no slights on the honour of his house. This is a cruel landlady, Stark. You'll find no succour until you reach the Vale, and each mount you lose burdens the others all the more. Worse, you risk losing me. I'm small and not strong, and if I die, then what's the point? That was no lie at all. Tyrion did not know how much longer he could endure this pace. It might be said that your death is the point, Lannister, Catelyn Stark replied. I think not, Tyrion said. If you wanted me dead, you had only to say the word, and one of these staunch friends of yours would gladly have given me a red smile. He looked at Curlicket, but the man was too dim to taste the mockery. The Starks do not murder men in their beds. Nor do I, he said. I tell you again, I had no part in the attempt to kill your son. The assassin was armed with your dagger. Tyrion felt the heat rise in him. It was not my dagger, he insisted. How many times must I swear to that? Lady Stark, whatever you may believe of me, I am not a stupid man. Only a fool would arm a common footpad with his own blade. Just for a moment, he thought he saw a flicker of doubt in her eyes. But what she said was, Why would Patar lie to me? Why does a bear shit in the woods? he demanded. Because it is his nature. Lying comes as easily as breathing to a man like Littlefinger. You ought to know that, eh? you of all people. She took a step toward him, her face tight. And what does that mean, Lannister? Tyrion cocked his head. Why, every man at court has heard him tell how he took your maiden head, my lady. That is a lie, Catelyn Stark said. A wicked little imp, Marillion said, shocked. Curlicat drew his dirk, a vicious piece of black iron. At your word, my lady, I'll touch his lying tongue at your feet. His pig eyes were wet with excitement at the prospect. Catelyn Stark stared at Tyrion with a coldness on her face such as he had never seen. Patire Baelish loved me once. He was only a boy. His passion was a tragedy for all of us, but it was real and pure and nothing to be made mock of. He wanted my hand. That is the truth of the matter. You are truly an evil man, Lannister. And you are truly a fool, Lady Stark. Littlefinger has never loved anyone but Littlefinger. And I promise you that it is not your hand that he boasts of. It's those ripe breasts of yours, and that sweet mouth, and the heat between your legs. Curlicket grabbed a handful of hair and yanked his head back in a hard jerk, Bearing his throat, Tyrion felt the cold kiss of steel beneath his chin. Shall I bleed him, my lady? Kill me, 
and the truth dies with me, Tyrion gasped. Let him talk, Catelyn Stark commanded. Curlicat let go of Tyrion's hair, reluctantly. Tyrion took a deep breath. How did Littlefinger tell you I came by this dagger of his? Answer me that. You won it from him in a wager during the tourney on Prince Joffrey's name day. When my brother Jamie was on horse by the Knight of Flowers. That was his story, no? It was, she admitted. A line creased her brow. Riders! The shriek came from the wind-carved ridge above them. Sir Roderick had sent Laris scrambling up the rock face to watch the road while they took their rest. For a long second, no one moved. Catelyn Stark was the first to react. Sir Roderick, Sir Willis, to horse, she shouted. Get the other mounts behind us. Mohor, guard the prisoners. Arm us! Tyrion sprang to his feet and seized her by the arm. You will need every sword! She knew he was right. Tyrion could see it. The mountain clans cared nothing for the enmities of the great houses. They would slaughter Stark and Lannister with equal fervor, as they slaughtered each other. They might spare Catelyn herself. She was still young enough to bear sons. Still, she hesitated. I hear them, Sir Roderick called out. Tyrion turned his head to listen. And there it was, hoofbeats, a dozen horses or more, coming nearer. Suddenly everyone was moving, reaching for weapons, running to their mounts. Pebbles rained down around them as Larius came springing and sliding down the ridge. He landed breathless in front of Catelyn Stark, an ungainly-looking man, with wild tufts of rust-coloured hair sticking out from under a conical steel cap. Twenty men, maybe twenty-five, he said breathless. Milk snakes, or Moon Brothers bomb, I guess. They must have eyes out, my lady. Hidden watchers. They know we're here. Sir Roderick Cassell was already a horse, a long sword in hand. Mohor crouched behind a boulder, both hands on his iron-tipped spear, a dagger between his teeth. You, singer, Sir Willis Word called out, help me with this breastplate. Marillion sat frozen, clutching his wood harp, his face as pale as milk. But Tyrion's man, Morrick, bounded quickly to his feet and moved to help the knight with his armour. Tyrion kept his grip on Catelyn Stark. You have no choice, he told her. Three of us and a fourth man wasted guarding us. Four men can be the difference between life and death up here. Give me your word that you will put down your sword again after the fight is done. My word. The hoofbeats were louder now. Tyrion grinned crookedly. Oh, that you have, my lady, on my honor as a Lannister. For a moment he thought she would spit at him, but instead she snapped, Arm them! And as quick as that she was pulling away. Sir Roderick tossed Jick his sword and scabbard and wheeled to meet the foe. Morrick helped himself to a bow and quiver and went to one knee beside the road. He was a better archer than the swordsman, and Bronn rode up to offer Tyrion a double-bladed axe. I have never fought with an axe. The weapon felt awkward and unfamiliar in his hands. It had a short heft, a heavy head, a nasty spike on top. Pretend you're splitting lugs, Bronn said, drawing his long sword from the scabbard across his back. He spat and trotted off to form up beside Chigan and Sir Roderick. Sir Willis mounted up to join them, fumbling with his helmet, 
a metal pot with a thin slit for his eyes, and a long black silk plume. Logs don't bleed, Tyrion said to no one in particular. He felt naked without armor. He looked around for a rock and ran over to where Marillion was hiding. Move over! Go away! the boy screamed back at him. I'm a singer! I want no part of this fight! What? Lost your taste for adventure? Tyrion kicked at the youth until he slid over, and not a moment too soon. A heartbeat later, the riders were on them. There were no heralds, no banners, no horns, nor drums, only the twang of bowstrings as Morik and Laris let fly. And suddenly the clansmen came thundering out of the dawn, lean dark men in boiled leather and mismatched armor, faces hidden behind barred half-helms. In their gloved hands were clutched all manner of weapons, long-swords and lances and sharpened scythes, spiked clubs and daggers and heavy iron mauls. At their head rode a big man in a striped shadow-skin cloak, armed with a two-handed greatsword. Sir Roderick shouted, Winterfell! and rode to meet him, with Bronn and Chigim beside him, screaming some wordless battle cry. Sir Willis Woad followed, swinging a spiked morning star around his head. Heron Hell! Heron Hell! he sang. Tyrion felt a sudden urge to leap up, brandish his axe and boom out, castly rock. But the insanity passed quickly, and he crouched down lower. He heard the screams of frightened horses and the crash of metal on metal. Chigan's sword raked across the naked face of a mailed rider, and Bronn plunged through the clansmen like a whirlwind, cutting down foes right and left. Sir Roderick hammered at the big man in the shadow-skin cloak, their horses dancing around each other as they traded blow for blow. Jick vaulted onto a horse and galloped bare back into the fray. Tyrion saw an arrow sprout from the throat of the man in the shadow-skin cloak. When he opened his mouth to scream, only blood came out. By the time he fell, Sir Roderick was fighting someone else. Suddenly, Marillion shrieked, covering his head with his wood-harp as a horse leapt over their rock. Tyrion scrambled to his feet as a rider turned to come back at them. Hefting a spiked maul, Tyrion swung his axe with both hands. The blade caught the charging horse in the throat with a meaty thunk, angling upwards, and Tyrion almost lost his grip as the animal screamed and collapsed. He managed to wrench the axe free and lurch clumsily out of the way. Marillion was less fortunate. Horse and rider crashed to the ground in a tangle on top of the singer. Tyrion danced back in while the brigand's leg was still pinned beneath his fallen mount, and buried the axe in the man's neck just above the shoulder blades. As he struggled to yank the blade loose, he heard Marillion moaning under the bodies. "'Somebody help me!' the singer gasped. "'Gods have mercy on bleeding!' "'I believe that's horse blood,' Tyrion said. The singer's hand came crawling out from beneath the dead animal, scrabbling in the dirt like a spider with five legs. Tyrion put his heel on the grasping fingers and felt a satisfying crunch. "'Close your eyes and pretend you're dead,' he advised the singer, before he hefted the axe and turned away. After that, things ran together. The dawn was full of shouts and screams and heavy with a scent of blood, and the world had turned to chaos. Arrows hissed past his ear and clattered off the rocks. He saw Bronn unhorsed, 
fighting with a sword in each hand. Tyrion kept on the fringes of the fight, sliding from rock to rock and darting out of the shadows to hew at the legs of passing horses. He found a wounded clansman and left him dead, helping himself to the man's half-helm. It fit too snugly, but Tyrion was glad of any protection at all. Jick was cut down from behind while he sliced at a man in front of him, and later Tyrion stumbled over Curlicket's body. The pig face had been smashed in with a mace, but Tyrion recognized the dirk as he plucked it from the man's dead fingers. He was sliding it through his belt when he heard a woman scream. Catelyn Stark was trapped against the stone face of the mountain, with three men around her, one still mounted and the other two on foot. She had a dagger clutched awkwardly in her maimed hands, but her back was to the rock now, and they had penned her on three sides. Let them have the bitch, Tyrion thought, and welcome to her. Yet somehow he was moving. He caught the first man in the back of the knee before they even knew he was there, and the heavy axe head split flesh and bone like rotten wood. Lugs that bleed, Tyrion thought inanely as a second man came for him. Tyrion ducked on his sword, lashed out with his axe, the man reeled backwards, and Catelyn Stark stepped up behind him and opened his throat. The horseman remembered an urgent engagement elsewhere and galloped off suddenly. Tyrion looked around. The enemy were all vanquished or vanished. Somehow the fighting had ended when he wasn't looking. Dying horses and wounded men lay all around screaming or moaning. To his vast astonishment, he was not one of them. He opened his fingers and let the axe thunk to the ground. His hand was sticky with blood. He could have sworn they had been fighting for half a day, but the sun seemed scarcely to have moved at all. "'Your first battle?' Bron asked later, as he bent over Jick's body, pulling off his boots. They were good boots, as befit one of Lord Tywin's men." Heavy leather, oiled and supple, much finer than what Bronn was wearing. Tyrion nodded. My father would be so proud, he said. His legs were cramping so badly he could scarcely stand. Odd he had never once noticed the pain during the battle. You need a woman now, Bronn said, with a glint in his black eyes. He shoved the boots into his saddlebag. Nothing like a woman, after a man's been blooded. Take my word. Shegan stopped looting the corpses of the brigands long enough to snort and lick his lips. Tyrion glanced over to where Lady Stark was dressing Sir Roderick's wounds. I'm willing if she is, he said. The free riders broke into laughter, and Tyrion grinned and thought, There's a start. Afterwards he knelt by the stream and washed the blood off his face in water cold as ice. As he limped back to the others, he glanced again at the slain. The dead clansmen were thin, ragged men, their horses scrawny and undersized, with every rib showing. What weapons Bronn and Chigan had left them were none too impressive. Mauls, clubs, a scythe. He remembered the big man in the shadow-skin cloak who had dueled Sir Roderick with a two-handed greatsword, but when he found his corpse sprawled on the stony ground, the man was not so big after all. The cloak was gone, and Tyrion saw that the blade was badly notched, its cheap steel spotted with rust. 
Small wonder the clansmen had left nine bodies on the ground. They had only three dead, two of Lord Bracken's men-at-arms, Curlicut and Mohor, and his own man Jick, who had made such a bold show with his bareback charge. A fool to the end, Tyrion thought. Lady Stark, I urge you to press on with all haste, Sir Willis Word said, his eyes scanning the ridgetops warily through the slit in his helm. We drove them off for the moment, but they will not have gone far. We must bury our dead, Sir Willis, she said. These were brave men. I will not leave them to the crows and shadowcats. The soil is too stony for digging, Sir Willis said. Then we shall gather stones for cairns. Gather all the stones you want, Bron told her, but do it without me or chicken. I've better things to do than pile rocks on dead men. Breathe in for one. He looked over the rest of the survivors. Any of you hope to be alive come nightfall, ride with us. My lady, I fear he speaks the truth, Sir Roderick said wearily. The old knight had been wounded in the fight. A deep gash in his left arm and a spear thrust that grazed his neck, and he sounded his age. If we linger here, they will be on us again for a certainty, and we may not live through a second attack. Tyrion could see the anger in Catelyn's face, but she had no choice. May the gods forgive us, then. We will ride at once. There was no shortage of horses now. Tyrion moved his saddle to jick-spotted gelding, who looked strong enough to last another three or four days at least. He was about to mount when Larry stepped up and said, I'll take that dirk now, dwarf. Let him keep it. Catelyn Stark looked down from her horse. And see that he has his axe back as well. We may have need of it if we are attacked again. You have my thanks, lady, Tyrion said, mounting up. Save them, she said curtly. I trust you no more than I did before. She was gone before he could frame a reply. Tyrion adjusted his stolen helm and took the axe from Bronn. He remembered how he had begun the journey, with his wrists bound and a hood pulled down over his head, and decided this was a definite improvement. Lady Stark could keep her trust. So long as he could keep the axe, he would count himself ahead in the game. Sir Willis Wode led them out. Bronn took up the rear, with Lady Stark safely in the middle, Sir Roderick a shadow beside her. Marillion kept throwing sullen looks back at Tyrion as they rode. The singer had broken several ribs, his wood harp, and all four fingers of his playing hand, yet the day had not been an utter loss to him. Somewhere he had acquired a magnificent shadow-skin cloak. "'thick black fur slashed by stripes of white. "'He huddled beneath its folds silently "'and for once had nothing to say. "'They heard the deep growls of shadowcats behind them "'before they had gone half a mile, "'and later the wild snarling of the beasts "'fighting over the corpses they had left behind. "'Marillion grew visibly pale. "'Tyrion trotted up to him. Craven, he said, rhymes nicely with raven. He kicked his horse and moved past the singer up to Sir Roderick and Catelyn Stark. She looked at him, 
lips pressed tightly together. "'As I was saying, before we were so rudely interrupted,' Tyrion began, "'there is a serious flaw in Littlefinger's fable. "'Whatever you may believe of me, Lady Stark, "'I promise you this. "'I never bet against my family.' Arya. The one-eared black Tom arched his back and hissed at her. Arya padded down the alley, balanced lightly on the balls of her bare feet, listening to the flutter of her heart, breathing slow, deep breaths. Quiet as a shadow, she told herself, light as a feather. The tomcat watched her come, his eyes weary. Catching cats was hard. Her hands were covered with half-heeled scratches, and both knees were scabbed over where she had scraped them raw in tumbles. At first, even the cook's huge, fat kitchen cat had been able to elude her, but Syria had kept her at it day and night. When she had run to him with her hands bleeding, he had said, So slow, be quicker, girl. Your enemies will give you more than scratches. He had dabbed her wounds with mirish fire, which burned so bad she had to bite her lip to keep from screaming. Then he sent her out after more cats. The red keep was full of cats. Lazy old cats dozing in the sun, cold-eyed mousers twitching their tails, quick little kittens with claws like needles, ladies' cats all combed and trusting, ragged shadows prowling the midden heaps. One by one, Aria had chased them down and snatched them up and brought them proudly to Sirio Forel. All but this one, this one-eared black devil of a tomcat. Oh, that's a real king of the castle right there, one of the gold cloaks had told her. Older than sin and twice as mean. <laughs> one time the king was feasting the queen's father, and that black bastard hopped onto the table and snatched a rose quail right out of Lord Tywin's fingers. <laughs> Robert laughed so hard he liked to burst. <laughs> you stay away from that one, child. He had run her halfway across the castle, twice around the tower of the hand, across the inner bailey, through the stables, down the serpentine steps, past the small kitchen and the pig yard, and the barracks of the gold cloaks, along the base of the river wall, and up more steps, and back and forth over Traitor's Walk, and then down again, and through a gate, and around a well, and in and out of strange buildings until Arya didn't know where she was. Now at last she had him. High walls pressed close on either side, and ahead was a blank, windowless mass of stone. Quiet as a shadow, she repeated, sliding forward, light as a feather. When she was three steps away from him, the tomcat bolted. Left, then right he went, and right, then left went Arya, cutting off his escape. He hissed again and tried to dart between her legs. Quick as a snake, she thought. Her hands closed around him. She hugged him to her chest, whirring and laughing aloud as his claws raked at the front of her leather jerkin. Ever so far, she kissed him right between the eyes and jerked her head back an instant before his claws would have found her face. The tomcat yowled and spit. What's he doing to that cat? Startled, Arya dropped the cat and whirled toward the voice. The tom bounded off in the blink of an eye. 
At the end of the alley stood a girl with a mass of golden curls, dressed as pretty as a doll, in blue satin. Beside her was a plump little blonde boy, with a prancing stag sewn in pearls across the front of his doublet, and a miniature sword at his belt. Princess Marcella and Prince Tommen, Arya thought. A scepter as large as a draught horse hovered over them, and behind her two big men in crimson cloaks, Lannister houseguards. "'What were you doing to that cat, boy?' Marcella asked again, sternly. To her brother she said, "'He's a ragged boy, isn't he? Look at him,' she giggled. "'A ragged, dirty, smelly boy,' Tommen agreed. "'They don't know me,' Arya realized. "'They don't even know I'm a girl.' Small wonder, she was barefoot and dirty, a hair tangled from the long run through the castle, clad in a jerkin ripped by cat claws, and brown rough-spun pants hacked off above her scabby knees. You don't wear skirts and silks when you're catching cats. Quickly, she lowered her head and dropped to one knee. Maybe they wouldn't recognize her. If they did, she would never hear the end of it. Septim Ordain would be mortified, and Sansa would never speak to her again from the shame. The old fat scepter moved forward. Boy, how did you come here? You have no business in this part of the castle. You can't keep his sort out, one of the red cloaks said, like trying to keep out rats. Who do you belong to, boy? the scepter demanded. Answer me. What's wrong with you? Are you mute? Arya's voice caught in her throat. If she answered, Tommen and Marcella would know her for certain. Godwin, bring him here. The scepter said. The taller of the guardsmen started down the alley. Panic gripped her throat like a giant's hand. Arya could not have spoken if her life had hung on it. Calm as still water, she mouthed silently. As Godwin reached for her, Arya moved, quick as a snake. She leaned to her left, letting his fingers brush her arm, spinning around him, smooth as summer silk. By the time he got himself turned, she was sprinting down the alley, swift as a deer. The scepter was screeching at her. Arya slid between legs as thick and white as marble columns, bounded to her feet, bowled into Prince Tommen, and hopped over him when he sat down hard and said, Oof! Spun away from the second guard, and then she was past them all, running full out. She heard shouts, then pounding footsteps closing behind her, she dropped and rolled. The red cloak went careening past her, stumbling. Arya sprang back to her feet. She saw a window, above her, high and narrow, scarcely more than an arrow slit. Arya leapt, caught the sill, pulled herself up. She held her breath as she wriggled through. Slippery as an eel. Dropping to the floor in front of a startled scrub woman, she hopped up, brushed the rushes off her clothes, and was off again, out of the door, and along a long hall, down a stair, across a hidden courtyard, around a corner, and over a wall, and through a long, narrow window into a pitch-dark cellar. The sounds grew more and more distant behind her. Arya was out of breath, and quite thoroughly lost. She was in for it now, if they had recognized her. But she didn't think they had. She moved too fast. Swift as a deer. She hunkered down in the dark against a damp stone wall and listened for the pursuit.
but the only sound was the beating of her own heart and a distant drip of water. Quiet as a shadow, she told herself. She wondered where she was. When they had first come to King's Landing, she used to have bad dreams about getting lost in the castle. Father said the Red Keep was smaller than Winterfell, but in her dreams it had been immense, an endless stone maze with walls that seemed to shift and change behind her. She would find herself wandering down gloomy halls, past faded tapestries, descending endless circular stairs, darting through courtyards or over bridges, her shouts echoing unanswered. In some of the rooms, the red stone walls would seem to drip blood, and nowhere could she find a window. Sometimes she would hear her father's voice, but always from a long way off, and no matter how hard she ran after it, it would go fainter and fainter until it faded to nothing, and Arya was alone in the dark. It was very dark right now, she realized. She hugged her bare knees tight against her chest and shivered. She would wait quietly and count to ten thousand. By then it would be safe for her to come creeping back out and find her way home. By the time she had reached eighty-seven, the room had begun to lighten as her eyes adjusted to the blackness. Slowly, the shapes around her took on form. Huge, empty eyes stared at her, hungrily, through the gloom, and dimly she saw the jagged shadows of long teeth. She had lost the count. She closed her eyes and bit her lip and sent the fear away. When she looked again, the monsters would be gone. Would never have been. She pretended that Syria was beside her in the dark, whispering in her ear, "'Calm as still water,' she told herself, "'strong as a bear, fierce as a wolverine.' She opened her eyes again. The monsters were still there, but the fear was gone. Arya got to her feet, moving warily. The heads were all around her. She touched one, curious wondering if it was real. Her fingertips brushed a massive jaw. It felt real enough. The bone was smooth beneath her hand, cold and hard to the touch. She ran her fingers along a tooth, black and sharp, a dagger made of darkness. It made her shiver. It's dead, she said aloud. It's just a skull. It can't hurt me. Yet somehow the monster seemed to know she was there. She could feel its empty eyes watching her through the gloom, and there was something in that dim, cavernous room that did not love her. She edged away from the skull and backed into a second, larger than the first. For an instant she could feel its teeth digging into her shoulder as if it wanted a bite of her flesh. Arya whirled, felt leather catch and tear as a huge fang nipped at her jerkin, and then she was running. Another skull loomed ahead, the biggest monster of all, but Arya did not even slow. She leapt over a ridge of black teeth as tall as swords, dashed through hungry jaws, and threw herself against the door. Her hands found a heavy iron ring set in the wood, and she yanked at it. The door resisted a moment before it slowly began to swing inward, with a creak so loud Arya was certain it could be heard all through the city.
she opened the door just far enough to slip through into the hallway beyond. If the room with the monsters had been dark, the hall was the blackest pit in the seven hills, calm as still water, Arya told herself, but even when she gave her eyes a moment to adjust, there was nothing to see but the vague grey outline of the door she had come through. She wiggled her fingers in front of her face, felt the air move, saw nothing. She was blind. A water dancer seized with all her senses, she reminded herself. She closed her eyes and steadied her breathing. One, two, three. Drank in the quiet, reached out with her hands. Her fingers brushed against rough, unfinished stone to her left. She followed the wall, her hands skimming along the surface, taking small gliding steps through the darkness. All halls lead somewhere. Where there is a way in, there is a way out. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Arya would not be afraid. It seemed as if she had been walking a long ways when the wall ended abruptly, and a draught of cold air blew past her cheek. Loose hairs stirred faintly against her skin. From somewhere, far below her, she heard noises. The scrape of boots, the distant sound of voices. A flickering light brushed the wall ever so faintly, and she saw that she stood at the top of a great black well, a shaft twenty feet across plunging deep into the earth. Huge stones had been set in the curving walls as steps circling down and down, dark as the steps to hell that old Nan used to tell them of. And something was coming up out of the darkness, out of the bowels of the earth. Arya peered over the edge and felt the cold black breath on her face. Far below, she saw the light of a single torch, small as the flame of a candle. Two men she made out. Their shadows writhed against the sides of the well, tall as giants. She could hear their voices, echoing up the shaft. Found one bastard, one said. The rest will come soon. A day, two days, from fortnight. And when he learns the truth, what will he do? A second voice asked in the liquid accents of the free cities. The guards alone know, the first voice said. Ari could see a wisp of grey smoke drifting up off the torch, writhing like a snake as it rose. The fools tried to kill his son, and what's worse, they made a mummer's farce of it. He's not a man to put that aside. I've warned you, the wolf and the lion will soon be at each other's throats, whether we will it or no. Too soon, too soon, the voice with the accent complained. What good is war now? We are not ready. Delay. As well bid me stop time. Do you take me for a wizard? The other chuckled. No less. Flames licked at the cold air. The tall shadows were almost on top of her. An instant later, the man holding the torch climbed into her sight, his companion beside him. Arya crept back, away from the well, dropped to her stomach, and flattened herself against the wall. She held her breath as the men reached the top of the steps.
"'What would you have me do?' asked the torchbearer, a stout man in leather half-cape. Even in heavy boots his feet seemed to glide soundlessly over the ground. A round, scarred face and a stubble of dark beard showed under his steel cap, and he wore mail over boiled leather, and a dirk and short sword at his belt. It seemed to Arya there was something oddly familiar about him. "'If one hand can die, why not a second? replied the man with the accent and the forked yellow beard. "'You have danced the dance before, my friend.' He was no one Arya had ever seen before, she was certain of it. Grossly fat, yet he seemed to walk lightly, carrying his weight on the balls of his feet as a water-dancer might. His rings glimmered in the torchlight, red, gold, and pale silver, crusted with rubies, sapphires, slitted yellow tiger eyes. Every finger wore a ring. Some had two. Before is not now, and this hand is not the other, the scarred man said as they stepped out into the hall. Still as stone, Arya told herself, quiet as a shadow. Blinded by the blaze of their own torch, they did not see her press flat against the stone only a few feet away. Perhaps so, the forked beard replied, pausing to catch his breath after the long climb. Nonetheless, we must have time. The princess is with child. The Carl will not bestir himself until his son is born. You know how they are, these savages. The man with a torch pushed at something. Ari heard a deep rumbling, a huge slab of rock, red in the torchlight, slid down out of the ceiling with a resounding crash that almost made her cry out. Where the entry to the well had been was nothing but stone, solid and unbroken. If he does not bestir himself soon, it may be too late, the stout man in the steel cap said. This is no longer a game for two players, if ever it was. Stannis Baratheon and Lysa Aaron have fled beyond my reach, and the whispers say they are gathering swords around them. The Knight of Flowers writes Highgarden, urging his lord father to send his sister to court. The girl is a maid of fourteen, sweet and beautiful and tractable and Lord Renly and Sir Loras intend that Robert should bed her, wed her, make a new queen. Littlefinger, <laughs> the gods only know what game Littlefinger is playing, yet Lord Stark's the one who troubles my sleep. He has the bastard, he has the book, and soon enough he'll have the truth. And now his wife has abducted Tyrion Lannister, thanks to Littlefinger's meddling. Lord Tywin will take that for an outrage, and Jaime has a queer affection for the imp. If the Lannisters move north, that will bring the Tullys in as well. Delay, you say? Make haste, I reply. Even the finest of jugglers cannot keep a hundred balls in the air forever. You are more than a juggler, old friend. You are a true sorcerer. All I ask is that you work your magic a while longer. 
They started down the hall, in the direction Arya had come, past the room with the monsters. "'What I can do, I will,' the one with the torch said softly. "'I must have gold, and another fifty birds.' She let them get a long way ahead, then went creeping after them, quiet as a shadow. So many! The voices were fainter as the light dwindled ahead of her. The ones you need are hard to find, so young, to know their letters, perhaps older, not die so easy. Near the younger are safer. Treat them gently. If they kept their tongues, the risk is... Long after their voices had faded away, Ari could still see the light of the torch, a smoking star that bid her follow. Twice it seemed to disappear, but she kept on straight, and both times she found herself at the top of steep, narrow stairs, the torch glimmering far below her. She hurried after it, down and down. Once she stumbled over a rock and fell against the wall, and her hand found raw earth supported by timbers, whereas before the tunnel had been dressed stone. She must have crept after them for miles. Finally they were gone, but there was no place to go but forward. She found the wall again and followed, blind and lost, pretending that Nymeria was padding along beside her in the darkness. At the end she was knee-deep in foul-smelling water, wishing she could dance upon it as Sirio might have, and wondering if she'd ever see light again. It was full dark when finally Arya emerged into the night air. She found herself standing at the mouth of a sewer where it emptied into the river. She stank so badly that she stripped right there, dropping her soiled clothing on the river bank as she dove into the deep black waters. She swam until she felt clean and crawled out shivering. Some riders went past along the river road as Arya was washing her clothes, but if they saw the scrawny naked girl scrubbing her rags in the moonlight, they took no notice. She was miles from the castle, but from anywhere in King's Landing you needed only to look up to see the red keep high on Aegon's Hill so there was no danger of losing her way. Her clothes were almost dry by the time she reached the gatehouse. The portcullis was down, and the gates barred, so she turned aside to a postern door. The gold cloaks, who had the watch, sneered when she told them to let her in. "'Off with you,' one said. "'The kitchen scraps are gone. We'll have no begging after dark.' "'I'm not a beggar,' she said. "'I live here.' I said, off with you. Do you need a clout on the air to help your hearing? I want to see my father. The guards exchanged a glance. I want to fuck the queen myself, for all the good it does me, the younger said. The older scowled. Who's this father of yours, boy? The city rat catcher? The hand of the king, Arya told him. Both men laughed, but then the older one swung his fist at her, casually, as a man would swat a dog. Arya saw the blow coming even before it began. She danced back out of the way, untouched. I'm not a boy, she spat at them. I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell, and if you lay a hand on me, my lord father will have both your heads on spikes. 
If you don't believe me, fetch Jory Cassell, or Vayne Poole, from the Tower of the Hand. She put her hands on her hips. Now, are you going to open the gate, or do you need a clout on the air to help your hearing? Her father was alone in the solar when Harwin and Fat Tom marched her in, an oil lamp glowing softly at his elbow. He was bent over the biggest book Arya had ever seen, a great thick tome with cracked yellow pages of crabbed script, bound between faded leather covers, but he closed it to listen to Harwin's report. His face was stern as he sent the men away with thanks. You realize I had half my guard out searching for you, Eddard Stark said when they were alone. Septim Ordain is beside herself with fear. She's in a set praying for your safe return. Arya, you know you are never to go beyond the castle gates without my leave. I didn't go out of the gate, she blurted. Well, I didn't mean to. I was down in the dungeons, only they turned into this tunnel. It was all dark, and I didn't have a torch or a candle to see by, so I had to follow. I couldn't go back the way I came on account of the monsters. Father, they were talking about killing you. Not the monsters, the two men. They didn't see me. I was being still as stone and quiet as a shadow, but I heard them. They said you had a book and a bastard, and if one hand could die, why not a second? Is that the book? John's a bastard, I bet. John? Arya, what are you talking about? Who said this? They did, she told him. There was a fat one with rings and a forked yellow beard, and another in mail and a steel cap, and the fat one said they had to delay, but the other one told him he couldn't keep juggling, and the wolf and the lion were going to eat each other, and it was a, a mummer's farce. She tried to remember the rest. She hadn't quite understood everything she heard, and now it was all mixed up in her head. The fat one said the princess was with child. The one in the steel cap, he had the torch. He said they had to hurry. I think he was a wizard. A wizard, Ned said, unsmiling. Did he have a long white beard and a tall pointed hat speckled with stars? No, it wasn't like old Nan's stories. He didn't look like a wizard, but the fat one said he was. I warn you, Arya, if you're spinning this thread of air... No, I told you. It was in the dungeons by the place with the secret wall. I was chasing cats and, well... She screwed up her face. If she admitted knocking over Prince Tommen, he would be really angry with her. Well, I, I went in this window. That's where I found the monsters. Monsters and wizards, her father said. It would seem you've had quite an adventure. These men you heard. You say they spoke of juggling and mummery? Yes, Arya admitted. Only, Arya, they were mummers, her father told her. There must be a dozen troops in King's Landing right now, come to make some coin off the tawny crowds. I I'm not certain what these two men were doing in the castle, but perhaps the king had asked for a show. No, she shook her head stubbornly. They weren't. You shouldn't be following people about and spying on them in any case. Nor do I cherish the notion of my daughter climbing in strange windows after stray cats. Look at you, sweetling. Your arms are covered with scratches. This has gone on long enough. Tell Sirio Farrell that I want a word with him. He was interrupted by a short, sudden knock. 
Lord Eddard pardons, Desmond called out, opening the door a crack. But there's a black brother here begging audience. He says the matter is urgent. I thought you would want to know. My door is always open to the night's watch, father said. Desmond ushered the man inside. He was stooped and ugly, with an unkempt beard and unwashed clothes, yet father greeted him pleasantly and asked his name. Urine, as it please, my lord. My pardons for the hour, he bowed to Arya. And this must be your son. He has your look. I'm a girl, Arya said, exasperated. If the old man was down from the wall, he must have come by way of Winterfell. Do you know my brothers? she asked excitedly. Rob and Bran are at Winterfell, and John's on the wall. John Snow, he's in the Night's Watch, too. You must know him. He has a dire wolf, a white one with red eyes. Is John a, a ranger yet? I'm Arya Stark. The old man in the smelly black clothes was looking at her oddly, but Arya could not seem to stop talking. When you ride back to the wall, would you bring John a letter if I wrote one? She wished John was here now. He'd believe her about the dungeons and the fat man with the forked beard and the wizard in the steel cap. My daughter often forgets her courtesies, Eddard Stark said with a faint smile that softened his words. I beg your forgiveness, Yoren. Did my brother Benjamin send you? No one sent me, my lord, save O'Mormont. I'm here to find men for the war. And when Robert next holds court, I'll bend the knee and cry our need. See if the king and his hand have some scum in the dungeons they'd be well rid of. You might say, as Benjamin Stark is why we're talking, though. His blood ran black. Made him my brother as much as yours. It's for his sake I'm come. Rode hard I did, nearly killed my horse the way I drove her, but I left the others well behind. The others? Yorin spat. Sell swords and free riders and light trash. That inn was full of them, and I saw them take the scent, the scent of blood or the scent of gold. They smell the same in the end. Not all of them made for King's Landing, either. Some went galloping off for Casterly Rock, and the rock lies closer. Lord Tywin will have gotten the word by now, you can count on it. Father frowned. What word is this? Yorin eyed Arya. One best spoken in private, my lord, begging your pardons. As you say, Desmond, see my daughter to her chambers. He kissed her on the brow. We'll finish our talk on the morrow. Arya stood rooted to the spot. Nothing bad's happened to John, has it? She asked Yorin. Or Uncle Benjamin? Well, as to start, I can't say. The snow boy was well enough when I left the wall. It's not them that concerns me. Desmond took her hand. Come along, milady. You heard your lord father. Arya had no choice but to go with him, wishing it had been fat Tom. With Tom, she might have been able to linger at the door on some excuse and hear what Yoren was saying, but Desmond was too single-minded to trick. How many guards does my father have? she asked him, as they descended to her bedchamber. Here at King's Landing? 
Fifty. You wouldn't let anyone kill him, would you? she asked. Desmond laughed. <laughs> no fear on that count, little lady. Lord Eddard's guarded night and day. He'll come to no harm. The Lannisters have more than fifty men, Arya pointed out. So they do, but every northerner is worth ten of these southern swords, so you can sleep easy. What if a wizard was sent to kill him? Well, as to that, Desmond replied, drawing his longsword, wizards die the same as other men, once you cut their heads off. Eddard Robert, I beg of you, Ned pleaded. Hear what you're saying. You're talking of murdering a child. The whore is pregnant. The king's fist slammed down on the council table, loud as a thunderclap. I warned you this would happen, Ned. Back in the Barrowlands, I warned you. But you did not care to hear it. Well, you'll hear it now. I want them dead, mother and child, both. And that fool Viserys as well. Is that plain enough for you? I want them dead. The other councillors were all doing their best to pretend that they were somewhere else. No doubt they were wiser than he was. Eddard Stark had seldom felt quite so alone. You will dishonour yourself forever if you do this. Then let it be on my head, as long as it's done. I'm not so blind that I cannot see the shadow of the axe when it is hanging over my own neck. There is no axe, Ned told the king. Only the shadow of a shadow, twenty years removed, if it exists at all. If, Varys asked softly, bringing powdered hands together. My lord, you wrong me. Would I bring lies to king and council? Ned looked at the eunuch coldly. You would bring us the whisperings of a traitor half a world away, my lord. Perhaps Mormont is wrong. Perhaps he is lying. Sir Jorah would not dare deceive me, Varys said with a sly smile. Rely on it, my lord. The princess is with child. So you say. If you are wrong, we need not fear. If the girl miscarries, we need not fear. If she births a daughter in place of a son, we need not fear. If the babe dies in infancy, we need not fear. But if it is a boy, Robert insisted, if he lives, the narrow sea would still lie between us. I shall fear the Dothraki the day they teach the horses to run on water. The king took a swallow of wine and glowered at Ned across the council table. So you would counsel me to do nothing until the dragon spawn has landed his army on my shores, is that it? This dragon spawn is in his mother's belly, Ned said. Even Aegon did no conquering until after he was weaned. Gods, you are stubborn as an oryx, Stark. The king looked round the council table. Have the rest of you mislaid your tongues? Will no one talk sense to this frozen-faced fool? Varys gave the king an unctuous smile and laid a soft hand on Ned's sleeve. I understand your qualms, Lord Eddard, truly I do— it gave me no joy to bring this grievous news to Council. It is a terrible thing we contemplate, a vile thing. Yet we who presume to rule must do vile things for the good of the realm. 
however much it pains us. Lord Renly shrugged. The matter seems simple enough to me. We ought to have had Viserys and his sister killed years ago, but his grace, my brother, made the mistake of listening to John Aaron. Mercy is never a mistake, Lord Renly, Ned replied. On the trident, Sir Barristan here cut down a dozen good men, Robert's friends and mine. When they brought him to us, grievously wounded and near death, Ruth Bolton urged us to cut his throat, but your brother said, I will not kill a man for loyalty, nor for fighting well, and he sent his own maester to tend Sir Barristan's wounds. He gave the king a long, cool look. Would that man were here today? Robert had shame enough to blush. It was not the same, he complained. Sir Barristan was a knight of the king's guard, whereas Daenerys is a fourteen-year-old girl. Ned knew he was pushing this well past the point of wisdom, yet he could not keep silent. Robert, I ask you, what did we rise against Aerys Targaryen for? if not to put an end to the murder of children. To put an end to Targaryens, the king growled. Your Grace, I never knew you to fear Rhaegar. Ned fought to keep his scorn out of his voice and failed. Have the year so unmanned you that you tremble at the shadow of an unborn child? Robert purpled. No more, Ned, he warned, pointing. Not another word. Have you forgotten who is king here? No, your grace, Ned replied. Have you? Enough, the king bellowed. I am sick of talk. I'll be done with this, or be damned. What say you all? She must be killed, Lord Renly declared. We have no choice, murmured Varys. Sadly, sadly. Sir Barristan Selmy raised his pale blue eyes from the table and said, Your grace... There is honour in facing an enemy on the battlefield, but none in killing him in his mother's womb. Forgive me, but I must stand with Lord Eddard. Grand Maester Pycelle cleared his throat, a process that seemed to take some minutes. My order serves the realm, not the ruler. Once I counselled King Aerys as loyally as I counsel King Robert now, so I bear this girl-child of his no ill-will. Yet I ask you this. Should war come again, how many soldiers will die? How many towns will be burnt? How many children will be ripped from their mothers to perish on the end of a spear? He stroked his luxuriant white beard, infinitely sad, infinitely weary. Is it not wiser, even kinder, that Daenerys Targaryen should die now, so that tens of thousands might live? Kinder, Varys said. Oh, well and truly spoken, Grand Maester, it is so true. Should the gods in their caprice grant Daenerys Targaryen a son, the realm must bleed. Littlefinger was the last. As Ned looked at him, Lord Patar stifled a yawn. When you find yourself in bed with an ugly woman, the best thing to do is close your eyes and get on with it, he declared. 
waiting won't make the maid any prettier. Kiss her, and be done with it. Kiss her, Sir Barriston repeated, aghast. A steel kiss, said Littlefinger. Robert turned to face his hand. Well, there it is, Ned. You and Selmy stand alone on this matter. The only question that remains is, who can we find to kill her? Mormont craves a royal pardon, Lord Renly reminded them. Desperately, Vary said. Yet he craves life even more. By now the princess nears Vase Dothrak, where it is death to draw blade. If I told you what the Dothraki would do to the poor man who used one on a Khaleesi, none of you would sleep tonight. He stroked a powdered cheek. Now poison, the tears of lice, let us say. Karl Drogo need never know. It was not a natural death. Grand Meister Pycelle's sleepy eyes flicked open. He squinted suspiciously at the eunuch. Poison is a coward's weapon, the king complained. Ned had heard enough. You send hard knives to kill a fourteen-year-old girl, and you still quibble about honor? He pushed back his chair and stood. Do it yourself, Robert. The man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Look her in the eyes before you kill her. See her tears. Hear her last words. You owe her that much, at least. Gods, the king swore, the word exploding out of him, as if he could barely contain his fury. You mean it, damn you! He reached for the flagon of wine at his elbow, found it empty, and flung it away to shatter against the wall. I am out of wine and out of patience. Enough of this. Just have it done. I will not be part of murder, Robert. Do as you will. But do not ask me to fix my seal to it. For a moment, Robert did not seem to understand what Ned was saying. Defiance was not a dish he tasted often. Slowly his face changed as comprehension came. His eyes narrowed, and a flush crept up his neck past his velvet collar. He pointed an angry finger at Ned. You are the king's hand, Lord Stark. You will do as I command you or I'll find me a hand who will. I wish him every success. Ned unfastened the heavy clasp that clutched at the folds of his cloak, the ornate silver hand that was his badge of office. He laid it on the table in front of the king, saddened by the memory of the man who had pinned it on him, the friend he had loved. I thought you a better man than this, Robert. I thought we had made a nobler king. Robert's face was purple. Out! he croaked, choking on his rage. Out! Damn you! I've done with you! What are you waiting for? Go run back to Winterfell and make certain I never look on your face again, or I swear I'll have your head on a spike! Ned bowed and turned on his heel without another word. He could feel Robert's eyes on his back. As he strode from the council chambers, the discussion resumed with scarcely a pause. On Bravos there is a society called the Faceless Men, Grand Maester Pycelle offered. Do I have any idea how costly they are? Littlefinger complained. 
You could hire an army of common sellswords for half the price, and that's for a merchant. I don't dare think what they might ask for a princess. The closing of the door behind him silenced their voices. Sir Boris Blunt was stationed outside the chamber, wearing the long white cloak and armour of the King's Guard. He gave Ned a quick, curious glance from the corner of his eye, but asked no questions. The day felt heavy and oppressive as he crossed the bailey back to the Tower of the Hand. He could feel the threat of rain in the air. Ned would have welcomed it. It might have made him feel a trifle less unclean. When he reached his solar, he summoned Vayan Pool. The steward came at once. You sent for me, my Lord Hand? Hand no longer, Ned told him. The king and I have quarrelled. We shall be returning to Winterfell. I shall begin making arrangements at once, my lord. We will need a fortnight to ready everything for the journey. We may not have a fortnight. We may not have a day. The king mentioned something about seeing my head on a spike, Ned frowned. He did not truly believe the king would harm him, not Robert. He was angry now, but once Ned was safely out of sight, his rage would cool as it always did. Always? Suddenly uncomfortable, he found himself recalling Rhaegar to Garion. Fifteen years dead, yet Robert hates him as much as ever? It was a disturbing notion. And there was the other matter, the business with Catelyn and the dwarf, that Yorin had warned him of last night. That would come to light soon as sure as sunrise, and with a king in such a black fury. Robert might not care a fig for Tyrion Lannister, but it would touch on his pride, and there was no telling what the queen might do. It might be safest if I went on ahead, he told Poole. I will take my daughters and a few guardsmen. The rest of you can follow when you are ready. Inform Jory, but tell no one else, and do nothing until the girls and I have gone. The castle is full of eyes and ears, and I would rather my plans were not known. As you command, my lord. When he had gone, Eddard Stark went to the window and sat brooding. Robert had left him no choice that he could see. He ought to thank him. It would be good to return to Winterfell. He ought never to have left. His sons were waiting there. Perhaps he and Catelyn would make a new son together when he returned. They were not so old yet, and of late he had often found himself dreaming of snow, of the deep quiet of the wolf's wood at night. And yet the thought of leaving angered him as well. So much was still undone. Robert and his council of cravens and flatterers would beggar the realm if left unchecked, or worse, sell it to the Lannisters in payment of their loans. And the truth of John Aaron's death still eluded him. Oh, he had found a few pieces, enough to convince himself that John had indeed been murdered, but that was no more than the spore of an animal on the forest floor. He had not sighted the beast itself, though he sensed it was there, lurking, hidden, treacherous. It struck him suddenly that he might return to Winterfell by sea. Ned was no sailor, and ordinarily he would have preferred the King's Road, but if he took a ship, he could stop at Dragonstone and speak with Stannis Baratheon. 
Pycelle had sent a raven off across the water with a polite letter from Ned requesting Lord Stennis to return to his seat on the small council. As yet there had been no reply, but the silence only deepened his suspicions. Lord Stannis shared the secret John Aaron had died for. He was certain of it. The truth he sought might well be waiting for him on the ancient island fortress of House Tregarian. And when you have it, what then? Some secrets are safer kept hidden. Some secrets are too dangerous to share, even with those you love and trust. Ned slid the dagger that Catelyn had brought him out of the sheath on his belt. The imp's knife. Why would the dwarf want Bran dead? To silence him, surely. Another secret. Or only a different strand of the same web. Could Robert be part of it? He would not have thought so, but once he would not have thought Robert could command the murder of women and children either. Catelyn had tried to warn him. You knew the man, she had said. The king is a stranger to you. The sooner he was quit of King's Landing, the better. If there was a ship sailing north on the morrow, it would be well to be on it. He summoned Vayne Poole again, and sent him to the dock to make inquiries, quietly but quickly. Find me a fast ship with a skilled captain, he told the steward. I care nothing for the size of its cabins or the quality of its appointments, so long as it is swift and safe. I wish to leave at once. Poole had no sooner taken his leave than Tomard announced a visitor. Lord Baelish to see you, my lord. Ned was half tempted to turn him away, but thought better of it. He was not free yet. Until he was, he must play their games. Show him in, Tom. Lord Petire sauntered into the solar as if nothing had gone amiss that morning. He wore a slashed velvet doublet in cream and silver, a grey silk cloak trimmed with black fox, and his customary mocking smile. Ned greeted him coldly. "'Might I ask the reason for this visit, Lord Baelish?' "'I won't detain you long. I'm on my way to dine with Lady Tender. Lamprey pie and rose suckling pig. She has some thought to wed me to her younger daughter, so her table is always astonishing. If truth be told, I'd sooner marry the pig. But don't tell her. I do love lamprey pie.' "'Don't let me keep you from your eels, my lord.' Ned said with icy disdain. At the moment I cannot think of anyone whose company I desire less than yours. Oh, I'm certain if you put your mind to it, you could come up with a few names. Barisse, Cersei, or Robert. His grace is most wroth with you. He went on about you at some length after you took your leave of us this morning. The words insolence and um, ingratitude came into it frequently, I seem to recall. Ned did not honour that with a reply, nor did he offer his guest a seat, but Littlefinger took one anyway. After you'd stormed out, it was left me to convince them not to hire the faceless men, he continued blithely. Instead, Varys will quietly let it be known— that will make a lord of whoever does in the Targaryen girl. Ned was disgusted. So, now we grant titles to assassins. Littlefinger shrugged. 
Their titles are cheap. The faceless men are expensive. If truth be told, I did the Tregarian girl more good than you, with all your talk of honour. Let some sellsword, drunk on visions of lordship, try to kill her. Likely he'll make a butch of it, and afterwards the Dothraki will be on their guard. If we send a faceless man after her, she'll be as good as buried. Ned frowned. You sit in council and talk of ugly women and steal kisses, and now you expect me to believe that you tried to protect the girl? How big a fool do you take me for? Well, quite an enormous one, actually, <laughs> said Littlefinger, laughing. Do you always find murder so amusing, Lord Baelish? It's not murder I find amusing, Lord Stark, it's you. You rule like a man dancing on rotten ice. I dare say you will make a noble splash. I believe I heard the first crack this morning. The first and last, said Ned. I've had my fill. When do you mean to return to Winterfell, my lord? As soon as I can. What concern is that of yours? None. But if perchance you're still here come evenfall, I'd be pleased to take you to this brothel your man Jory has been searching for so ineffectually. Littlefinger smiled. And I won't even tell Lady Catelyn. Catelyn. My lady, you should have sent word of your coming, Sir Donald Wainwood told her as their horses climbed the pass. We would have sent an escort. The high road is not as safe as it once was for a party as small as yours. We learned that to our sorrow, Sir Donald, Catelyn said. Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. Six brave men had died to bring her this far and she could not even find it in her to weep for them. Even their names were fading. The clansmen harried us day and night. We lost three men in the first attack, and two more in the second, and Lannister's serving man died of a fever when his wounds festered. When we heard your men approaching, I thought us doomed for certain. They had drawn up for a last desperate fight, blades in hand and backs to the rock. The dwarf had been wetting the edge of his axe and making some mordant jest when Bronn spotted the banner the riders carried before them, the moon and falcon of House Arian, sky blue and white. Catelyn had never seen a more welcome sight. The clans have grown bolder since Lord John died, Sir Donald said. He was a stocky youth of twenty years, earnest and homely, with a wide nose and a shock of thick brown hair. If it were up to me, I would take a hundred men into the mountains, root them out of their fastnesses, and teach them some sharp lessons. But your sister has forbidden it. She would not even permit her knights to fight in the hands tawny. She wants all our swords to be kept close to home, to defend the Vale, against what no one is certain. Shadows, some say. He looked at her anxiously as though he had suddenly remembered who she was. I hope I've not spoken out of turn, my lady. I, I meant no offence. Frank talk does not offend me, Sir Donald. Catelyn knew what her sister feared. Not shadows, Lannisters, she thought to herself, glancing back to where the dwarf rode beside Bronn. The two of them had grown thick as thieves since Chicken had died. 
the little man was more cunning than she liked. When they had entered the mountains, he had been her captive, bound and helpless. What was he now? Her captive still, yet he rode along with a dirk through his belt and an axe strapped to his saddle. Wearing the shadow-skin cloak he'd won dicing with the singer, and the chainmail hauberk he'd taken off Chigan's corpse. Two score men flanked the dwarf and the rest of her ragged band, knights and men-at-arms in service to her sister Lysa and John Aaron's young son. And yet Tyrion betrayed no hint of fear. Could I be wrong? Catelyn wondered. Not for the first time. Could he be innocent, after all, of Bran and John Aaron and all the rest? And if he was, what did that make her? Six men had died to bring him here. Resolute, she pushed her darts away. When we reach your keep, I would take it kindly if you could send for Maester Coleman at once. Sir Roderick is feverish from his wounds. More than once she had feared the gallant old knight would not survive the journey. Toward the end he could scarcely sit his horse, and Bronn had urged her to leave him to his fate. But Catelyn would not hear of it. They had tied him in the saddle instead, and she had commanded Marillion, the singer, to watch over him. Sir Donald hesitated before he answered, "'The Lady Lysa has commanded the maester to remain at the area at all times to care for Lord Robert,' he said. "'We have a septon at the gate who tends to our wounded. He can see to your man's hurts.' Catelyn had more faith in a maester's learning than a septon's prayers. She was about to say as much when she saw the battlements ahead, long parapets built into the very stone of the mountains on either side of them. Where the pass shrank to a narrow defile, scarce wide enough for four men to ride abreast, twin watchtowers clung to the rocky slopes, joined by a covered bridge of weathered grey stone that arched above the road. Silent faces watched from narrow slits in tower, battlements, and bridge. When they had climbed almost to the top, a knight rode out to meet them. His horse and his armour were grey, but his cloak was a rippling blue and red of Riveron, and a shiny black fish wrought in gold and black obsidian pinned its folds against his shoulder. "'Who would pass the bloody gate?' he called. "'Sir Donald Wainwood, with the Lady Catelyn Stark and her companions,' the young knight answered. The knight of the gate lifted his visor. "'I thought the lady looked familiar.' "'So far from home, little cat.' "'And you, uncle,' she said, smiling, despite all she'd been through. Hearing that hoarse, smoky voice again took her back twenty years to the days of her childhood. "'My home is at my back,' he said gruffly. "'Your home is in my heart,' Catelyn told him. "'Take off your helm. I would look on your face again.' "'The years have not improved it, I fear,' Brynden Tully said. "'But when he... Lifted off the helm, Catelyn saw that he lied. His features were lined and weathered, and time had stolen the auburn from his hair and left him only grey. But the smile was the same, and the bushy eyebrows fat as caterpillars, and the laughter in his deep blue eyes. "'Did uh, Lysa know you were coming?' "'There was no time to send word ahead,' Catelyn told him. The others were coming up behind her. I fear we ride before the storm, uncle. 
May we enter the Vale? Sir Donald asked. The Wainwoods were ever ones for ceremony. In the name of Robert Aaron, Lord of the Airy, Defender of the Vale, True Warden of the East, I bid you enter freely, and charge you to keep his peace. Sir Brynden replied, Come! And so she rode behind him, beneath the shadow of the bloody gate, where a dozen armies had dashed themselves to pieces in the age of heroes. On the far side of the stoneworks, the mountains opened up suddenly upon a vista of green fields, blue sky, and snow-capped mountains that took her breath away. The Vale of Aaron bathed in the morning light. It stretched before them to a misty east, a tranquil land of rich black soil, wide, slow-moving rivers, and hundreds of small lakes that shone like mirrors in the sun, protected on all sides by its sheltering peaks. Wheat and corn and barley grew high in the fields, and even in high garden the pumpkins were no larger nor the fruit any sweeter than here. They stood at the western end of the valley, where the high road crested the last pass and began its winding descent to the bottomlands two miles below. The vale was narrow here, no more than half a day's ride across, and the northern mountains seemed so close that Catelyn could almost reach out and touch them. Looming above them all was the jagged peak called the Giant's Lance, a mountain that even mountains looked up to, its head lost in icy mists three and a half miles above the valley floor. Over its massive western shoulder flowed the ghost torrent of Alyssa's tears. Even from this distance, Catelyn could make out the shining silver thread bright against the dark stone. When her uncle saw that she had stopped, he moved his horse closer and pointed, "'It's there. Beside Alyssa's tears, all you can see from here is a flash of white every now and then, if you look hard and the sun hits the walls just right.' Seven towers, Ned had told her, like white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky, so high you can stand on the parapets and look down on the clouds. How long a ride, she asked. We can be at the mountain by evenfall, Uncle Brynden said, but that climb will take another day. Sir Roderick Cassell spoke up from behind. My lady, he said, I fear I can go no further today. His face sagged beneath the ragged, new-grown whiskers, and he looked so weary, Catelyn feared he might fall off his horse. "'Nor should you,' he said. "'You have done all I could have asked of you, and a hundred times more. My uncle will see me the rest of the way to the Airy. Lannister must come with me, but there is no reason that you and the others should not rest here and recover your strength.' "'We should be honoured to have them to guest,' Sir Donald said, with the grave courtesy of the young." Besides Sir Roderick, only Bronn, Sir Willis Wode, and Marillion the singer remained of the party that had ridden with her from the inn by the crossroads. My lady, Marillion said, riding forward, I beg you to allow me to accompany you to the airy to see the end of the tale as I saw its beginnings. The boy sounded haggard, yet strangely determined. He had a fevered shine to his eyes. Catelyn had never asked the singer to ride with them, 
that choice he had made himself, and how he had come to survive the journey when so many braver men lay dead and unburied behind them, she could never say. Yet here he was, with a scruff of beard that made him look almost a man. Perhaps she owed him something for coming this far. Very well, she told him. I'll come as well, Bron announced. She liked that less well. Without Brun, she would never reach the Vale she knew. The Cell Sword was as fierce a fighter as she had ever seen, and his sword had helped cut them through to safety. Yet for all that, Catelyn misliked the man. Courage he had and strength, but there was no kindness in him, and little loyalty, and she had seen him riding beside Lannister far too often, talking in low voices and laughing at some private joke. She would have preferred to separate him from the dwarf, here and now. But having agreed that Marillion might continue to the Eyrie, she could see no gracious way to deny the same right to Bronn. As you wish, she said, although she noted that he had not actually asked her permission. Sir Willis Wode remained with Sir Roderick, a soft-spoken septant fussing over their wounds. Their horses were left behind as well, poor ragged things. Sir Donald promised to send birds ahead to the area and the gates of the moon with a word of their coming. Fresh mounts were brought forth from the stables, sure-footed mountain stuck with shaggy coats, and within the hour they set forth once again. Catelyn rode beside her uncle as they began the descent to the valley floor. Behind them came Bronn, Tyrion Lannister, Marillion, and six of Brynden's men. Not until they were a third of the way down the mountain path, well out of earshot of the others, did Brynden Tully turn to her and say, So, child, tell me about this storm of yours. I have not been a child in many years, uncle, Catelyn said, but she told him nonetheless. It took longer than she would have believed to tell it all. Lysa's letter and Bran's fall, the assassin's dagger and little finger, and a chance meeting with Tyrion Lannister in the Crossroads Inn. Her uncle listened silently, heavy brows shadowing his eyes as his frown grew deeper. Brynden Tully had always known how to listen, to anyone but her father. He was Lord Huster's brother, younger by five years, but the two of them had been at war as far back as Catelyn could remember. During one of their louder quarrels, when Catelyn was eight, Lord Huster had called Brynden the Black Goat of the Tully Flock. Laughing, Brynden had pointed out that the sigil of their house was a leaping trout, so he ought to be a black fish rather than a black goat, and from that day forward he had taken it as his personal emblem. The war had not ended until the day she and Lysa had been wed. It was at their wedding feast that Brynden told his brother he was leaving Riveron to serve Lysa and her new husband, the Lord of the Eyrie. Lord Huster had not spoken his brother's name since, from what Edmure told her in his infrequent letters. Nonetheless, during all those years of Catelyn's girlhood, it had been Brynden the Blackfish to whom Lord Hustler's children had run with their tears and their tales when father was too busy and mother too ill. Catelyn, Lysa, 
Edmure, and yes, even Patire Baelish, their father's ward. He had listened to them all patiently as he listened now, laughing at their triumphs and sympathizing with their childish misfortunes. When she was done, her uncle remained silent for a long time as his horse negotiated the steep, rocky trail. "'Your father must be told,' he said at last. "'If the Lannisters should march, Winterfell is remote, and the Vale walled up behind its mountains. But River Run lies right in their path.' "'I had the same fear,' Catelyn admitted. "'I shall ask Maester Coleman to send a bird when we reach the Eyrie. "'She had other messages to send as well.' the commands that Ned had given her for his bannermen, to ready the defences of the North. "'What is the mood of the Vale?' she asked. "'Angry,' Brynden Tully admitted. "'Lord John was much loved, and the insult was keenly felt when the king named Jamie Lannister to an office the errands had held for nearly three hundred years. Lysa has commanded us to call her son the true warden of the East. But no one is fooled.' "'Nor is your sister alone in wondering at the manner of the hand's death. "'None dare say John was murdered, not openly, but suspicion casts a long shadow.' "'He gave Catelyn a look, his mouth tight. "'And there is the boy.' "'The boy? What of him?' "'She ducked her head as they passed under a low overhang of rock and around a sharp turn.' Her uncle's voice was troubled. Lord Robert, he sighed, six years old, sickly, and prone to weep if you take his dolls away. John Aaron's true-born heir by all the gods, yet there are some who say he's too weak to sit his father's seat. Nestor Royce has been high steward these past fourteen years, while Lord John served in King's Landing, and many whisper that he should rule until the boy comes of age. Others believe that Lysa must marry again, and soon. Already the suitors gather like crows on a battlefield. The area is full of them. I might have expected that, Catelyn said. Small wonder there. Lysa was still young, and the kingdom of Mountain and Vale made a handsome wedding gift. Will Lysa take another husband? She says yes, provided she finds a man who suits her. Brynden Tully said. But she's already rejected Lord Nestor and a dozen other suitable men. She swears that this time she will choose her lord husband. You, of all people, can scarce falter for that. Sir Brynden snorted. Nor do I. But it seems to me that Lysa is only playing at courtship. She enjoys the sport. And I believe your sister intends to rule herself until her boy is old enough to be lord of the Eyrie in truth as well as name. A woman can rule as wisely as a man, Catelyn said. The right woman can, her uncle said with a sideways glance. Make no mistake, Cat. Lysa is not you. He hesitated a moment. If truth be told, I fear you may not find your sister as, um, helpful as you would like. She was puzzled. What do you mean? The Lysa who came back from King's Landing is not the same girl who went south when her husband was named Hand. Those years were hard for her. You must know. Lord Aaron was a dutiful husband, 
but their marriage was made from politics, not passion, as was my own. They began the same, but your ending has been happier than your sister's. Two babes still born, twice as many miscarriages, Lord Aaron's death. Captain, the gods gave Lysa only one child, and he is all your sister lives for now. Poor boy. Small wonder she fled rather than see him handed over to the Lannisters. Your sister is afraid, child, and the Lannisters are what she fears most. She ran to the Vale, stealing away from the Red Keep like a thief in the night, and all to snatch her son out of the lion's mouth. And now you have brought the lion to her door. In chains, Catelyn said, a crevasse yawned on her right, falling away into darkness. She reined up her horse and picked her way along, step by careful step. Oh, her uncle glanced back to where Tyrion Lannister was making his slow descent behind them. I see an axe on his saddle, a dirk in his belt, and a sellsword that trails after him like a hungry shadow. Where are the chains, sweet one? Catelyn shifted uneasily in her seat. The dwarf is here, and not by choice. Chains or no, he is my prisoner. Lysa will want him to answer for his crimes no less than I. It was her own lord husband the Lannisters murdered, and her own letter that first warned us against them. Brynden Blackfish gave her a weary smile. I hope you're right, child, he sighed, in tones that said she was wrong. The sun was well to the west by the time the slope began to flatten beneath the hooves of their horses. The road widened and grew straight, and for the first time Catelyn noticed wildflowers and grasses growing. Once they reached the valley floor, the going was faster, and they made good time, cantering through verdant greenwoods and sleepy little hamlets, past orchards and golden wheat fields, splashing across a dozen sunlit streams. Her uncle sent a standard bearer ahead of them, a double banner flying from his staff, the moon and falcon of House Aaron on high, and below it his own black fish. Farm wagons and merchants' carts and riders from lesser houses moved aside to let them pass. Even so, it was full dark before they reached the stout castle that stood at the foot of the giant's lance. Torches flickered atop the ramparts, and the horned moon danced upon the dark waters of its moat. The drawbridge was up, and the portcullis down. But Catelyn saw lights burning in the gatehouse and spilling from the windows of the square tiles beyond. The gates of the moon, her uncle said, as the party drew rein. His standard-bearer rode to the edge of the moat to hail the men in the gatehouse. Lord Nestor's seat. He should be expecting us. Look up. Catelyn raised her eyes up and up and up, at first all she saw was stone and trees, the looming mass of the great mountain shrouded in night as black as a starless sky. Then she noticed the glow of distant fires well above them, a tower-keep built upon the steep side of the mountain, its lights like orange eyes staring down from above. Above that was another, higher and more distant, and still higher a third, no more than a flickering spark in the sky. And finally, up where the falcon soared, 
a flash of white in the moonlight. Vertigo washed over her as she stared upward at the pale towers so far above. The Eyrie! she heard Marillion murmur, awed. The sharp voice of Tyrion Lannister broke in. The errands must not be over-fond of company. If you're planning to make us climb that mountain in the dark, I I'd rather you kill me here. We'll spend the night here and make the ascent on the morrow, Brynden told him. I, I can scarcely wait, the dwarf replied. How do we get up there? I've no experience at riding goats. Mules, Brynden said, smiling. There are steps carved into the mountain, Catelyn said. Ned had told her about them when he talked of his youth here with Robert Baratheon and John Aaron. Her uncle nodded. It's far too dark to see them, but the steps are there. Too steep and narrow for horses, but mules can manage them, most of the way. The path is guarded by three way castles, stone and snow and sky. The mules will take us as far up as sky. Tyrion Lannister glanced up doubtfully. And beyond that? Brynden smiled. Beyond that, the path is too steep even for mules. We ascend on foot the rest of the way, or perchance you'd prefer to ride a basket. The Eyrie clings to the mountain directly above sky, and in its cellars are six great winches with long iron chains to draw supplies up from below. If you prefer, my Lord of Lannister, I can arrange for you to ride up with the bread and beer and apples. The dwarf gave a bark of laughter. <laughs> oh, would that I were a pumpkin, he said. Alas, my Lord Father would no doubt be most chagrined if his son of Lannister went to his fate like a load of turnips. If you ascend on foot, I fear I must do the same. We Lannisters do have a certain pride. Pride? Catelyn snapped. His mocking tone and easy manner made her angry. Arrogance, some might call it. Arrogance and avarice and lust for power. My brother is undoubtedly arrogant, Tyrion Lannister replied. My father is the soul of avarice, and my sweet sister Cersei lusts for power with every waking breath. I, however, am innocent as a little lamb. Shall I bleat for you? he grinned. The drawbridge came creaking down before she could reply, and they heard the sound of oil chains as the portcullis was drawn up. Men at arms carried burning brands out to light their way, and her uncle led them across the moat. Lord Nestor Royce, high steward of the Vale and keeper of the Gates of the Moon, was waiting in the yard to greet them, surrounded by his knights. Lady Stark! he said, bowing. He was a massive, barrel-chested man, and his bow was clumsy. Catelyn dismounted to stand before him. Lord Nestor, she said. She knew the man only by reputation. Bronze Yon's cousin, from a lesser branch of House Royce, yet still a formidable lord in his own right. We have had a long and tiring journey. I would beg the hospitality of your roof tonight, if I might. "'My roof is yours, my lady,' Lord Nestor returned gruffly. "'But your sister, the Lady Lysa, has sent down word from the Eyrie. "'She wishes to see you at once. 
and the rest of your party will be housed here and sent up first light. Her uncle swung off his horse. What madness is this? he said bluntly. Brindon Tully had never been a man to blunt the edge of his words. A night ascent? With the moon not even full? Even Lysa should know that's an invitation to a broken neck. The mules know the way, Sir Bryden. A wiry girl of seventeen or eighteen years stepped up beside Lord Nestor. Her dark hair was cropped short and straight around her head, and she wore riding leathers and a light shirt of silvered ringmail. She bowed to Catelyn more gracefully than her lord. I promise you, my lady, no harm will come to you. It would be my honour to take you up. I've made this dark climb a hundred times. Marco says my father must have been a goat. She sounded so cocky that Catelyn had to smile. Do you have a name, child? Maya Stone, if it please you, my lady, the girl said. It did not please her. It was an effort for Catelyn to keep the smile on her face. Stone was a bastard's name in the Vale, as snow was in the north, and flowers in High Garden. In each of the seven kingdoms, custom had fashioned a surname for children born with no names of their own. Catelyn had nothing against this girl, but suddenly she could not help but think of Ned's bastard on the wall, and the thought made her angry and guilty, both at once. She struggled to find words for reply. Lord Nestor filled the silence. Maya's a clever girl, and if she vows she will bring you safely to Lady Lysa, I believe her. She has not failed me yet. Then I put myself in your hands, Maya Stone, Catelyn said. Lord Nestor, I charge you to keep a close guard on my prisoner. And I charge you to bring the prisoner a cup of wine and a nicely crisp capon before he dies of hunger, Lannister said. A girl would be pleasant as well, but I suppose that's too much to ask of you. The sellsword Bronn laughed aloud. Lord Nestor ignored the banter. As you say, my lady, so it will be done. Only then did he look at the dwarf. See our lord of Lannister to a tower cell, and bring him meat and mead. Catelyn took leave of her uncle and the others, as Tyrion Lannister was led off, then followed the bastard girl through the castle. Two mules were waiting in the upper bailey, saddled and ready. Maya helped her mount one, while a guardsman in a sky-blue cloak opened the narrow postern gate. Beyond was dense forest of pine and spruce, and the mountain like a black wall. But the steps were there, chiseled deep into the rock, ascending into the sky. Some people find it easier if they close their eyes, Maya said as she led the mules through the gate into the dark wood. When they get frightened or dizzy sometimes, they hold onto the mules too tight. They don't like that. I was born a Tully, and wed to a Stark, Catelyn said. I do not frighten easily. Do you plan to light a torch? The steps were black as pitch. The girl made a face. Torches just blind you. On a clear night like this, the moon and the stars are enough. Michael says I have the eyes of the owl. She mounted and urged her mule up the first step. Catelyn's animal followed of its own accord. You mentioned Michael before, Catelyn said. The mule set the pace slow but steady. 
She was perfectly content with that. Michael's my love, Meyer explained. Michael Redfort, his squire to Sir Lynn Corbray. We're to wed as soon as he becomes a knight next year or the year after. She sounded so like Sansa, so happy and innocent with her dreams. Catelyn smiled, but the smile was tinged with sadness. The Redforts were an old name in the Vale, she knew, with the blood of the first men in their veins. His love she might be, but no Redfort would ever wed a bastard. His family would arrange a more suitable match for him, to a Corbray or a Wainwood or a Royce, or perhaps a daughter of some greater house outside the Vale. If Michael Redford laid with this girl at all, it would be on the wrong side of the sheet. The ascent was easier than Catelyn had dared hope. The trees pressed close, leaning over the path to make a rustling green roof that shut out even the moon, so it seemed as though they were moving up a long black tunnel. But the mules were sure-footed and tireless, and Myrstone did indeed seem blessed with night eyes. They plodded upward, winding their way back and forth across the face of the mountain as the steps twisted and turned. A thick layer of fallen needles carpeted the path, so the shoes of their mules made only the softest sound on the rock. The quiet soothed her, and the gentle rocking motion set Catelyn to swaying in her saddle. Before long, she was fighting sleep. Perhaps she did doze for a moment, for suddenly a massive iron-bound gate was looming before them. Stone! Meyer announced cheerily, dismounting. Iron spikes were set along the tops of formidable stone walls, and two fat round towers overtopped the keep. The gate swung open at Meyer's shout. Inside, the portly knight who commanded the way castle greeted Meyer by name and offered them skewers of charred meat and onions still hot from the spit. Catelyn had not realized how hungry she was. She ate, standing in the yard, as stable hands moved their saddles to fresh mules. The hot juices ran down her chin and dripped onto her cloak, but she was too famished to care. Then it was up onto a new mule, and out again into the starlight. The second part of the ascent seemed even more treacherous to Catelyn. The trail was steeper, the steps more worn, and here and there littered with pebbles and broken stone. Maya had to dismount a half-dozen times to move fallen rocks from their path. "'You don't want your mule to break a leg up here,' she said. Catelyn was forced to agree. She could feel the altitude more now. The trees were sparser up here, and the wind blew more vigorously, sharp gusts that tugged at her clothing and pushed her hair into her eyes. From time to time the steps doubled back on themselves, and she could see stone below them, and the gates of the moon farther down, its torches no brighter than candles. Snow was smaller than stone, a single fortified tower, and a timber keep and stable hidden behind a low wall of unmortared rock. Yet it nestled against the giant's lance in such a way as to command the entire stone stair above the lower way castle. An enemy intent on the Eyrie would have to fight his way from stone, step by step, while rocks and arrows rained down from snow above. 
The commander, an anxious young knight, with a pockmarked face, offered bread and cheese and the chance to warm themselves before his fire, but Maya declined. "'We ought to keep going, my lady,' she said, "'if it please you,' Catelyn nodded. Again they were given a fresh mules. Hers was white. Maya smiled when she saw him. "'White is a good one, my lady, sure of foot, even on ice. But you need to be careful.' He'll kick if he doesn't like you. The white mule seemed to like Catelyn. There was no kicking, thank the gods. There was no ice either, and she was grateful for that as well. My mother says that hundreds of years ago, this was where the snow began, Maya said. It was always white above here, and the ice never melted, she shrugged. I can't remember ever seeing snow this far down the mountain, but maybe... It was that way once, in the olden times. So young, Catelyn thought, trying to remember if she had ever been like that. The girl had lived half her life in summer, and that was all she knew. Winter is coming, child, she wanted to tell her. The words were on her lips. She almost said them. Perhaps she was becoming a Stark at last. Above snow, the wind was a living thing, howling around them like a wolf in the waste, then falling away to nothing as if to lure them into complacency. The stars seemed brighter up here, so close that she could almost touch them, and the horned moon was huge in the clear black sky. As they climbed, Catelyn found it was better to look up than down. The steps were cracked and broken from centuries of freeze and thaw, and the tread of countless mules, and even in the dark the heights put her heart in her throat. When they came to a high saddle between two spires of rock, Maya dismounted. "'It's best to lead the mules over,' she said. "'The wind can be a little scary here, my lady.' Catelyn climbed stiffly from the shadows and looked at the path ahead. Twenty feet long and close to three feet wide, but with a precipitous drop on either side. She could hear the wind shrieking. Maya stepped lightly out, her mule following as calmly as if they were crossing a bailey. It was her turn. Yet no sooner had she taken her first step than fear called Catelyn in its jaws. She could feel the emptiness, the vast black gulfs of air that yawned around her. She stopped, trembling, afraid to move. The wind screamed at her and wrenched at her cloak, trying to pull her over the edge. Catelyn edged her foot backward, the most timid of steps. But the mule was behind her, and she could not retreat. I... "'I'm going to die here,' she thought. She could feel cold sweat trickling down her back. "'Lady Stark!' Maya called out across the gulf. The girl sounded a thousand leagues away. "'Are you well?' Catelyn Tully Stark swallowed what remained of her pride. "'I, um, I cannot do this, child,' she called out. "'Yes, you can,' the bastard girl said. "'I know you can.' Look how wide the path is. I don't want to look. The world seemed to be spinning around her, mountain and sky and mules whirling like a child's top. Catelyn closed her eyes to steady her ragged breathing. 
I'll come back for you, Maya said. Don't move, my lady. Moving was about the last thing Catelyn was about to do. She listened to the skirling of the wind and the scuffling sound of leather on stone. Then Maya was there, taking her gently by the arm. Keep your eyes closed, if you like. Let go of the rope now. Whitey will take care of himself. Very good, my lady. I'll lead you over. It's easy, you'll see. Give me a step now. That's it. Move your foot. Just slide it forward, see? Now another. Easy. Oh, you could run across. Another one. Go on, yes. And so, foot by foot, step by step, the bastard girl led Catelyn across, blind and trembling, while the white mule followed placidly behind them. The way castle called Sky was no more than a high, crescent-shaped wall of unmortared stone raised against the side of the mountain, but even the topless towers of Beleria could not have looked more beautiful to Catelyn Stark. Here, at last, the snow crown began. Sky's weathered stones were rimmed with frost, and long spears of ice hung from the slopes above. Dawn was breaking in the east, as Maya Stone hallowed for the guards, and the gates opened before them. Inside the walls there was only a series of ramps, and a great tumble of boulders and stones of all sizes. No doubt it would be the easiest thing in the world to begin an avalanche here. A mouth yawned in the rock face in front of him. The stables and barracks are in there, Maya said. The last part is inside the mountain. It can be a little dark, but at least you're out of the wind. This is as far as the mules can go. Past here, well, it's a sort of chimney, more like a stone ladder than proper steps. But it's not too bad. Another hour, and we'll be there. Catelyn looked up. Directly overhead, pale in the dawn light, she could see the foundations of the Eyrie. It could not be more than six hundred feet above them. From below, it looked like a small white honeycomb. She remembered what her uncle had said of baskets and winches. The Lannisters may have their pride, she told Maya, but the Tollys are born with better sense. I have ridden all day, and the best part of a night. Tell them to lower a basket. I shall ride with the turnips. The sun was well over the mountains by the time Catelyn Stark finally reached the area. A stocky, silver-haired man, in a sky-blue cloak and hammered moon and falcon breastplate, helped her from the basket. Savardus Egan, captain of John Aaron's household guard. Beside him stood Maester Coleman, thin and nervous, with too little hair and too much neck. Lady Stark, Savada said, the pleasure is as great as it is unanticipated. Maester Coleman bobbed his head in agreement. Indeed it is, my lady, indeed it is. I have sent word to your sister. She left orders to be awakened the instant you arrived. Well, I hope she had a good night's rest. Catelyn said with a certain bite in her tone that seemed to go unnoticed. The men escorted her from the winch room up a spiral stair. The Eyrie was a small castle by the standards of the great houses, 
seven slender white towers bunched as tightly as arrows in a quiver, on a shoulder of the great mountain. It had no need of stables, nor smithies, nor kennels, but Ned said its granary was as large as Winterfell's, and its towers could house five hundred men. Yet it seemed strangely deserted to Catelyn, as she passed through it, its pale stone halls echoing and empty. Lysa was waiting alone in her solar, still clad in her bedrobes, her long auburn hair tumbled unbound across bare white shoulders and down her back. A maid stood behind her, brushing out the night's tangles, but when Catelyn entered, her sister rose to her feet, smiling. Cat, she said, oh, Cat, how good it is to see you, my sweet sister. She ran across the chamber and wrapped her sister in her arms. How long it has been, Lysa murmured against her. Oh, how very, very long. It had been five years, in truth. Five cruel years for Lysa. They had taken their toll. Her sister was two years the younger, yet she looked older now. Shorter than Catelyn, Lysa had grown thick of body, pale and puffy of face. She had the blue eyes of the Tullys, but hers were pale and watery, never still. Her small mouth had turned petulant. As Catelyn held her, she remembered the slender, high-breasted girl who waited beside her that day in the Septet River Run, how lovely and full of hope she had been. All that remained of her sister's beauty was a great fall of thick auburn hair that cascaded to her waist. "'You look well,' Catelyn lied. "'But tired.' Her sister broke the embrace. "'Tired, yes, oh, yes.' She seemed to notice the others then, her maid, Maester Coleman, Savardis. "'Leave us,' she told them. "'I wish to speak to my sister alone.' She held Catelyn's hand as they withdrew and dropped it the instant the door closed. Catelyn saw her face change. It was as if the sun had gone behind a cloud. "'Have you taken leave of your senses?' Liza snapped at her. "'To bring him here? Without a word of permission? Without so much as a warning? To drag us into your quarrels with the Lannisters?' "'My quarrels?' Catelyn could scarce believe what she was hearing— a great fire burned in the hearth, but there was no trace of warmth in Lysa's voice. "'They were your quarrels first, sister. It was you who sent me that cursed letter, you who wrote that the Lannisters had murdered your husband. To warn you so you could stay away from them. I never meant to fight them. God's cat, do you know what you've done?' "'Mother,' a small voice said. Lysa whirled her heavy robe swirling around her. Robert Aaron, Lord of the Airy, stood in the doorway, clutching a ragged cloth doll and looking at them with large eyes. He was a painfully thin child, small for his age, and sickly all his days, and from time to time he trembled. The shaking sickness, the maesters called it. I heard voices. Small wonder, Catelyn thought. Lysa had almost been shouting. Still, her sister looked daggers at her. This is your Aunt Catelyn, baby. My sister, Lady Stark. Do you remember? The boy glanced at her blankly. 
I think so, he said, blinking, though he had been less than a year old the last time Catelyn had seen him. Lysa seated herself near the fire and said, Come to mother, my sweet one. She straightened his bedclothes and fussed with his fine brown hair. Isn't he beautiful? And strong, too. Don't you believe the things you hear? John knew. The seed is strong, he told me. His last words. He kept saying Robert's name, and he grabbed my arm so hard he left marks. Tell them the seed is strong. His seed. He wanted everyone to know what a good, strong boy my baby was going to be. Lysa, Catelyn said, if you're right about the Lannisters, all the more reason we must act quickly. We— Not in front of the baby, Lysa said. He has a delicate temper. Don't you, sweet one? The boy is lord of the airy and defender of the Vale, Catelyn reminded her. And these are no times for delicacy. Ned thinks it may come to war. Quiet! Lysa snapped at her. You're scaring the boy. Little Robert took a quick peek over his shoulder at Catelyn and began to tremble. His doll fell to the rushes, and he pressed himself against his mother. Don't be afraid, my sweet baby, Lysa whispered. Mother's here. Nothing will hurt you. She opened her robe and drew out a pale, heavy breast tipped with red. The boy grabbed for it eagerly, buried his face against her chest, and began to suck. Lysa stroked his hair. Catelyn was at a loss for words. John Aaron's son, she thought, incredulously. She remembered her own baby, three-year-old Rickon, half the age of this boy and five times as fierce. Small wonder the Lords of the Vale were arrested. For the first time she understood why the king had tried to take the child away from his mother to foster with the Lannisters. We're safe here, Lysa was saying, whether to her or to the boy, Catelyn was not sure. Don't be a fool, Catelyn said, her anger rising in her. No one is safe. If you think hiding here will make the Lannisters forget you, you are sadly mistaken. Lysa covered the boy's ear with her hand. Even if they could bring an army through the mountains and past the bloody gates, the area is impregnable. You saw for yourself. No enemy could ever reach us up here. Catelyn wanted to slap her. Uncle Brynden had tried to warn her, she realized. No castle is impregnable. This one is, Lysa insisted. Everyone says so. The only thing is, what am I to do with this imp you have brought me? Is he a bad man? The Lord of the Eyrie asked, his mother's breast popping from his mouth, the nipple wet and red. A very bad man, Lysa told him as she covered herself. But mother won't let him harm my little baby. Make him fly, Robert said eagerly. Lysa stroked her son's hair. Perhaps we will, she murmured. Perhaps that is just what we will do. Eddard. He found Littlefinger in the brothel's common room, chatting amiably with a tall, elegant woman who wore a feathered gown over skin as black as ink. By the hearth, Hewitt and a buxom wench were playing at forfeits. From the look of it, he lost his belt, his cloak, his mail shirt, and his right boot so far, while the girl had been forced to unbutton her shift to the waist. 
Jory Cassell stood beside a rain-streaked window with a wry smile on his face, watching Hewitt turn over tiles and uh, enjoying the view. Ned paused at the foot of the stair and pulled on his gloves. It's time we took our leave. My business here is done. Hewitt lurched to his feet, hurriedly gathering up his things. As you will, my lord, Jory said. I'll out, Will, bring round the horses. He strode to the door. Littlefinger took his time saying his farewells. He kissed the black woman's hand, whispered some joke that made her laugh aloud, and sauntered over to Ned. Your business, he said lightly, or Robert's? They say the hand dreams the king's dreams, speaks the king's voice, and rules with the king's sword. Does that also mean you fuck with the king's... Lord Baelish, Ned interrupted. You presume too much. I'm not ungrateful for your help. It might have taken us years to find this brothel without you. That does not mean I intend to endure your mockery, and I am no longer the king's hand. The dire wolf must be a prickly beast, said Littlefinger with a sharp twist of his mouth. A warm rain was pelting down from a starless black sky as they walked to the stables. Ned dropped the hood of his cloak. Jory brought out his horse. Young Will came right behind him, leading Littlefinger's mare with one hand, while the other fumbled with his belt and the lacings of his trousers. A barefoot whore leaned out of the stable door, giggling at him. Uh, "'Will we be going back to the castle now, my lord?' Jory asked. Ned nodded, and swung into the saddle. Littlefinger mounted up beside him. Jory and the others followed. "'Chateau runs a choice establishment,' Littlefinger said as they rode. "'I've half a mind to buy it. Brothels are a much sounder investment than ships I've found. Whores seldom sink, and when they are boarded by pirates, why, the pirates pay good coin like everyone else.' <laughs> Lord Petar chuckled at his own wit. Ned let him prattle on. After a time, he quieted, and they rode in silence. The streets of King's Landing were dark and deserted. The rain had driven everyone under their roofs. It beat down on Ned's head, warm as blood and relentless as old gilts. Fat drops of water ran down his face. Robert would never keep to one bed. Leanna had told him, at Winterfell, on the night long ago, when their father had promised her hand to the young lord of Storm's End. I hear he has gotten a child on some girl in the Vale. Ned had held the babe in his arms. He could scarcely deny her, nor would he lie to his sister. But he had assured her that what Robert did before their betrothal was of no matter, that he was a good man, and true who would love her with all his heart. Leanna had only smiled. Love is sweet, dearest Ned, but it cannot change a man's nature. The girl had been so young. Ned had not dared to ask her age. No doubt she had been a virgin. The better brothers could always find a virgin if the purse was fat enough. She had light red hair with a powdering of freckles across the bridge of her nose, and when she slipped free abreast to give her nipple to the babe, he saw that her bosom was freckled as well. I named her Barra, she said, as a child nurse. She looks so like him, does she not, my lord? 
She has his nose and his hair. She does, Edward Stark had touched the baby's fine dark hair. It flowed through his fingers like black silk. Robert's firstborn had had the same fine hair, he seemed to recall. Tell him that when you see him, my lord, as it, as it please you. Tell him how beautiful she is. I will, Ned had promised her. That was his curse. Robert would swear on dying love and forget them before evenfall. But Ned Stark kept his vows. He thought of the promises he'd made Leanna as she lay dying, and the price he'd paid to keep them. And tell him I've not been with no one else. I swear it, my lord, by the old gods and you. Shataya said I could have half a year for the baby and for hoping he'd come back. So you'll tell him I'm waiting, won't you? I don't want no jewels or nothing, just him. He was always good to me, truly. Good to you, Ned thought hollowly. I will tell him, child, and I promise you, Barra shall not go wanting. She had smiled then, a smile so tremulous and sweet that it cut the heart out of him. Riding through the rainy night, Ned saw Jon Snow's face in front of him, so like the younger version of his own. If the gods frowned so on bastards, he thought Dolly, why did they fill men with such lusts? Lord Baelish, what do you know of Robert's bastards? Well, he has more than you, for a start. How many? Littlefinger shrugged. Rivulets of moisture twisted down the back of his cloak. Does it matter? If you bed enough women, some will give you presents, and his grace has never been shy on that count. I know he's acknowledged that boy at Storm's End, the one he fathered the night Lord Stannis wed. He could hardly do otherwise. The mother was a Florent, niece to Lady Selyse, one of her bedmaids. Renly says that Robert carried the girl upstairs during the feast and broke in the wedding bed while Stannis and his bride were still dancing. Lord Stannis seemed to think that was a blot on the honour of his wife's house. So when the boy was born, he shipped him off to Renly. He gave Ned a sideways glance. I've also heard whispers that Robert got a pair of twins on a serving wench at Castle Rock, three years ago when he went west for Lord Tywin's tourney. Cersei had the babes killed, and sold the mother to a passing slaver. Too much an affront to Lannister pride, that close to home. Ned Stark grimaced. Ugly tales like that were told of every great lord in the realm. He could believe it as Cersei Lannister readily enough, but would the king stand by and let it happen? The Robert he had known would not have, but the Robert he had known had never been so practised at shutting his eyes to things he did not wish to see. Why would John Aaron take a sudden interest in the king's base-born children? The short man gave a sudden shrug. He was the king's hand. Doubtless, Robert asked him to see they were provided for. Ned was soaked through to the bone, and his soul had grown cold. It had to be more than that, or why kill him? Littlefinger shook the rain from his hair and laughed. Now, I see. Lord Aaron learned that his grace had filled the bellies of some whores and fishwives, and for that he had to be silenced. Small wonder, 
allow a man like that to live, and next he's likely to blurt out that the sun rises in the east. There was no answer Ned Stark could give to that but a frown. For the first time in years he found himself remembering Rhaegar Targaryen. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Somehow he thought not. The rain was falling harder now, stinging the eyes and drumming against the ground. Rivers of black water were running down the hill when Jory called out, "'My lord!' his voice hoarse with alarm. And in an instant the street was full of soldiers. Ned glimpsed ringmail over leather, gauntlets and greaves, steel helms with golden lions on the crests. Their cloaks clung to their backs sudden with rain. He had no time to count, but there were ten at least, a line of them, on foot, blocking the street, with long swords and iron-tipped spears. "'Behind!' he heard Will cry, and when he turned his horse, there were more in back of them, cutting off their retreat. Jory's sword came singing from its scabbard. "'Make way or die!' "'The wolves are howling,' their leader said. Ned could see rain running down his face. Such a small pack, though. Littlefinger walked his horse forward, step by careful step. What is the meaning of this? This is the hand of the king. He was the hand of the king. The mud muffled the hooves of the blood-bay stallion. The lion parted before him. On a golden breastplate the lion of Lannister roared its defiance. Now, if truth be told, I'm not sure what he is. "'Lannister, this is madness,' Littlefinger said. "'Let us pass. We're expected back at the castle. "'What do you think you're doing?' "'He knows what he's doing,' Ned said calmly. "'Jamie Lannister smiled. "'Quite true. I'm looking for my brother. "'You remember my brother, don't you, Lord Stark? "'He was with us at Winterfell. "'Fair-haired, mismatched eyes, sharp of tongue, a short man.' I remember him well, Ned replied. It would seem he has met some trouble on the road. My lord father is quite vexed. You would not perchance have any notion of who might have wished my brother ill, would you? Your brother has been taken at my command to answer for his crimes, Ned Stark said. Littlefinger groaned in dismay. Oh, my lord! Sir Jamie ripped the longsword from his sheath and urged his stallion forward. "'Show me your steel, Lord Eddard. "'I'll butcher you like Ares if I must. "'But I'd sooner you died with a blade in your hand.' "'He gave Littlefinger a cool, contemptuous glance. "'Lord Baelish, I'd leave here in some haste "'if I did not care to get bloodstains on my costly clothing.' "'Littlefinger did not need to be urged. "'I will bring the city watch,' he promised Ned. "'The Lannister line parted to let him through,' and closed behind him. Littlefinger put his heels to his mare and vanished around a corner. Ned's men had drawn their swords, but there were three against twenty. Eyes watched from nearby windows and doors, but no one was about to intervene. His party was mounted, the Lannisters on foot, save for Jamie himself. A charge might win them free, but it seemed to Eddard Stark that they had a surer, safer tactic. "'Kill me!' He warned the king's lair, and Catelyn will most certainly slay Tyrion. Jamie Lannister poked at Ned's chest with a gilded sword 
that had sipped the blood of the last of the Dragon Kings. Would she? The noble Catelyn Tully of Riverrun murder a hostage? I think not, he sighed. But I am not willing to chance my brother's life on a woman's honour. Jamie slid the golden sword into its sheath. So I suppose I'll let you run back to Robert to tell him how I frightened you. I wonder if he'll care. Jamie pushed his wet hair back with his fingers and wheeled his horse around. When he was beyond the line of swordsmen, he glanced back at his captain. Trigar, see that no harm comes to Lord Stark. As you say, my lord. Still, we wouldn't want him to leave here entirely unchastened, so... Through the night and the rain he glimpsed the white of Jamie's smile. Kill his men. No! Ned Stark screamed, clawing for his sword. Jamie was already cantering off down the street as he heard Will shout. Men closed from both sides. Ned rode one down, cutting at phantoms in red cloaks who gave way before him. Jorick Hussell put his heels into his mount and charged. A steel shod hoof caught a Lannister guardsman in the face with a sickening crunch. A second man reeled away, and for an instant Jory was free. Will cursed as they pulled him off his dying horse, swords slashing in the rain. Ned galloped to him, bringing his longsword down on Trigar's helm. The jolt of impact made him grit his teeth. Trigar stumbled to his knees, his lion crest sheared in half, blood running down his face. Hewitt was hacking at the hands that had seized his bridle when a spear caught him in the belly. Suddenly Jory was back among them, a red rain flying from his sword. No! Ned shouted. Jory, away! Ned's horse slipped under him and came crashing down in the mud. There was a moment of blinding pain and the taste of blood in his mouth. He saw them cut the legs from Jory's mount and drag him to the earth, swords rising and falling as they closed in around him. When Ned's horse lurched back to its feet, he tried to rise, but only to fall again, choking on his scream. He could see the splintered bone poking through his calf. It was the last thing he saw for a time. The rain came down and down and down. When he opened his eyes again, Lord Eddard Stark was alone with his dead. His horse moved closer, caught the rank smell of blood, and galloped away. Ned began to drag himself through the mud, gritting his teeth at the agony in his leg. It seemed to take years. Faces watched from candlelit windows, and people began to emerge from alleys and doors, but no one moved to help. Littlefinger and the City Watch found him there in the street, cradling Jory Cassell's body in his arms. Somewhere the gold cloaks found a litter, but the trip back to the castle was a blur of agony, and Ned lost consciousness more than once. He remembered seeing the red keep looming ahead of him in the first grey light of dawn. The rain had darkened the pale pink stone of the massive walls to the colour of blood. Then Grand Maester Pycelle was looming over him, holding a cup, whispering, Drink, my lord, here, the milk of the poppy, for your pain. He remembered swallowing, and Pycelle was telling someone to heat the wine to boiling and fetch him clean silk,
and that was the last he knew. Daenerys The horse gate of Aes Dothrak was made of two gigantic bronze stallions, rearing, their hooves meeting a hundred feet above the roadway to form a pointed arch. Danair could not have said why the city needed a gate when it had no walls and no buildings that she could see, yet there it stood, immense and beautiful, the great horses framing the distant purple mountain beyond. The bronze stallions threw long shadows across the waving grasses as Karl Drogo led the Kalasar under their hooves and down the god's way, his blood riders beside him. Danny followed on her silver, escorted by Sir Jorah Mormont, and her brother Viserys mounted once more. After the day in the grass, when she had left him to walk back to the Kalasar, the Dothraki had laughingly called him Kalre Ma, the sore-foot king. Karl Droger had offered him a place in a cart the next day, and Viserys had accepted. In his stubborn ignorance, he had not even known he was being mocked. The carts were for eunuchs, cripples, women giving birth, the very young and the very old. That won him yet another name, Karl Ragat, the Cart King. Her brother had thought it was the Karl's way of apologizing for the wrong Danny had done him. She had begged Sir Jorah not to tell him the truth, lest he be shamed. The knight had replied that the king could well do with a bit of shame. Yet he had done as she bid. It had taken much pleading, and all the pillow tricks Doria had taught her, before Danny had been able to make Drogo relent and allow Viserys to rejoin them at the head of the column. Where is the city? she asked, as they passed underneath the bronze arch. There were no buildings to be seen, no people, only the grass and the road, lined with ancient monuments from all the lands the Dothraki had sacked over the centuries. Ahead, Sir Jorah answered, under the mountain. Beyond the horse gate, plundered guards and stolen heroes loomed on either side of them. The forgotten deities of dead cities brandished their broken thunderbolts at the sky as Danny rode her silver past their feet. Stoned kings looked down on her from their thrones, their faces chipped and stained, even their names lost in the mists of time. Lithe young maidens danced on marble plinths draped only in flowers or poured air from shattered jars. Monsters stood in the grass beside the road, black iron dragons with jewels for eyes, roaring griffins, manticores with their barbed tails poised to strike, and other beasts she could not name. Some of the statues were so lovely they took her breath away, others so misshapen and terrible that Danny could scarcely bear to look at them. Those, Sir Jorah said, had likely come from the Shadowlands beyond the Ashai. So many, she said, as her silver stepped slowly onward, and from so many lands. Viserys was less impressed. The trash of dead cities, he sneered. He was careful to speak in the common tongue, which few Dothraki could understand. Yet even so, Danny found herself glancing back at the men in her cars to make sure 
he had not been overheard. He went on bitterly. All these savages know how to do is steal things better men have built and kill. He laughed. Oh, they do know how to kill. Otherwise, I'd have no use for them at all. They are my people now, Danny said. You should not call them savages, brother. The dragon speaks as he likes, Viserys said, in the common tongue. He glanced over his shoulder at Ego and Ricaro riding behind them, and favoured them with a mocking smile. See, the savages lack the wit to understand the speech of civilised men. A moss-eaten stone monolith loomed over the road, fifty feet tall. Viserys glanced at it with boredom in his eyes. How long must we linger amongst these ruins before Drogo gives me my army? I grow tired of waiting. The princess must be presented to the Dosh Kaleen. Uh, the crones, yes, her brother interrupted. And there's to be some mummer's show of a prophecy for the whelp in her belly, you tell me. What is that to me? I'm tired of eating horse meat, and I'm sick of the stink of these savages. He sniffed at the wide, floppy sleeves of his tunic, where it was his custom to keep a sachet. It could not have helped much. The tunic was filthy. All the silk and heavy wools that Viserys had worn out of Pentos were stained by hard travel and rotted from sweat. Sir Jorah Mormon said, The Western market will have food more to your taste, Your Grace. The traders from the free cities come there to sell their wares. The Carl will honour his promise in his own time. He had better, Viserys said grimly. I was promised a crown, and I mean to have it. The dragon is not mocked. Spying an obscene likeness of a woman with six breasts and a ferret's head, he rode off to inspect it more closely. Danny was relieved, yet no less anxious. I pray that my sun and stars will not keep him waiting too long, she told Sir Jorah, when her brother was out of earshot. The knight looked after the series doubtfully. Your brother should have bided his time in Pentos. There's no place for him in a calisar. Illyrio tried to warn him. He will go as soon as he has his ten thousand. My lord husband promised a golden crown. Sir Jorah grunted, Yes, Khaleesi, but the Dothraki look on these things differently than we do in the West. I have told him as much, as Illyria told him, but your brother does not listen. The horse lords are no traders. Viserys thinks he is soldier, and now he wants his price. Yet Karl Drogo would say he had you as a gift. He will give Viserys a gift in return, yes, in his own time. You do not demand a gift, not of a cow. You do not demand anything of a cow. It's not right to make him wait. Danny did not know why she was defending her brother, yet she was. Viserys says he could sweep the Seven Kingdoms with ten thousand Dothraki screamers. So Jorah snorted. Viserys could not sweep a stable with ten thousand brooms. Danny could not pretend to surprise at the disdain in his tone. What, what if it were not Viserys, she asked, if it were someone else who led them, someone stronger? Could the Dothraki truly conquer the Seven Kingdoms? Sir Jorah's face grew thoughtful as their horses trod together down the God's Way. When I first went into exile, 
I looked at the Dothraki and saw half-naked barbarians, as wild as their horses. If you'd asked me then, Princess, I should have told you that a thousand good knights would have no trouble putting to flight a hundred times as many Dothraki. But if I asked you now? Now, the knight said, I'm less certain. They're better riders than any knight, utterly fearless, and their bows outrange ours. In the Seven Kingdoms, most archers fight on foot, from behind a shield wall or a barricade of sharpened stakes. The Dothraki far from horseback, charging or retreating, it makes no matter. They are full as deadly. And there are so many of them, my lady. Your lord husband alone counts forty thousand mounted warriors in his calisar. Is that truly so many? Your brother Rhaegar brought as many men to the trident, Sir Jorah admitted. But of that number, no more than a tenth were knights. The rest were archers, free-riders, and foot-soldiers armed with spears and pikes. When Rhaegar fell, many threw down their weapons and fled the field. How long do you imagine such a rabble would stand against the charge of forty thousand screamers howling for blood? How well would boiled leather jerkins and mail shirts protect them when the arrows fall like rain? Not long, she said, not well. He nodded. Mind you, princess, if the lords of the seven kingdoms have the wit the gods gave a goose, it will never come to that. The riders have no taste for siegecraft. I doubt they could take even the weakest castle in the seven kingdoms. But if Robert Baratheon were fool enough to give them battle— Is he? Danny asked. A fool, I mean. Sir Jorah considered that for a moment. Robert— "'Should have been born Dothraki,' he said at last. "'Your cull will tell you that only a coward hides behind stone walls "'instead of facing his enemy with a blade in hand. "'The usurper would agree. "'He's a strong man, brave, and rash enough to meet a Dothraki horde in the open field. "'But the men around him, well, their pipers play a different tune. "'His brother Stannis, Lord Tywin Lannister,' Eddard Stark, he spat. You hate this Lord Stark, Danny said. He took for me all that I loved, for the sake of a few lice-ridden poachers and his precious honour, Sir Jorah said bitterly. From his tone, she could tell the loss still pained him. He changed the subject quickly. There, he announced, pointing, Vase Dothrak, the city of the horse lords. Carl Drogo and his blood-riders led them through the great bazaar of the western market down the broad ways beyond. Danny followed, close on her silver, staring at the strangeness about her. Vase Dothrak was at once the largest city and the smallest that she had ever known. She thought it must be ten times as large as Pentos, a vastness without walls or limits, its broad, wind-swept streets paved in grass and mud and carpeted with wild flowers. In the free cities of the West, towers and manses and hovels and bridges and shops and halls all crowded in on one another. But Vase Dothrak sprawled languorously, baking in the warm sun, ancient, arrogant, and empty. Even the buildings were so queer to her eyes. 
She saw carved stone pavilions, manses of woven grass as large as castles, rickety wooden towers, step pyramids faced with marble, log halls open to the sky. In place of walls, some palaces were surrounded by thorny hedges. None of them are alike, she said. Your brother had part of the truth, Sir Jorah admitted. The Dothraki do not build. A thousand years ago, to make a house, they would dig a hole in the earth and cover it with a woven grass roof. The buildings, you see, were made by slaves brought here from lands they've plundered, and they built each after the fashion of their own peoples. Most of the halls, even the largest, seem deserted. Where are the people who live here? Danny asked. The bazaar had been full of running children and men shouting, but elsewhere she had seen only a few eunuchs going about their business. Only the crones of the Doshkaleen dwell permanently in the sacred city, them and their slaves and servants, Sir Jorah replied. Yet Vez Dothrak is large enough to house every man of every Kalasar, should all the Kals return to the mother at once. The crones have prophesied that one day that will come to pass, so Vez Dothrak must be ready to embrace all its children. Karl Drogo finally called a halt near the eastern market, where the caravans from Yiti and Ashayi and the Shadowlands came to trade, with the mother of mountains looming overhead. Danny smiled as she recalled Magister Illyria's slave girl and her talk of a palace with two hundred rooms and doors of solid silver. The palace was a cavernous wooden feasting hall, its rough-hewn timbered walls rising forty feet, its roof sewn silk, a vast billowing tent that could be raised to keep out the rare rains or lowered to admit the endless sky. Around the hall were broad, grassy horse yards, fenced with high hedges, fire pits, and hundreds of round earthen houses that bulged from the ground like miniature hills covered with grass. A small army of slaves had gone ahead to prepare for Karl Drogo's arrival. As each rider swung down from his saddle, he unbelted his arak and handed it to a waiting slave, and any other weapon he carried as well. Even Karl Drogo himself was not exempt. Sir Jorah had explained that it was forbidden to carry a blade in Vez Dothrak or to shed a free man's blood. Even warring Kalasars put aside their feuds and shared meat and mead together when they were in sight of the Mother of Mountains. In this place, the crones of the Dush Kaleen had decreed all Dothraki were one blood, one Kalasar, one herd. Kohalo came to Danny as Iri and Jiqui were helping her down off her silver. He was the oldest of Drogo's three blood riders, a squat, bald man with a crooked nose and a mouth full of broken teeth, shattered by a mace twenty years before when he saved the young Kalakar from cell swords who hoped to sell him to his father's enemies. His life had been bound to Drogo's the day her lord husband was born. Every Karl had his blood riders. At first Danny had thought of them as a kind of Dothraki Kingsguard, sworn to protect their lord, but he went further than that. 
Jiqui had taught her that a blood rider was more than a god. They were the Carl's brothers, his shadows, his fiercest friends. Blood of my blood, Drogo called them, and so it was. They shared a single life. The ancient traditions of the horse lords demanded that when the Carl died, his blood riders died with him, to ride at his side in the nightlands. If the Carl died at the hands of some enemy, they lived only long enough to avenge him, and then followed him joyfully into the grave. In some Kalasar, Jiqui said, the blood riders shared the Carl's wine, his tent, and even his wives, though never his horses. A man's mount was his own. Daenerys was glad that Carl Drogo did not hold to those ancient ways. She should not have liked being shared. And while old Kaholo treated her kindly enough, the others frightened her. Hago, huge and silent, often glowered as if he had forgotten who she was, and Cutho had cruel eyes and quick hands that liked to hurt. He left bruises on Doria's soft white skin whenever he touched her, and sometimes made Eris sob in the night. Even his horses seemed to fear him. Yet they were bound to Drogo for life and death, so Daenerys had no choice but to accept them. And sometimes she found herself wishing her father had been protected by such men. In the songs, the white knights of the King's Guard were ever noble, valiant, and true. And yet, King Aerys had been murdered by one of them, the handsome boy they now call the Kingslayer, and a second, Sir Barristan the Bold, had gone over to the usurper. She wondered if all men were as false in the Seven Kingdoms. When her son sat the Iron Throne, she would see that he had blood riders of his own to protect him against treachery in his king's guard. Khaleesi, Kaholo said to her in Dothraki, Drogo, who is blood of my blood, commands me to tell you that he must ascend the mother of mountains this night to sacrifice to the gods for his safe return. Only men were allowed to set foot on the mother, Danny knew. The car's blood riders would go with him, and return at dawn. Tell my sun and stars that I dream of him and wait anxious for his return, she replied, thankful. Danny tired more easily as the child grew within her. In truth, a night of rest would be most welcome. Her pregnancy only seemed to have inflamed Drogo's desire for her, and of late his embraces left her exhausted. Doria led her to the hollow hill that had been prepared for her and her carl. It was cool and dim within, like a tent made of earth. Jiqui, a bath, please, she commanded, to wash the dust of travel from her skin and soak her weary bones. It was pleasant to know they would linger here for a while, that she would not need to climb back on her silver on the morrow. The water was scalding hot, as she liked it. I will give my brother his gifts tonight, she decided as Jiqui was washing her hair. He should look a king in the sacred city. Doria, run and find him and invite him to sup with me. Viserys was nicer to the Lysine girl than to her Dothraki handmaids, perhaps because Magister Illyrio had let him bet her back in Pentos. Iri, go to the bazaar and buy fruit and meat, anything but horse flesh. Horse is best, Ira said.
Horse makes man strong. Viserys hates horse meat. As you say, Khaleesi, she brought back a haunch of goat and a basket of fruits and vegetables. Jiqui roasted the meat with sweet grass and fire pods, basting it with honey as it cooked. And there were melons and pomegranates and plums and some queer eastern fruit Danny did not know. While her handmaids prepared the meal, Danny laid out the clothing she had had made to her brother's measure, a tunic and leggings of crisp white linen, leather sandals that laced up to the knee, a bronze medallion belt, a leather vest painted with fire-breathing dragons. The Dothraki would respect him more if he looked less like a beggar, she hoped, and perhaps he would forgive her for shaming him that day in the grass. He was still her king, after all, and her brother. They were both blood of the dragon. She was arranging the last of his gifts, a sand-silk cloak, green as grass with a pale grey border that would bring out the silver in his hair, when Viserys arrived, dragging Doria by the arm. Her eye was red where he'd hit her. "'How dare you send this whore to give me commands?' he said. He shoved the handmaid roughly to the carpet. The anger took Danny utterly by surprise. "'I only wanted—' "'Doria, what did you say?' "'Khaleesi, pardons. Forgive me. I, I went to him as you bid, and told him you commanded him to join you for supper.' "'No one commands a dragon,' Viserys snarled. "'I am your king.' I should have sent you back her head. The Lysine girl quailed, but Danny calmed her with a touch. Don't be afraid. He won't hurt you. Sweet brother, please forgive her. The girl misspoke herself. I told her to ask you to sup with me, if it pleases your grace. She took him by the hand and drew him across the room. Look, these are for you. Viserys frowned suspiciously. What is all this? New Raymond. I had it made for you. Danny smiled shyly. He looked at her and sneered. Dothraki rags! Do you presume to dress me now? Please, you'll be cooler and more comfortable. And I thought, maybe if you dress like them, the Dothraki. Danny did not know how to say it without waking his dragon. Next, you'll want to braid my hair. I'd never... Why was he always so cruel? She had only wanted to help. You have no right to a braid. You have won no victories yet. It was the wrong thing to say. Fury shone from his lilac eyes, yet he dare not strike her, not with a handmaid watching and the warriors of her cars outside. Viserys picked up the cloak and sniffed at it. This stinks of manure. Perhaps I shall use it as a horse blanket. I had Doria sew it specially for you, she told him, wounded. These are garments fit for a carl. I am the lord of the seven kingdoms, not some grass-stained savage with bells in his hair. Viserys spat back at her. He grabbed her arm. You forget yourself, slut. Do you think that big belly will protect you if you wake the dragon? His fingers dug into her arm painfully, and for an instant Danny felt like a child again, quailing in the face of his rage. She reached out with her other hand and grabbed the first thing she touched, the belt she hoped to give him, 
a heavy chain of ornate bronze medallions. She swung it with all her strength. It caught him full in the face. Viserys let go of her. Blood ran down his cheek where the edge of one of the medallions had sliced it open. You are the one who forgets himself, Danny said to him. Didn't you learn anything that day in the grass? Leave me now, before I summon my cars to drag you out, and pray that Karl Drogo does not hear of this, or he will cut open your belly and feed you your own entrails. Viserys scrambled back to his feet. When I come into my kingdom, you will rue this day, slut. He walked off, holding his torn face, leaving her gifts behind him. Drops of his blood had spattered the beautiful sand-silk cloak. Danny clutched the soft cloth to her cheek and sat cross-legged on her sleeping mat. "'Your supper is ready, Khaleesi,' Jiqui announced. "'I'm not hungry,' Danny said sadly. She was suddenly very tired. "'Share the food among yourselves and send some to Sir Jorah, if you would.' After a moment she added, Please bring me one of the dragon's eggs. Iria fetched the egg with a deep green shell, bronze flecks shining amid its scales as she turned it in her small hands. Danny curled up on her side, pulling the sand-silk cloak across her and cradling the egg in the hollow between her swollen belly and small tender breasts. She liked to hold them, they were so beautiful, and sometimes just being close to them made her feel stronger, braver, as if somehow she were drawing strength from the stone dragons locked inside. She was lying there, holding the egg, when she felt the child move within her, as if he were reaching out brother to brother, blood to blood. You are... The dragon, Danny whispered to him. The true dragon. I know it. I know it. And she smiled and went to sleep dreaming of home. Bran A light snow was falling. Bran could feel the flakes on his face melting as they touched his skin like the gentlest of rains. He sat straight atop his horse, watching as the iron portcullis was winched upward. Try as he might to keep calm, his heart was fluttering in his chest. Are you ready? Rob asked. Bran nodded, trying not to let his fear show. He had not been outside Winterfell since his fall, but he was determined to ride out as proud as any knight. Let's ride, then! Rob put his heels into his big, grey-and-white gelding, and the horse walked under the portcullis. "'Go!' Bran whispered to his own horse. He touched her neck lightly, and the small chestnut filly started forward. Bran had named her Dancer. She was two years old, and Joseph had said she was smarter than any horse had a right to be. They had trained her special to respond to rain and voice and touch. Up to now... Bran had only ridden her round the yard. At first, Joseph or Hodor would lead her, while Bran sat strapped to her back in the oversized saddle the imp had drawn up for him. 
but for the past fortnight he had been riding her on his own, trotting her round and round and growing bolder with every circuit. They passed beneath the gatehouse, over the drawbridge, through the outer walls. Summer and grey wind came loping beside them, sniffing at the wind. Close behind came Theon Greyjoy, with his long bow and a quiver of broadheads. He had a mind to take a deer, he had told them. He was followed by four guardsmen in male shirts and quaffs, and Joseph, a stick-thin stableman, whom Rob had named Master of Horse while Holland was away. Maester Lewin brought up the rear, riding on a donkey. Bran would have liked it better if he and Rob had gone off alone, just the two of them, but Hal Mullen would not hear of it, and Maester Lewin backed him. If Bran fell off his horse or injured himself, the maester was determined to be with him. Beyond the castle lay the market square, its wooden stalls deserted now. They rode down the muddy streets of the village past rows of small, neat houses of log and undressed stone. Less than one in five were occupied, thin tendrils of wood smoke curling up from their chimneys. The rest would fill up one by one as it grew colder. When the snow fell and the ice winds howled down out of the north, old Nan said, farmers left their frozen fields and distant holdfasts, loaded up their wagons, and then the winter town came alive. Bran had never seen it happen, but Maester Lewin said the day was looming closer. The end of the long summer was near at hand. Winter is coming. A few villagers eyed the dire wolves anxiously as the riders went past, and one man dropped the wood he was carrying as he shrank away in fear, but most of the town folk had grown used to the sight. They bent the knee when they saw the boys, and Rob greeted each of them with a lordly nod. With his legs unable to grip, the swaying motion of the horse made Bran feel unsteady at first, but the huge saddle with its thick horn and high back cradled him comfortably, and the straps around his chest and thighs would not allow him to fall. After a time, the rhythm began to feel almost natural. His anxiety faded, and a tremulous smile crept across his face. Two serving wenches stood beneath the sign of the smoking log, the local alehouse. When Theon Greyjoy called out to them, the younger girl turned red and covered her face. Theon spurred his mount to move up beside Rob. Sweet Kyra, he said with a laugh. She squirms like a weasel in bed. <laughs> but say a word to her on the street and she blushes pink as a maid. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the night that she and Bessa, not where my brother can hear, Theon? Rob warned him with a glance at Bran. Bran looked away and pretended not to have heard but he could feel Greyjoy's eyes on him. No doubt he was smiling. He smiled a lot, as if the world were a secret joke that only he was clever enough to understand. Rob seemed to admire Theon and enjoyed his company, but Bran had never warmed to his father's ward. Rob rode closer. "'You're doing well, Bran. I want to go faster,' Bran said. Rob smiled. "'As you will.' He sent his gelding into a trot. The wolves raced after him. Bran snapped the reins sharply, and Dancer picked up her pace. He heard a shout from Theon Greyjoy and the hoofbeats of the other horses behind him.
Bran's cloak billowed out, rippling in the wind, and the snow seemed to rush at his face. Rob was well ahead, glancing back over his shoulder from time to time to make sure Bran and the others were following. He snapped the reins again. Smooth as silk, Dancer slid into a gallop. The distance closed. By the time he caught Rob, on the edge of the wolf's wood, two miles beyond the winter town, they had left the others well behind. I can ride, Bran shouted, grinning. It felt almost as good as flying. I'd race you, but I fear you'd win. Rob's tone was light and joking, yet Bran could tell that something was troubling his brother underneath the smile. I don't want to race. Bran looked around for the direwolves. Both had vanished into the wood. Did you hear Summer howling last night? Grey wind was restless too, Rob said. His auburn hair had grown shaggy and unkempt, and a reddish stubble covered his jaw, making him look older than his fifteen years. Sometimes I think they know things, sense things, Rob sighed. I never know how much to tell you, Bran. I wish you were older. I'm eight now, Bran said. Eight isn't so much younger than fifteen, and I'm the heir to Winterfell after you. So you are, Rob sounded sad, and even a little scared. Bran, I need to tell you something. There was a bird last night from King's Landing. Maester Lewin woke me. Bran felt a sudden dread. Dark wings, dark words, old Nan always said. And of late, the messenger ravens had been proving the truth of that proverb. When Rob wrote to the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, the bird that came back brought word that Uncle Benjen was still missing. Then a message had arrived from the Eyrie for Mother, but that had not been good news either. She did not say when she meant to return, only that she had taken the imp as prisoner. Bran had sort of liked the little man, yet the name Lannister sent cold fingers creeping up his spine. There was something about the Lannisters, something he ought to remember, but when he tried to think what, he felt dizzy, and his stomach clenched hard as a stone. Rob spent most of that day, locked behind closed doors, with Maester Lewin, Theon Greyjoy, and Hallas Mollen. Afterwards, riders were sent out on fast horses, carrying Rob's commands throughout the north. Bran heard talk of Moat Caelan, the ancient stronghold the first men had built at the top of the neck. No one ever told him what was happening, yet he knew it was not good. And now another raven, another message. Bran clung to hope. Was the bird from Mother? Is she coming home? The message was from Alan in King's Landing. Jory Cassell is dead, and Will, and Heward as well. "'murdered by the Kingslayer. "'Rob lifted his face to the snow, "'and the flakes melted on his cheeks. "'May the gods give them rest.' "'Bran did not know what to say. "'He felt as if he'd been punched. "'Jory had been captain of the household guard at Winterfell "'since before Bran was born. "'They killed Jory?' "'He remembered all the times Jory had chased him over the roofs, he could picture him striding across the yard in mail and plate, or sitting at his accustomed place on the bench in the great hall, joking as he ate. Why would anyone kill Jory? Rob shook his head numbly. 
the pain plain in his eyes. I don't know, and, Bran, that's not the worst of it. Father was caught beneath a falling horse in the fight. Alan says his leg was shattered, and Maestro Pycelle has given him the milk of the poppy, but they aren't sure when... when he... The sound of hoofbeats made him glance down the road to where Theon and the others were coming up. When he will wake, Rob finished. He laid his hand on the pommel of his sword then, and he went on in the solemn voice of Rob the Lord. Bran, I promise you, whatever may happen, I will not let this be forgotten. Something in his tone made Bran feel even more fearful. What will you do? he asked as Theon Greyjoy reined in beside them. Theon thinks I should call the banners, Rob said. Blood for blood. For once Greyjoy did not smile. His lean, dark face had a hungry look to it, and black hair fell down across his eyes. Only the Lord can call the banners, Bran said, as the snow drifted down on them. If your father dies, Theon said, Rob will be Lord of Winterfell. He won't die, Bran screamed at him. Rob took his hand. He won't die, not father, he said calmly. Still, the honour of the North is in my hands now. When our Lord Father took his leave of us, he told me to be strong for you and for Rickon. I'm almost a man grown, Bran. Bran shivered. I wish Mother was back, he said miserably. He looked around for Maester Lewin. His donkey was visible in the far distance, trotting over a rise. Does Maester Lewin say to call the banners to? The Maester is as timid as an old woman, said Theon. Father always listened to his counsel, Bran reminded his brother. Mother, too. I listened to him, Rob said. I listened to everyone. The joy Bran had felt at the ride was gone, melted away like the snowflakes on his face. Not so long ago, the thought of Rob calling the banners and riding off to war would have filled him with excitement, but now he felt only dread. Can we go back now, he said. I'm cold. Rob glanced around. We need to find the wolves. Can you stand to go a bit longer? I can go as long as you can. Maester Lewin had warned him to keep the ride short for fear of saddle sores, but Bran would not admit to weakness in front of his brother. He was sick of the way everyone was always fussing over him and asking how he was. Let's hunt down the hunters, then, Rob said. Side by side, they urged their mounts off the King's Road and struck out into the wolf's wood. Theon dropped back and followed well behind, talking and joking with the guardsmen. It was nice under the trees. Bran kept Dancer to a walk, holding the reins lightly, and looking all around him as they went. He knew this wood, but he had been so long confined to Winterfell that he felt as though he was seeing it for the first time. The smells filled his nostrils, the sharp, fresh tang of pine needles, the earthy odour of wet, rotting leaves, the hint of animal musk and distant cooking fires. He caught a glimpse of a black squirrel moving through the snow-covered branches of an oak, and paused to study the silvery web of an empress spider. Theon and the others fell farther and farther behind until Bran could no longer hear their voices. From ahead, 
came the faint sound of rushing water. It grew louder until they reached the stream. Tears stung his eyes. Bran? Rob asked. What's wrong? Bran shook his head. I was just remembering, he said. Jory brought us here once to fish for trout. You and me and John, do you remember? I remember, Rob said, his voice quiet and sad. I didn't catch anything, Bran said, but John gave me his fish on the way back to Winterfell. Will we ever see John again? We saw Uncle Benjamin when the king came to visit, Rob pointed out. John will visit too, you'll see. The stream was running high and fast. Rob dismounted and led his gelding across the ford. In the deepest part of the crossing, the water came up to mid-thigh. He tied his horse to a tree on the far side and waded back across for Bran and Dancer. The current foamed around rock and root, and Bran could feel the spray on his face as Rob led him over. It made him smile. For a moment he felt strong again and whole. He looked up at the trees and dreamed of climbing them, right up to the very top with the whole forest spread out beneath him. They were on the far side when they heard the howl, a long, rising wail that moved through the trees like a cold wind. Bran raised his head to listen. "'Summer,' he said. No sooner had he spoken than a second voice joined the first. "'They've made a kill,' Rob said as he remounted. "'I'd best go and bring them back.' Wait here. Theon and the others should be along shortly. I want to go with you, Bran said. I'll find them faster by myself. Rob spurred his gilding and vanished into the trees. Once he was gone, the woods seemed to close in around Bran. The snow was falling more heavily now. Where it touched the ground, it melted. But all about him, rock and root and branch wore a thin blanket of white. As he waited, he was conscious of how uncomfortable he felt. He could not feel his legs, hanging useless in the stirrups, but the strap around his chest was tight and chafing, and the melting snow had soaked through his gloves to chill his hands. He wondered what was keeping Theon and Maester Lewin and Joseph and the rest. When he heard the rustle of leaves, Bran used his rein to make Dance a turn, expecting to see his friends. But the ragged men who stepped out onto the bank of the stream were strangers. "'Good day to you,' he said nervously. One look, and Bran knew they were neither foresters nor farmers. He was suddenly conscious of how richly he was dressed. His surcoat was new, dark grey wool with silver buttons and a heavy silver pin fastened his fur-trimmed cloak at the shoulders. His boots and gloves were lined with fur as well. "'All alone, are you?' said the biggest of them, a bald man with a raw, wind-burnt face. "'Lost in the wolfswood, poor lad.' "'I'm not lost.' Bran did not like the way the strangers were looking at him. He counted four but when he turned his head, he saw two others behind him. My brother rode off just a moment ago, and my guard will be here shortly. Your guard, is it? a second man said. Gray stubble covered his gaunt face. 
And what would they be guarding, my little lord? Is that a silver pin I see on your cloak? Pretty, said a woman's voice. She scarcely looked like a woman, tall and lean, with the same hard face as the others, her hair hidden beneath a bowl-shaped half-helm. The spear she held was eight feet of black oak, tipped in rusted steel. "'Let's have a look,' said the big bald man. Bran watched him anxiously. The man's clothes were filthy, fallen almost to pieces, patched here with brown, and here with blue, and there with a dark green, and faded everywhere to grey. But once the cloak might have been black. The grey stubbly man wore black rags, too, he saw with a sudden start. Suddenly Bran remembered the oath-breaker his father had beheaded. The day they had found the wolf-pups, that man had worn black as well, and father said he had been a deserter from the night's watch. No man is more dangerous, he remembered Lord Eddard saying. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile or cruel. The pin, lad, the big man said. He held out his hand. We'll take the horse, too, said another of them, a woman shorter than Rob, with a broad, flat face and lank yellow hair. Get down and be quick about it. A knife slid from her sleeve into her hand, its edge jagged as a saw. No, Bran blurted, I can't. The big man grabbed his reins before Bran could think to wheel dance around and gallop off. You can, Lord Ling, and will, if you know what's good for you. Steve, look how he's strapped on, the tall woman pointed with her spear. Might be it's the truth he's telling. Straps, is it? Steve said. He drew a dagger from a sheath at his belt. There's ways to deal with straps. You some kind of cripple? asked the short woman. Bran flared. I'm Brandon Stark of Winterfell, and you'd better let go of my horse, or I'll see you all dead. The gaunt man, with a grey stubbled face, laughed. <laughs> the boy is a Stark, true enough. <laughs> Only a Stark would be fool enough to threaten, where smarter men would beg. Cut his little cock off and stuff it in his mouth, suggested the short woman. That should shut him up. You're as stupid as you are ugly, Harley, said the tall woman. The boy's worth nothing dead but alive. God's be damned, think what Mance would give to have Benjamin Stark's own blood hostage. Mance be damned, the big man cursed. You want to go back there, Osher? More fool you. Think the White Walkers would care if you have a hostage? He turned back to Bran and slashed at the strap around his thigh. The leather parted with a sigh. The stroke had been quick and careless, biting deep. Looking down, Bran glimpsed pale flesh where the wool of his legging had parted. Then the blood began to flow. He watched the red stain spread, feeling light-headed, curiously apart. There'd been no pain, not even a hint of feeling. The big man grunted in surprise. Put down your steel now, and I promise you, you shall have a quick and painless death, Rob called out. Bran looked up in desperate hope, and there he was. The strength of his words were undercut 
by the way his voice cracked with strain. He was mounted, the bloody carcass of an elk slung across the back of his horse, his sword in a gloved hand. The brother, said the man with a grey stubbly face. He's a fierce one, mocked the short woman. Hardy, they called her. You mean to fight us, boy? Don't be a fool, lad. You're one against six. The tall woman, Usher, leveled her spear. Off the horse and throw down the sword. We'll thank you kindly for the mount and for the venison, and you and your brother can be on your way. Rob whistled. They heard the faint sound of soft feet on wet leaves. The undergrowth parted, low-hanging branches giving up their accumulation of snow, and grey wind and summer emerged from the green. Summer sniffed the air and growled. "'Wolves!' gasped Harley. "'Dire wolves,' Brand said. Still half-grown, they were as large as any wolf he had ever seen. But the differences were easy to spot if you knew what to look for. Maester Lewin and Farlan, the kennel-master, had taught him. A dire wolf had a bigger head and longer legs in proportion to its body, and its snout and jaw were markedly leaner and more pronounced. There was something gaunt and terrible about them as they stood there amid the gently falling snow. Fresh blood spotted Grey Wind's muzzle. Dogs, the big bald man said contemptuously. Yet I'm told there's nothing like a wolfskin cloak to warm a man by night. He made a sharp gesture. Take them. Rob shouted, Winterfell, and kicked his horse. The gelding plunged down the bank as the ragged men closed. A man with an axe rushed in, shouting and heedless. Rob's sword caught him full in the face with a sickening crunch and a spray of bright blood. The man with the gaunt, stubbly face made a grab for the reins, and for half a second he had them, and then grey wind was on him, bearing him down. He fell back into the stream with a splash and a shout, flailing wildly with his knife as his head went under. The dire wolf plunged in after him, and the white water turned red where they had vanished. Rob and Usher matched blows in midstream. Her long spear was a steel-headed serpent, flashing out at his chest, once, twice, three times. But Rob parried every thrust with his longsword, turning the point aside. On the fourth or fifth thrust, the tall woman overextended herself and lost her balance, just for a second. Rob charged, riding her down. A few feet away, Summer darted in and snapped at Harley. The knife bit at his flank. Summer slid away, snarling, and came rushing in again. This time his jaws closed around her calf. Holding the knife with both hands, the small woman stabbed down, but the dire wolf seemed to sense the blade coming. He pulled free for an instant, his mouth full of leather and cloth and bloody flesh. When Harley stumbled and fell, he came at her again, slamming her backward, teeth tearing at her belly. The sixth man ran from the carnage, but not far. As he went scrambling up the far side of the bank, grey wind emerged from the stream, dripping wet. He shook the water off and bounded after the running man, hamstringing him with a single snap of his teeth and going for the throat as the screaming man slid back down toward the water.
And then there was no one left but the big man, Stiv. He slashed at Bran's chest strap, grabbed his arm, and yanked. Suddenly Bran was falling. He sprawled on the ground, his legs tangled under him, one foot in the stream. He could not feel the cold of the water, but he felt the steel when Stiv pressed his dagger to his throat. "'Buck away!' the man warned. "'Or I'll open the boy's windpipe, I swear it!' Rob reined his horse in, breathing hard. The fury went out of his eyes, and his sword-arm dropped. In that moment Bran saw everything. Summer was savaging Harley, pulling glistening blue snakes from her belly. Her eyes were wide and staring. Bran could not tell whether she was alive or dead. The grey stubbly man and the one with the axe lay unmoving. But Usher was on her knees, crawling towards her fallen spear. Grey wind padded toward her, dripping wet. "'Call him off!' the big man shouted. "'Call them both off, or the crippled boy dies now!' "'Grey wind! Summer to me!' Rob said. The direwolf stopped, turned their heads. Grey wind loped back to Rob. Summer stayed where he was, his eyes on Bran and the man beside him. He growled. His muzzle was wet and red, but his eyes burned. Usher used the butt-end of her spear to lever herself back to her feet. Blood leaked from a wound on the upper arm where Rob had cut her. Bran could see sweat trickling down the big man's face. Stiv was as scared as he was, he realized. Starks, the man muttered, bloody Starks. He raised his voice. Usher, kill the wolves and get his sword. Kill them yourself, she replied. I'll not be getting near those monsters. For a moment, Stiv was at a loss. His hand trembled. Bran felt a trickle of blood where the knife pressed against his neck. The stench of the man filled his nose. He smelled of fear. You, he called out to Rob, you have a name? I'm Rob Stark, the heir to Winterfell. This is your brother? Yes. You want him alive? Do what I say. Off the horse. Rob hesitated a moment, then slowly and deliberately he dismounted and stood with his sword in hand. Now, kill the wolves. Rob did not move. You do it. The wolves or the boy? No, Bran screamed. If Rob did as they asked, Stiv would kill them both anyway, once the dire wolves were dead. The bald man took hold of his hair with his free hand and twisted it cruelly till Bran sobbed in pain. You shut your mouth, cripple, you hear me? He twisted harder. You hear me? A low thrum it came from the woods behind them. Stiv gave a choked gasp as a half-foot of razor-tipped broadhead suddenly exploded out of his chest. The arrow was bright red, as if it had been painted in blood. The dagger fell away from Bran's throat. The big man swayed and collapsed, face down in the stream. The arrow broke beneath him. Bran watched his life go swirling off in the water. Usher glanced around, as father's guardsman appeared from beneath the trees, steel in hand. She threw down her spear. Mercy, my lord, she called to Rob. The guardsmen had a strange pale look to their faces as they took in the scene of slaughter.
they eyed the wolves uncertainly, and when Summer returned to Harley's corpse to feed, Joseph dropped the knife and scrambled for the bush, heaving. Even Maester Lewin seemed shocked as he stepped from behind a tree, but only for an instant. Then he shook his head and waded across the stream to Bran's side. Are you hurt? He cut my leg, Bran said, but I couldn't feel it. As the maester knelt to examine the wound, Bran turned his head. Theon Greyjoy stood beside a sentinel tree. His bow in hand, he was smiling, ever smiling. A half-dozen arrows were thrust into the soft ground at his feet, but it had taken only one. "'A dead enemy is a thing of beauty,' he announced. "'John always said you were an ass, Greyjoy,' Rob said loudly. "'I ought to chain you up in the yard and let Bran take a few practice shots at you. "'You should be thanking me for saving your brother's life.' "'What if you had missed the shot?' Rob said. "'What if you'd only wounded him? "'What if you'd made his hand jump or hit Bran instead? "'For all you knew, the man might have been wearing a breastplate.' All you could see was the back of his cloak. What would have happened to my brother then? Did you ever think of that, Greyjoy? Theon's smile was gone. He gave a sullen shrug and began to pull his arrows from the ground one by one. Rob glared at his guardsmen. Where were you? he demanded of them. I was sure you were close behind us. The men traded unhappy glances. "'We were following, my lord,' said Quint, the youngest of them, his beard a soft brown fuzz. "'Only first we waited for Maester Lewin and his ass. Oh, begging your pardons. And then, well, as it were—' He glanced over at Theon and quickly looked away abashed. "'I spied a turkey,' Theon said, annoyed by the question. "'How was I to know that you'd leave the boy alone?' Rob turned his head to look at Theon once more. Bran had never seen him so angry, yet he said nothing. Finally, he knelt beside Maester Lewin. How badly is my brother wounded? No more than a scratch, the maester said. He wet a cloth in a stream to clean the cut. Two of them wear the black, he told Rob as he worked. Rob glanced over at where Stiv lay sprawled in the stream, his ragged black cloak moving fitfully as the rushing waters tugged at it. Deserters from the Night's Watch, he said grimly. They must have been fools to come so close to Winterfell. Folly and desperation are oft times hard to tell apart, said Maester Lewitt. Shall we bury them, my lord? said Quint. They would not have buried us, Rob said. Hack off their heads. We'll send them back to the wall. Leave the rest for the carrion crows. And this one, Quent jerked a thumb towards Osher. Rob walked over to her. She was a head taller than he was, but she dropped her knees at his approach. Give me my life, my Lord of Stark, and I am yours. Mine? What would I do with an oathbreaker? I broke no oaths. Stiv and Wallen flew down off the wall, not me. The black crows got no place for women. Theon Greyjoy sauntered closer. "'Give her to the wolves,' he urged Rob. The woman's eyes went to what was left of Harley and just as quickly away. She shuddered. Even the guardsmen looked queasy. "'She's a woman,' Rob said. "'A wildling,' Bran told him. 
She said they should keep me alive so they could take me to Mans Raider. Do you have a name? Rob asked her. Usher, as it pleased the Lord, she muttered sourly. Master Lewin stood. We might do well to question her. Bran could see the relief on his brother's face. As you say, Maester. Wayne, bind her hands. She'll come back to Winterfell with us, and live or die by the truth she gives us. Tyrion You want eat? Maud asked, glowering. He had a plate of boiled beans in one thick, stub-fingered hand. Tyrion Lannister was starved, but he refused to let this brute see him cringe. A leg of lamb would be pleasant, he said from the heap of soil straw in the corner of his cell. Perhaps a dish of peas and onions, some fresh-baked bread with butter, and a flagon of mull wine to wash it down, or beer, if that's easier. I, I try not to be over-particular. It's beans. Maud said. Here. He held out the plate. Tyrion sighed. The turnkey was twenty stone of gross stupidity with rotting brown teeth and small dark eyes. The left side of his face was slick with scar where an axe had cut off his ear and part of his cheek. He was as predictable as he was ugly. But Tyrion was hungry. He reached up for the plate. Maud jerked it out of the way, grinning. "'It's here,' he said, holding it beyond Tyrion's reach. The dwarf climbed stiffly to his feet, every joint aching. "'Must we play the same fool's game with every meal?' He made another grab for the beans. Maud shambled backwards, grinning through his rotten teeth. "'It's here, dwarf man!' He held the plate out at arm's length over the edge where the cell ended and the sky began. You not want eat? Here, come, take. Tyrion's arms were too short to reach the plate, and he was not about to step that close to the edge. All it would take would be a quick shove of Maud's heavy white belly, and he would end up a sickening red splotch on the stones of sky like so many other prisoners of the area over the centuries. "'Come to think of it, I'm not hungry after all,' he declared, retreating to the corner of his cell. Maud grunted and opened his thick fingers. The wind took the plate, flipping it over as it fell. A handful of beans sprayed back at them as the food tumbled out of sight. The turnkey laughed, his gut shaking like a bowl of pudding.' Tyrion felt a pang of rage. You fucking son of a puck's ridden ass, he spat. I hope you die of a bloody flux. For that, Maud gave him a kick, driving a steel-toed boot hard into Tyrion's ribs on the way out. I take it back, he gasped as he doubled over on the straw. I'll kill you myself, I swear it. The heavy iron-bound door slammed shut. Tyrion heard the rattle of keys. For a small man, he had been cursed with a dangerously big mouth, he reflected, as he crawled back to the corner of what the Aarons laughably called their dungeon. 
He huddled beneath a thin blanket that was his only bedding, staring out at a blaze of empty blue sky and distant mountains that seemed to go on forever, wishing he still had the shadow-skin cloak he'd won from Marillion at Dice, after the singer had stolen it off the body of the brigand chief. The skin had smelt of blood and mould, but it was warm and thick. Maud had taken it the moment he laid eyes on it. The wind tugged at his blanket with Gus sharp as talons. His cell was miserably small even for a dwarf. Not five feet away where a wall ought to have been, where a wall would be in a proper dungeon. The floor ended and the sky began. He had plenty of fresh air and sunshine and the moon and stars by night, but Tyrion would have traded it all in an instant for the dankest, gloomiest pit in the bowels of Casterly Rock. You fly, Maud had promised him when he'd shoved him into the cell. Twenty day, thirty, fifty maybe, then you fly. The Irons kept the only dungeon in the realm where the prisoners were welcome to escape at will. That first day, after girding up his courage for hours, Tyrion had lain flat on his stomach and squirmed to the edge to poke out his head and look down. Sky was six hundred feet below, with nothing between but empty air. If he craned his neck out as far as he could go, he could see other cells to his right and left and above him. He was a bee in a stone honeycomb, and someone had torn off his wings. It was cold in the cell. The wind screamed night and day, and worst of all, the floor sloped. Ever so slightly, yet it was enough. He was afraid to close his eyes, afraid that he might roll over in his sleep and wake in sudden terror as he went sliding over the edge. Small wonder the sky cells drove men mad. God save me, some previous tenant had written on the wall in something that looked suspiciously like blood. The blue is calling. At first Tyrion wondered who he'd been and what had become of him. Later he decided that he would rather not know. If only he had shut his mouth. The wretched boy had started it, looking down on him from a throne of carved weirwood beneath the moon and falcon banners of House Aaron. Tyrion Lannister had been looked down on all his life, but seldom by roomy-eyed six-year-olds who needed to stuff fat cushions under their cheeks to lift them to the height of a man. "'Is he the bad man?' the boy had asked, clutching his doll. "'He is,' the Lady Lysa had said, from the lesser throne beside him. She was all in blue, powdered and perfumed for her suitors who filled her court. "'He is so small,' the Lord of the Airy said, giggling. "'This is Tyrion, the imp, of House Lannister, who murdered your father.' She raised her voice so it carried down the length of High Hall of the Airy, ringing off the milk-white walls and the slender pillars so every man could hear it. "'He slew the hand of the king.' "'Or did I kill him too?' Tyrion had said, like a fool. "'That would have been a very good time to have kept his mouth closed and his head bowed. "'He could see that now. 
Seven hells he had seen it then. The high hall of the errands was long and austere, with a forbidding coldness to its walls of blue-veined white marble. But the faces around him had been colder by far. The power of Casterly Rock was far away, and there were no friends of the Lannisters in the Vale of Arryn. Submission and silence would have been his best defences. But Tyrion's mood had been too foul for sense. To his shame, he had faltered during the last leg of their day-long climb up to the Eyrie, his stunted legs unable to take him any higher. Bronn had carried him the rest of the way, and the humiliation poured oil on the flames of his anger. "'It would seem I've been a busy little fellow,' he said, with a bitter sarcasm. "'I wonder when I found the time to do all this slaying and murdering.' He ought to have remembered who he was dealing with. Lysa Aaron and her half-sane, weakling son had not been known at court for their love of wit, especially when it was directed at them. "'Imp!' Lysa said coldly. "'You will guard that mocking tongue of yours "'and speak to my son politely, "'or I promise you, you will have cause to regret it. "'Remember where you are. "'This is the Aerie, "'and these are knights of the Vale you see around you, "'true men who love John Aaron well. "'Every one of them would die for me.' "'Lady Aaron, should any harm come to me, "'my brother Jamie will be pleased to see that they do.' Even as he spat out the words, Tyrion knew they were folly. "'Can you fly, my lord of Lannister?' Lady Lysa asked. "'Does a dwarf have wings? If not, you would be wiser to swallow the next threat that comes to mind.' "'I made no threats,' Tyrion said. "'That was a promise.' Little Lord Robert hopped to his feet at that, so upset he dropped his doll. "'You can't hurt us!' he screamed. "'No one can hurt us here. Tell him, mother, tell him he can't hurt us here.' The boy began to twitch. "'The area is impregnable,' Lysa Aaron declared calmly. She drew her son close, holding him safe in the circle of her plump white arms. "'The imp is trying to frighten us, sweet baby. The Lannisters are all liars. No one will hurt my sweet boy.' The hell of it was she was no doubt right. Having seen what it took to get here, Tyrion could well imagine how it would be for a knight trying to fight his way up in armour while stones and arrows poured down from above and enemies contested with him for every step. Nightmare did not begin to describe it. Small wonder the area had never been taken. Still, Tyrion had been unable to silence himself. Not impregnable, he said, merely... Inconvenient. Lord Robert pointed down his hand, trembling. You're a liar! Mother, I, 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 wonder, I want to see him fly! The two guardsmen in sky-blue cloaks seized Tyrion by the arms, lifting him off the floor. The guards only know what might have happened then, were it not for Catelyn Stark. Sister, she called out from where she stood below the thrones, I beg you to remember, this man is my prisoner. I will not have him harmed. Lysa Aaron glanced at her sister coolly for a moment, then rose and swept down on Tyrion, her long skirts trailing after her. For an instant, he feared she would strike him. 
but instead she commanded them to release him. Her men shoved him to the floor, his legs went out from under him, and Tyrion fell. He must have made quite a sight as he struggled to his knees, only to feel his right leg spasm, sending him sprawling once more. Laughter boomed up and down the high hall of the errands. My sister's little guest is too weary to stand, Lady Lysa announced. Servardus, take him down to the dungeon. A rest in one of our sky cells would do him much good. The guardsman jerked him upright. Tyrion Lannister dangled between them, kicking feebly, his face red with shame. I will remember this, he told them all, as they carried him off. And so he did for all the good it did him. At first he had consoled himself that this imprisonment could not last long. Lysa Aaron wanted to humble him, that was all. She would send for him again, and soon. If not her, then Catelyn Stark would want to question him. This time he would guard his tongue more closely. They dare not kill him out of hand. He was still a Lannister of Castle Rock, and if they shed his blood, it would mean war. Or so he had told himself. Now he was not so certain. Perhaps his captors only meant to let him rot there, but he feared he did not have the strength to rot for long. He was growing weaker every day, and it was only a matter of time until Maud's kicks and blows did him serious harm, provided the jailer did not starve him to death first. A few more nights of cold and hunger, and the blue would start calling to him too. He wondered what was happening beyond the walls, such as they were, of his cell. Lord Tywin would surely have sent out riders when the word reached him. Jamie might be leading a host through the mountains of the moon even now, unless he was riding north against Winterfell instead. Did anyone outside the Vale even suspect where Catelyn Stark had taken him? He wondered what Cersei would do when she heard. The king could order him freed, but would Robert listen to his queen or his hand? Tyrion had no illusions about the king's love for his sister. If Cersei kept her wits about her, she would insist the king sit in judgment of Tyrion himself. Even Ned Stark could scarcely object to that, not without impugning the honor of the king and Tyrion would be only too glad to take his chances in a trial. Whatever murders they might lay at his door, the Starks had no proof of anything so far as he could see. Let them make their case before the Iron Throne and the Lords of the Land. It would be the end of them, if only Cersei were clever enough to see that. Tyrion Lannister sighed. His sister was not without a certain low cunning, but her pride blinded her. She would see the insult in this, not the opportunity. And Jamie was even worse, rash and headstrong and quick to anger. His brother never untied a knot when he could slash it in two with his sword. He wondered which of them had sent the footpad to silence the Stark boy, and whether they had truly conspired at the death of Lord Aaron. If the old hand had been murdered, it was deftly and subtly done. Men of his age died of sudden illness all the time, in contrast, sending some oaf with a stolen knife after Brandon Stark struck him as unbelievably clumsy. 
and wasn't that peculiar, come to think of it. Tyrion shivered. Now there was a nasty suspicion. Perhaps the direwolf and the lion were not the only beasts in the woods, and if that was true, someone was using him as a cat's paw. Tyrion Lannister hated being used. He would have to get out of here, and soon. His chances of overpowering Maud were small to none, and no one was about to smuggle him a six-hundred-foot-long rope, so he would have to talk himself free. His mouth had gotten him into this cell. It could damn well get him out. Tyrion pushed himself to his feet, doing his best to ignore the slope of the floor beneath him, with its ever-so-subtle tug towards the edge. He hammered on the door with his fist. Maud! he shouted. Turnkey! Maud! I want you! He had to keep it up a good ten minutes before he heard footsteps. Tyrion stepped back an instant before the door opened with a crash. Making noise! Maud growled with blood in his eyes. Dangling from one meaty hand was a leather strap wide and thick, doubled over in his fist. Never show them you're afraid, Tyrion reminded himself. How would you like to be rich, he asked. Maud hit him. He swung the strap backhand lazily, but the leather caught Tyrion high on the arm. The force of it staggered him, and the pain made him grit his teeth. No mouth, dwarf man, Maud warned him. Gold, Tyrion said, miming a smile. Casterly Rock is full of gold. Ah! This time the blow was a forehand, and Maud put more of his arm into the swing, making the leather crack and jump. It caught Tyrion in the ribs and dropped him to his knees, whimpering. He forced himself to look up at the jailer. As rich as the Lannisters, he wheezed. That's what they say, Maud. Maud grunted. The strap whistled through the air and smashed Tyrion full in the face. The pain was so bad, he did not remember falling. But when he opened his eyes again, he was on the floor of his cell. His ear was ringing and his mouth was full of blood. He groped for purchase to push himself up, and his fingers brushed against nothing. Tyrion snatched his hand back as fast as if it had been scalded and tried his best to stop breathing. He had fallen right on the edge, inches from the blue. More to say? Maud held the strap between his fists and gave it a sharp pull. The snap made Tyrion jump. The turnkey laughed. He won't push me over, Tyrion told himself desperately as he clawed away from the edge. Catelyn Stark wants me alive. He doesn't dare kill me. He wiped the blood off his lips with the back of his hand, grinned and said, That was a stiff one, Maud. The jailer squinted at him, trying to decide if he was being mocked. I could make good use of a strong man like you. The strap flew at him, but this time Tyrion was able to cringe away from it. He took a glancing blow to the shoulder, nothing more. Gold, he repeated, scrambling backward like a crab. More gold than you'll see here in a lifetime. Enough to buy land, women, horses. You could be a lord, Lord Maud. Tyrion 
hawked up a glob of blood and phlegm and spat it out into the sky. It's no gold, Maud said. He's listening, Tyrion thought. They relieved me of my purse when they captured me, but the gold is still mine. Catelyn Stark may take a man prisoner, but she'd never stoop to rub him. That wouldn't be honourable. Help me, and all the gold is yours. Maud's trap licked out, but it was a half-hearted, desultory swing, slow and contemptuous. Tyrion caught the leather in his hand and held it prisoned. There will be no risk to you. All you need to do is deliver a message. The jailer yanked his leather strap free of Tyrion's grasp. Message, he said, as if he'd never heard the word before. His frown made deep creases in his brow. You heard me, my lord. Only carry my word to your lady. Tell her... What? What would possibly make Liza Aaron relent? The inspiration came to Tyrion Lannister suddenly. Tell her that I wish to confess my crimes. Maud raised his arm, and Tyrion braced himself for another blow, but the turnkey hesitated. Suspicion and greed warred in his eyes. He wanted that gold, yet he feared a trick. He had the look of a man who had often been tricked. It's lie, he muttered darkly. Dwarf man, cheat me. I will put my promise in writing, Tyrion vowed. Some illiterates held writing in disdain. Others seemed to have a superstitious reverence for the written word, as if it were some sort of magic. Fortunately, Maud was one of the latter. The turnkey lowered the strap. Writing down gold, much gold. Oh, much gold, Tyrion assured him. The purse is just a taste, my friend. My brother wears armour of solid gold plate. In truth, Jamie's armour was gilded steel, but this oaf would never know the difference. Maud fingered his strap thoughtfully, but in the end he relented and went to fetch paper and ink. When the letter was written, the jailer frowned at it suspiciously. Now deliver my message, Tyrion urged. He was shivering in his sleep when they came for him, late that night. Maud opened the door, but kept his silence. Savardas Egan woke Tyrion with the point of his boot. On your feet, imp. My lady wants to see you. Tyrion rubbed the sleep from his eyes, and put on a grimace he scarcely felt. No doubt she does, but what makes you think I wish to see her? Savardus frowned. Tyrion remembered him well from the years he had spent at King's Landing as the captain of the Hand's household guard, a square, plain face, silver hair, heavy build, and no humour whatsoever. Your wishes are not my concern. On your feet, or I'll have you carried. Tyrion clambered awkwardly to his feet. A cold night, he said casually, and the high hall is so draughty. I don't wish to catch a chill. Maud, if you would be so good, fetch my cloak. The jailer squinted at him, face dull with suspicion. My cloak, Tyrion repeated. The shadow skin you took from me for safekeeping, you recall? Get him the damnable cloak, Savardus said. 
Maud did not dare grumble. He gave Tyrion a glare that promised future retribution, yet he went for the cloak. When he draped it around his prisoner's neck, Tyrion smiled. My thanks, I shall think of you whenever I wear it. He flung the trailing end of the long fur over his right shoulder and felt warm for the first time in days. Lead on, Savardis. The high hall of the errands was aglow with the light of fifty torches, burning in the sconces along the walls. The Lady Lysa wore black silk, with a moon and falcon sewn on her breast in pearls. Since she did not look the sort to join the night's watch, Tyrion could only imagine that she had decided mourning clothes were appropriate garb for a confession. Her long auburn hair, woven into an elaborate braid, fell across her left shoulder. The taller throne beside her was empty. No doubt the little lord of the area was off, shaking in his sleep. Tyrion was thankful for that much, at least. He bowed deeply and took a moment to glance around the hall. Lady Arryn had summoned her knights and retainers to hear his confession, as he had hoped. He saw Sir Brynden Tully's craggy face and Lord Nestor Royce's bluff one. Beside Nestor stood a younger man with fierce black side-whiskers who could only be his heir, Sir Albar. Most of the principal houses of the Vale were represented. Tyrion noted Selin Corbray, slender as a sword, Lord Hunter with his gouty legs, the widowed Lady Wainwood surrounded by her sons. Others sported sigils he did not know, broken lance, green viper, burning tower, winged chalice. Among the lords of the Vale were several of his companions from the high road, Sir Roderick Cassell, pale from half-heel wounds, stood with Sir Willis Wode beside him. Marillion the singer had found a new wood harp. Tyrion smiled. Whatever happened here tonight, he did not wish it to happen in secret, and there was no one like a singer for spreading a story near and far. In the rear of the hall, Bronn lounged beneath a pillar. The free rider's black eyes were fixed on Tyrion and his hand lay lightly on the pommel of his sword. Tyrion gave him a long look, wondering. Catelyn Stark spoke first. You wish to confess your crimes, we are told? I do, my lady, Tyrion answered. Lysa Aaron smiled at her sister. The sky cells always break them. The guards can see them there, and there's no darkness to hide in. "'He does not look broken to me,' Lady Catelyn said. Lady Lysa paid her no mind. "'Say what you will,' she commanded Tyrion. "'And now to roll the dice,' he thought, with another quick glance back at Bronn. "'Where to begin, eh? I'm a vile little man, I confess it. My crimes and sins are beyond counting, my lords and ladies. I have lain with whores, not once, but hundreds of times. I have wished my own lord father dead, and my sister, our gracious queen as well. Behind him someone chuckled. I have not always treated my servants with kindness. I have gambled. I have even cheated. I blush to admit. 
I have said many cruel and malicious things about the noble lords and ladies of the court. That drew outright laughter. Once I... Silence! Lysa Aaron's pale round face had turned a burning pink. What do you imagine you're doing, dwarf? Tyrion cocked his head to one side. Why, confessing my crimes, my lady. Catelyn Stark took a step forward. You are accused of sending a hard knife to slay my son Bran in his bed, and of conspiring to murder Lord John Aaron, the Hand of the King. Tyrion gave a helpless shrug. Those crimes I cannot confess, I fear. I know nothing of any murders. Lady Lysa rose from her weirwood throne. I will not be made muck of. You have had your little jape imp. I trust you enjoyed it. Savardus, take him back to the dungeons, but this time find him a smaller cell, with a floor more sharply sloped. Is this how justice is done in the Vale? Tyrion roared so loudly that Savardus froze for a moment. Does honour stop at the bloody gate? You accuse me of crimes. I deny them. So you throw me into an open cell to freeze and starve? He lifted his head to give them all a good look at the bruises Mort had left on his face. Where is the king's justice? Is this airy not part of the seven kingdoms? I stand accused, you say, very well. I demand a trial. Let me speak, and let my truth or falsehood be judged openly in the sight of gods and men. A low murmuring filled the high hall. He had a Tyrion knew. He was high-born, the son of the most powerful lord in the realm, the brother of the queen. He could not be denied a trial. Guardsmen in sky-blue cloaks had started towards Tyrion, but Servardus bid them halt and looked to Lady Lysa. Her small mouth twitched in a petulant smile. If you are tried and found to be guilty of the crimes for which you stand accused, then by the king's own laws you must pay with your own life's blood. We keep no headsmen in the Eyrie, my lord of Lannister. Open the moon door. The press of spectators parted. A narrow weirwood door stood between two slender marble pillars, a crescent moon carved in the white wood. Those standing closest edged backward as a pair of guardsmen marched through. One man removed the heavy bronze bars, the second pulled the door inward. Their blue cloaks rose snapping from their shoulders, caught in the sudden gust of wind that came howling through the open door. Beyond was the emptiness of the night sky, speckled with cold, uncaring stars. Behold the king's justice, Lysa Aaron said. Torch flames fluttered like pennons along the wall, and here and there the odd torch guttered out. Lysa, I think this unwise, Catelyn Stark said as the black wind swirled around the hall. A sister ignored her. You want a trial, my lord of Lannister. Very well, a trial you shall have. My son will listen to whatever you care to say, and you shall hear his judgment. Then you may leave, by one door or the other. She looked so pleased with herself, Tyrion thought, and small wonder. 
How could a trial threaten her when her weakling son was the Lord Judge? Tyrion glanced at her moon door. Mother, I want to see him fly, the boy had said. How many men had the snub-nosed little wretch sent through that door already? I thank you, my good lady, but I see no need to trouble Lord Robert, Tyrion said politely. The guards know the truth of my innocence. I will have their verdict, not the judgment of men. I demand trail by combat. A storm of sudden laughter filled the high hall of the errands. Lord Nestor Royce snorted. Sir Willis chuckled. Sir Lynn Corbray guffawed, and others threw back their heads and howled until tears ran down their faces. Marillion clumsily plucked a gay note on his new wood harp with the fingers of his broken hand. Even the wind seemed to whistle with derision as it came skirling through the moon door. Lysa Aaron's watery blue eyes looked uncertain. He had caught her off balance. You have that right, to be sure. The young knight, with a green viper emblazoned on his surcoat, stepped forward and went to one knee. My lady, I beg the boon of championing your cause. The honour should be mine, O Lord Hunter said. For the love I bore your lord husband, let me avenge his debt. My father served Lord John faithfully as high steward of the Vale, Sir Albar Royce boomed. Let me serve his son in this. The guards favour the man with a just cause, said Sir Lynn Corbray. Yet often that turns out to be the man with the surer sword. <laughs> we all know who that is, he smiled modestly. A dozen other men all spoke at once, clamouring to be heard. Tyrion found it disheartening to realise so many strangers were eager to kill him. Perhaps this had not been such a clever plan after all. Lady Lysa raised a hand for silence. I thank you, my lords, as I know my son would thank you if he were among us. No men in the Seven Kingdoms are so bold and true as the Knights of the Vale. Would that I could grant you all this honour. Yet I can choose only one. She gestured. Sir Vardis Egan, you were ever my lord husband's good right hand. You shall be our champion. Sir Vardis had been singularly silent. My lady, he said gravely, sinking to one knee, pray give this burden to another. I have no taste for it. The man is no warrior. Look at him. A dwarf, half my size and lame in the legs. It would be shameful to slaughter such a man and call it justice. Oh, excellent, Tyrion thought. I agree. Lysa glared at him. You demanded a trial by combat, and now I demand a champion, such as you have chosen for yourself. My brother Jamie will gladly take my part, I know. Your precious Kingslayer is hundreds of leagues from here, snapped Lysa Aaron. Send a bird for him. I will gladly await his arrival. You will face Subvaris on the morrow. Singer, Tyrion said, turning to Marillion, when you make a ballad of this, be certain you tell them how Lady Aaron denied the dwarf the right to a champion and sent him forth 
lame and bruised and hobbling to face her finest night. I deny you nothing, Lysa Aaron said, her voice peeved and shrill with irritation. Name your champion, imp. If you think you can find a man to die for you. If it's all the same to you, I'd sooner find one to kill for me. Tyrion looked over the long hall. No one moved. For a long moment, he wondered if it had all been a colossal blunder. Then there was a stirring in the rear of the chamber. I'll stand for the dwarf, Bronn called out. Eddard He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tar long fallen, and Lyanna in a bed of blood. In the dream his friends rode with him, as they had in life. Proud Martin Cassell, Jory's father, faithful Theo Wall, Ethan Glover, who had been Brandon's squire, Sir Mark Risewell, soft of speech and gentle of heart, the Cranach man, Harlan Reed, Lord Dustin, on his great red stallion. Ned had known their faces as well as he knew his own ones, but the years leech at a man's memories, even those he has vowed never to forget. In the dream they were only shadows, grey wraiths on horses made of mist. They were seven facing three, in the dream as it had been in life. Yet these were no ordinary three. They waited before the Ran Tower, the red mountains of dawn at their backs, their white cloaks billowing in the wind. And these were no shadows. Their faces burned clear even now. Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, had a sad smile on his lips. The hilt of the great sword dawn poked up over his right shoulder. Sir Oswald Went was on one knee, sharpening his blade with a whetstone. Across his white enameled helm, the black bat of his house spread its wings. Between them stood fierce old Sir Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. "'I looked for you on the trident,' Ned said to them. "'We were not there,' Sir Gerald answered. "'Woe to the usurper if we had been,' said Sir Oswald. "'When King's Landing fell, Sir Jamie slew your king with a golden sword.' and I wondered where you were. Far away, Sir Gerald said, or Ares would yet sit on the Iron Throne, and our false brother would burn in seven hells. I came down on Storm's End to lift the siege, Ned told them, and the Lords Tyrell and Redwine dipped their banners and all their knights bent their knee to pledge us fealty. I was certain you would be among them. Our knees do not bend easily, said Sir Arthur Dane. Sir Willem Darry is fled to Dragonstone with your queen and Prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with him. Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswald. But not of the king's guard, Sir Gerard pointed out. The king's guard does not flee. Then or now, said Sir Arthur, he donned his helm. We swore a vow, explained old Sir Gerald. Ned's wraiths moved up beside him, with shadow swords in hand. They were seven against three. And now it begins, said Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning. He unsheathed dawn and held it with both hands, 
The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. No, Ned said with sadness in his voice, now it ends. As they came together in a rush of steel and shadow, he could hear Leanna screaming, Eddard, she called. A storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky, as blue as the eyes of death. Lord Eddard, Leanna called out again. I promise, he whispered. Leah, I promise. Lord Eddard, a man echoed from the dark. Groaning, Eddard Stark opened his eyes. Moonlight streamed through the tall windows of the tower of the hand. Lord Eddard, a shadow stood over his bed. How, how long? The sheets were tangled, his legs splinted and plastered. A dull throb of pain shut up his side. Six days and seven nights, the voice was Van Poole's. The steward held a cup to Ned's lips. Drink, my lord. What? Only water. Maester Purcell said you would be thirsty. Ned drank. His lips were parched and cracked. The water tasted sweet as honey. Uh, the king left orders, Van Poole told him. When the cup was empty, he would speak with you, my lord. On the morrow, Ned said, when I am stronger, he could not face Robert now. The dream had left him weak as a kitten. My lord, Paul said, he commanded us to send you to him the moment you opened your eyes. The steward busied himself, lighting a bedside candle. Ned cursed softly. Robert was never known for his patience. Tell him I'm too weak to come to him. If he wishes to speak to me, I should be pleased to receive him here. I hope you wake him from a sound sleep and summon— He was about to say Jory, when he remembered. Summon the captain of my guard. Alan stepped into the bedchamber a few moments after the steward had taken his leave. My lord, Poole tells me it has been six days, Ned said. I must know how things stand. The Kingslayer is fled the city, Alan told him. The talk is he's ridden back to a castly rock to join his father. The story of how Lady Catelyn took the imp is on every lip. I have put on extra guards, if it please you. It does, Ned assured him. My daughters? They have been with you every day, my lord. Sansa prays quietly, but Arya... He hesitated. She has not said a word since they brought you back. She's a fierce little thing, my lord. I've never seen such anger in a girl. Whatever happens, Ned said, I want my daughters kept safe. I fear this is only the beginning. No harm will come to them, Lord Eddard, Alan said. I stake my life on that. Jory and the others. I gave them over to the Silent Sisters to be sent north to Winterfell. Jory would want to lie beside his grandfather. It would have to be his grandfather, for Jory's father was buried far to the south. Martin Cassell had perished with the rest. Ned had pulled the tower down afterward and used its bloody stones to build eight cairns upon the ridge. It was said that Rhaegar had named the place the Tower of Joy. But for Ned, it was a bitter memory. They had been seven against three, yet only two had lived to ride away. Eddard Stark himself, and the little Cranach man, Howland Reed. He did not think it omened well 
that he should dream that dream again, after so many years. You've done well, Alan, Ned was saying, when Vayne Poole returned. The steward bowed low. His grace is without my lord and the queen with him. Ned pushed himself up higher, wincing as his leg trembled with pain. He had not expected Cersei to come. It did not bode well that she had. Send them in and leave us. What we have to say should not go beyond these walls. Poole withdrew quietly. Robert had taken time to dress. He wore a black velvet doublet with a crown stag of Baratheon worked upon the breast in golden thread, and a golden mantle with a cloak of black and gold squares. A flagon of wine in his hand, his face already flushed from drink. Cersei Lannister entered behind him, a jeweled tiara in her hair. "'Your grace,' Ned said, "'your pardons, I cannot rise.' "'No matter,' the king said gruffly. "'Some wine, eh, from the arbour, a good vintage.' "'A small cup,' Ned said. "'My head is still heavy from the milk of the puppy.' "'A man in your place should count himself fortunate "'that his head is still on his shoulders,' the Queen declared. "'Quiet, woman,' Robert snapped. "'He brought Ned a cup of wine. "'Does the leg still pain you?' "'Some,' Ned said. "'His head was swimming, "'but it would not do to admit to weakness in front of the Queen. "'Parcel swears it will heal clean,' Robert frowned. "'I take it you know what Catelyn has done?' "'I do.' Ned took a small swallow of wine. My lady wife is blameless, your grace. All she did, she did at my command. I'm not pleased, Ned, Robert grumbled. By what right do you dare lay hands on my blood? Cersei demanded. Who do you think you are? The hand of the king, Ned told her with icy courtesy. Charged by your own lord husband to keep the king's peace and enforce the king's justice. You were the hand of the king, Cersei began, but now, silence, the king roared. You asked him a question, and he answered it. Cersei subsided, cold with anger, and Robert turned back to Ned. Keep the king's peace, you say. Is that how you keep the king's peace, Ned? Seven men are dead. Eight, the queen corrected. Trigar died this morning of the blow Lord Stark gave him. "'Abductions on the king's road and drunken slaughter in the streets,' the king said. "'I will not have it, Ned.' Catelyn had good reason for taking the imp. "'I said I will not have it. "'To hell with her reasons. "'You will command her to release the dwarf at once, "'and you will make your peace with Jamie.' Three of my men were butchered before my eyes "'because Jamie Lannister wished to chase me. "'Am I to forget that?' My brother was not the cause of the quarrel, Cersei told the king. Lord Stark was returning drunk from a brothel. His men attacked Jaime and his guards, even as his wife attacked Tyrion on the king's road. You know me better than that, Robert, Ned said. Ask Lord Baelish if you doubt me. He was there. I've talked to Littlefinger, Robert said. He claims he rode off to bring the gold cloaks before the fighting began, but he admits you were returning from some whorehouse. Some whorehouse? Damn your eyes, Robert. I went there to have a look at your daughter. Her mother has named her Bara. She looks like that first girl you fathered, when we were boys together in the Vale. 
He watched the Queen as he spoke. Her face was a mask, still and pale, betraying nothing. Robert flushed. Barra, he grumbled. Is that supposed to please me? Damn the girl. I thought she had more sense. She cannot be more than fifteen, and a whore. And you thought she had sense? Ned said, incredulous. His leg was beginning to pain him sorely. It was hard to keep his temper. The fool child is in love with you, Robert. The king glanced at Cersei. This is no fit subject for the queen's ears. Her grace will have no liking for anything I have to say, Ned replied. I am told the Kingslayer has fled the city. Give me leave to bring him back to justice. The king swirled the wine in his cup, brooding. He took a swallow. No, he said. I want no more of this. Jamie slew three of your men, and you five of his. Now it ends. Is that your notion of justice? Ned flared. If so, I am pleased that I am no longer your hand. The queen looked to her husband. If any man had dared to speak to a Targaryen as he has spoken to you. Did take me for Ares? Robert interrupted. I took you for a king. Jamie and Tyrion are your own brothers. By all the laws of marriage and the bonds we share, the Starks have driven off the one and seized the other. This man dishonors you with every breath he takes, and yet you stand there meekly, asking if his leg pains him, and would he like some wine? Robert's face was dark with anger. How many times must I tell you, told your tongue, woman? Cersei's face was a study in contempt. What a jape the gods have made of us two, she said. By all rights, you ought to be in skirts, and me in mail. Purple with rage, the king lashed out, a vicious backhand blow to the side of the head. She stumbled against the table and fell hard. Yet Cersei Lannister did not cry out. Her slender fingers brushed her cheek, where the pale, smooth skin was already reddening. On the morrow, the bruise would cover half her face. I shall wear this as a badge of honor, she announced. Wear it in silence, or I'll honor you again, Robert vowed. He shouted for God. Sir Meryn Trent stepped into the room, tall and somber in his white armor. The queen is tired. See her to her bedchamber. The knight helped Cersei to her feet and led her out without a word. Robert reached for the flagon and refilled his cup. You see what she does to me, Ned? The king seated himself, cradling his wine cup. My loving wife, the mother of my children. The rage was gone from him now. In his eyes, Ned saw something sad and scared. I should not have hit her. That was not, that was not kingly. He stared down at his hands as if he did not quite know what they were. I was always strong. No one could stand before me, no one. How do you fight someone if you can't hit them? Confused, the king shook his head. Rhaegar, Rhaegar won, damn him. I killed him, Ned. I drove the spike right through that black armor into his black heart, and he died at my feet. They made up songs about it, yet somehow he still won. He has Lyanna now, and I have her. The king drained his cup. Your grace, Ned Stark said, we must talk. Robert pressed his fingertips against his temples. 
I'm sick unto death of talk, and the morrow I'm going to the King's Wood to hunt. Whatever you have to say can wait until I return. If the guards are good, I shall not be here on your return. You commanded me to return to Winterfell, remember? Robert stood up, grasping one of the bedposts to steady himself. The guards are seldom good, Ned. Here, this is yours. He pulled the heavy silver handclasp from a pocket in the lining of his cloak and tossed it on the bed. Like it or not, you are my hand, damn you. I forbid you to leave. Ned picked up the silver clasp. He was being given no choice, it seemed. His leg throbbed, and he felt as helpless as a child. The Targaryen girl, the king groaned. Seven hells, don't start with her again. That's done. I'll hear no more of it. Why would you want me as your hand, if you refuse to listen to my counsel? Why? <laughs> Robert laughed. Why not? <laughs> Somebody has to rule this damnable kingdom. Put on the badge, Ned. It suits you. And if you ever throw it in my face again, I swear to you, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. <laughs> Catelyn The eastern sky was rose and gold as the sun broke over the veil of Aaron. Catelyn Stark watched the light spread, her hands resting on the delicate carved stone of the balustrade outside her window. Below her the world turned from black to indigo to green as dawn crept across fields and forests. Pale white mists rose off Alyssa's tears, where the ghost waters plunged over the shoulder of the mountain to begin their long tumble down the face of the giant's lance. Catelyn could feel the faint touch of spray on her face. Elisa Aaron had seen her husband, her brothers, and all her children slain, and yet in life she had never shed a tear. So in death the gods had decreed that she would know no rest until her weeping watered the black earth of the bale where the men she had loved were buried. Alyssa had been dead six thousand years now, and still no drop of the torrent had ever reached the valley floor far below. Catelyn wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. "'Tell me the rest of it,' she said. "'The Kingslayer is massing a host at Castley Rock,' Sir Roderick Cassell answered from the room behind her. "'Your brother writes that he has sent riders to the rock, demanding that Lord Tywin proclaim his intent, but he has had no answer. Edmure has commanded Lord Vance and Lord Piper to guard the pass below the Golden Tooth. He advised you that he will yield no foot of Tully land without first watering it with Lannister blood. Catelyn turned away from the sunrise. Its beauty did little to lighten her mood. It seemed cruel for a day to dawn so fair and end so foul as this one promised to. Edmure has sent riders and made vows, she said, but Edmure is not the lord of Riveron. What of my lord father? Uh, the message made no mention of Lord Hoster, my lady. Sir Roderick tugged at his whiskers. They are grown in white as snow and bristly 
as a thorn bush while he was recovering from his wounds, he looked almost himself again. My father would not have given the defence of Riveron over to Edmure unless he was very sick, she said worried. I should have been woken as soon as this bird arrived. Your lady sister thought it better to let you sleep, Maester Coleman told me. I should have been woken, she insisted. Maester tells me your sister planned to speak with you after the combat, Sir Roderick said. Then she still plans to go through with this mummer's farce? Catelyn grimaced. The dwarf has played her like a set of pipes, and she is too deaf to hear the tune. Whatever happens this morning, Sir Roderick, it is past time we took our leave. My place is at Winterfell with my sons. If you are strong enough to travel, I shall ask Lysa for an escort to see us to Gulltown. We can take ship from there. Another ship? Sir Roderick looked a shade green, yet he managed not to shudder. As you say, my lady. The old knight waited outside her door as Catelyn summoned the servants Lysa had given her. If she spoke to her sister before the duel, perhaps she could change her mind, she thought, as they dressed her. Lysa's policies varied with her moods, and her moods changed hourly. The shy girl she had known at Riveron had grown into a woman who was by turns proud, fearful, cruel, dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain, and above all, inconstant. When that vile turnkey of hers had come crawling to tell them that Turin Lannister wished to confess, Catelyn had urged Lysa to have the dwarf brought to them privately. But no, nothing would do but that her sister must make a show of him before half the veil. And now this. Lannister is my prisoner, she told Sir Roderick, as they descended the tower steps and made their way through the Irie's cold white halls. Catelyn wore plain grey wool with a silver belt. My sister must be reminded of that. At the doors to Lysa's apartment, they met her uncle storming out. "'Going to join the Fool's Festival?' Sir Brynden snapped. "'I'd tell you to snap some sense into our sister if I'd all do any good. But you'd only bruise your hand.' "'There was a bird from Riveron,' Catelyn began, a letter from Edmure. "'I know, child.' The black fish that fastened his cloak was Brynden's only concession to ornament. I had to hear it from uh, Maester Coleman. I asked your sister for leave to take a thousand seasoned men and ride for River Run with all haste. Do you know what she told me? The Vale cannot spare a thousand swords, not even one, uncle, she said. You are the Knight of the Gate. Your place is here. A gust of childish laughter drifted through the open doors behind him, and her uncle glanced darkly over his shoulder. Well, I told her she could bloody well find herself a new knight of the gate. Blackfish or no, I'm still a tully. I shall leave for River Run by Evenpool. Catelyn could not pretend to surprise. Alone? You know as well as I that you will never survive the high road. So Roderick and I are returning to Winterfell. Come with us, uncle. I will give you your thousand men. River Run will not fight alone. Brynden thought for a moment, then nodded a brusque agreement. As you say, it's a long way home, but I'm more like to get there. I'll wait for you below. He went striding off, 
his cloak swirling behind him. Catelyn exchanged a look with Sir Roderick. They went through the doors to the high, nervous sound of child's giggles. Lysa's apartments opened over a small garden, a circle of dirt and grass planted with blue flowers and ringed on all sides by tall white towers. The builders had intended it as a god's wood, but the area rested on the hard stone of the mountain, and no matter how much soil was hauled up from the vale, they could not get a weirwood to take root here. So the lords of the area planted grass and scattered statuary amidst low flowering shrubs. It was there the two champions would meet to place their lives and that of Tyrion Lannister in the hands of the gods. Lysa, freshly scrubbed and garbed in cream velvet, with a rope of sapphires and moonstones around her milk-white neck, was holding court on the terrace overlooking the scene of the combat, surrounded by her knights' retainers and lords high and low. Most of them still hoped to wed her, bed her, and rule the Vale of Erin by her side. From what Catelyn had seen during her stay at the area, it was a vain hope. A wooden platform had been built to elevate Robert's chair. There the lord of the area sat giggling and clapping his hands as a humpbacked puppeteer in blue and white motley made two wooden knights hack and slash at each other. Pitchers of thick cream and baskets of blackberries had been set out, and the guests were sipping a sweet, orange-scented wine from engraved silver cups. A fool's festival, Brynden had called it, and small wonder. Across the terrace, Lysa laughed gaily at some jest of Lord Hunter's and nibbled a blackberry from the point of Sir Lynn Corbray's dagger. They were the suitors who stood highest in Lysa's favour, today at least. Catelyn would have been hard-pressed to say which man was more unsuitable. Ian Hunter was even older than John Aaron had been. Half crippled by gout and cursed with three quarrelsome sons, each more grasping than the last. Sir Lynn was a different sort of folly, lean and handsome, heir to an ancient but impoverished house, but vain, reckless, hot-tempered, and it was whispered, notoriously uninterested in the intimate charms of women. When Lysa espied Catelyn, she welcomed her with a sisterly embrace and a moist kiss on the cheek. Isn't it a lovely morning? The guards are smiling on us. Do try a cup of wine, sweet sister. Lord Hunter was kind enough to send for it from his own cellars. Uh, thank you, no, Lysa, we must talk. After, her sister promised, already beginning to turn away from her, now, Catelyn spoke more loudly than she intended. Men were turning to look. Lysa, you cannot mean to go ahead with this folly. Alive, the imp has value. Dead, he has only food for crows, and if his champion should prevail here— A small chance of that, my lady, Lord Hunter assured her, patting her shoulder with a liver-spotted hand. Sir Vardas is a doughty fighter. He'll make short work of that sellsword. Oh, will he, my lord? Catelyn said coolly. I wonder. She had seen Bronn fight on the high road. It was no accident that he had survived the journey while other men had died. He moved like a panther, and that ugly sword of his seemed a part of his arm. Lysa's suitors were gathering around them like bees around a blossom. 
"'Women understand little of these things,' Sir Morton Wainwood said. "'Sir Varys is a knight, sweet lady. "'This other fellow, well, he's sort of all cowards at heart. "'Useful enough in a battle, with thousands of their fellows around them, "'but stand them up alone, and the manhood leaks right out of them.' "'Say you have the truth of it, then,' Catelyn said with a courtesy that made her mouth ache. "'What will we gain by the dwarf's death?' Do you imagine that Jamie will care a fig that we gave his brother a trial before we flung him off a mountain? Behead the man, Celine Corbray suggested. When the Kingslayer receives the imp's head, it will be a warning to him. Lysa gave an impatient shake of her waist-long auburn hair. Lord Robert wants to see him fly, she said, as if that settled the matter. And the imp has only himself to blame— it was he who demanded a trial by combat. Lady Lysa has no honourable way to deny him, even if she wished to, Lord Hunter intoned ponderously. Ignoring them all, Catelyn turned all her force on her sister. I remind you, Tyrion Lannister is my prisoner. And I remind you, the dwarf murdered my lord husband. Her voice rose. He poisoned the hand of the king and left my sweet baby fatherless and now I mean to see him pay. Whirling, her skirts swinging around her, Liza stalked across the terrace. Selene and Sir Morton and the other suitors excused themselves with cool nods and trailed after her. Do you think he did? Sir Roderick asked her quietly when they were alone again. Murder Lord John, that is. The imp still denies it, and most fiercely. I believe the Lannisters murdered Lord Aaron. Catelyn replied, but whether it was Tyrion or Sir Jamie or the Queen or all of them together, I could not begin to say. Lysa had named Cersei in the letter she had sent to Winterfell, but now she seemed certain that Tyrion was the killer. Perhaps because the dwarf was here, while the Queen was safe behind the walls of the Red Keep hundreds of leagues to the south. Catelyn almost wished she had burned her sister's letter before reading it. Sir Roderick tugged at his whiskers. Poison, well, that could be the dwarf's work, true enough. Or Cersei's. It is said poison is the woman's weapon. Uh, begging your pardon, my lady. The Kingslayer now, I have no great liking for the man, but he's not the sort. Too fond of the sight of blood on that golden sword of his. Was it poison, my lady? Catelyn frowned, vaguely uneasy. How else could they make it look a natural death? Behind her, Lord Robert shrieked with delight as one of the puppet knights sliced the other in half, spilling a flood of red sawdust onto the terrace. She glanced at her nephew and sighed. The boy is utterly without discipline. He will never be strong enough to rule unless he is taken away from his mother for a time. His lord father agreed with you, said a voice at her elbow. She turned and beheld Maester Coleman, a cup of wine in his hand. He was planning to send the boy to Dragonstone for fustering, you know. Oh, but I'm speaking out of turn. The apple of his throat bobbed anxiously beneath the loose Maester's chain. I, I fear I've had... Too much of Lord Hunter's excellent wine. The, the prospect of bloodshed has my nerves all afraid. You are mistaken, Maester, Catelyn said. 
It was Castly Rock, not Dragonstone, and those arrangements were made after the hand's death, without my sister's consent. The mace's head jerked so vigorously at the end of his absurdly long neck that he looked half a puppet himself. No, begging your forgiveness, my lady, but it was Lord John who— A bell tolled loudly below them. High lords and serving girls alike broke off what they were doing and moved to the balustrade. Below two guardsmen in sky-blue cloaks led forth Tyrion Lannister. The Aerys' plump septon escorted him to the statue in the centre of the garden, a weeping woman carved in vain white marble, no doubt meant to be Alyssa. "'The bad little man,' Lord Robert said giggly. "'Mother, can I make him fly? I want to see him fly.' "'Later, my sweet baby,' Lysa promised. "'Trial first, draw Selin Corbray, then execution.' "'A moment later, the two champions appeared from opposite sides of the garden. "'The knight was attended by two young squires, "'the sellsword by the Ares' master-at-arms. "'Savardus Egan was steel from head to heel.' "'encased in heavy plate armour over mail and padded surcoat. "'Large circular rundles, enamelled cream and blue "'in the moon and falcon sigil of House Aaron, "'protected the vulnerable junction of arm and breast. "'A skirt of lobstered metal covered him from waist to mid-thigh, "'while a solid gorget encircled his throat. "'Falcon wings sprouted from the temples of his helm.' and his visor was a pointed metal beak with a narrow slit for vision. Bronn was so lightly armoured, he looked almost naked beside the knight. He wore only a shirt of black-oiled ringmail over boiled leather, a round steel half-helm with a nose-guard, and a mail coif. High leather boots with steel shin-guards gave some protection to his legs, and discs of black iron were sewn into the fingers of his gloves. Yet Catelyn noted that the sellsword stood half a hand taller than his foe, with a longer reach, and Bronn was fifteen years younger, if she was any judge. They knelt in the grass beneath the weeping woman, facing each other, with Lannister between them. The septon removed a faceted crystal sphere, from the soft cloth bag at his waist. He lifted it high above his head, and the light shattered. Rainbows danced across the imp's face. In a high, solemn, sing-song voice, the septon asked the guards to look down and bear witness, to find the truth in this man's soul, to grant him life and freedom if he was innocent, death if he was guilty. His voice echoed off the surrounding towers. When the last echo had died away, the septon lowered the crystal and made a hasty departure. Tyrion leaned over and whispered something in Bronn's ear before the guardsman led him away. The sellsword rose laughing and brushed a blade of grass from his knee. Robert Aaron, lord of the area and defender of the Vale, was fidgeting impatiently in his elevated chair. "'When are they going to fight?' he asked plaintively. Savardus was helped back to his feet by one of the squires. The other brought him a triangular shield, almost four foot tall, heavy oak dotted with iron studs. 
they strapped it to his left forearm. When Lysa's master-at-arms offered Bronn a similar shield, the sellsword spat and waved it away. Three days' growth of coarse black beard covered his jaw and cheeks, but if he did not shave, it was not for the want of a razor. The edge of his sword had the dangerous glimmer of steel that had been honed every day for hours until it was too sharp to touch. Savardus held out a gauntleted hand, and his squire placed a handsome double-edged longsword in his grasp. The blade was engraved with a delicate silver tracery of a mountain sky. Its pommel was a falcon's head, its crossguard fashioned into the shape of wings. I had that sword carved for John in King's Landing, Lysa told her guest proudly as they watched Savardus try a practice cut. He wore it whenever he sat the Iron Throne in King Robert's place. Isn't it a lovely thing? I thought it only fitting that our champion avenged John with his own blade. The engraved silver blade was beautiful beyond a doubt, but it seemed to Catelyn that Sir Vardas might have been more comfortable with his own sword. Yet she said nothing. She was weary of futile arguments with her sister. Make them fight! Lord Robert called out. Savardus faced the Lord of the Airy and lifted his sword in salute. For the Airy and the Vale! Tyrion Lannister had been seated on a balcony across the garden, flanked by his guards. It was to him that Bronn turned with a cursory salute. They await your command, Lady Liza said to her lord's son. Fight! the boy screamed, his arms trembling as they clutched his chair. Savada swivelled, bringing up his heavy shield. Bronn turned to face him. Their swords rang together, once, twice, attesting. The cell sword backed off a step. The knight came after, holding his shield before him. He tried a slash, but Bronn jerked back just out of reach, and the silver blade cut only air. Bronn circled to his right. Savardus turned to follow, keeping his shield between them. The knight pressed forward, placing each foot carefully on the uneven ground. The cell-sword gave way, a faint smile playing over his lips. Savardus attacked, slashing, but Bronn leapt away from him, hopping lightly over a low, moss-covered stone. Now the cell-sword circled left, away from the shield, towards the knight's unprotected side. Savardus tried to hack at his legs, but did not have the reach. Bronn danced farther to his left. Savardus turned in place. "'The man is craven,' Lord Hunter declared. "'Stand and fight, coward!' Other voices echoed the sentiment. Catelyn looked at Sir Roderick. Her master-at-arms gave a curt shake of his head. "'He wants to make Savardus chase him. The weight of armor and shield would tire even the strongest man.' She had seen men practice at their sword-play near every day of her life, had viewed half a hundred tawnies in her time, but this was something different and deadlier, a dance where the smallest misstep meant death. And as she watched, the memory of another duel in another time came back to Catelyn Stark, as vivid as if it had been yesterday. They met in the lower bailey of River Run. When Brandon saw that Pitar wore only helm and breastplate and mail, 
he took off most of his armour. Patar had begged her for a favour he might wear, but she had turned him away. Her lord father promised her to Brandon Stark, and so it was to him that she gave her token, a pale blue handscarf she had embroidered with the leaping trout of Riverrun. As she pressed it into his hand, she pleaded with him. He is only a foolish boy, but I have loved him like a brother, and it would grieve me to see him die. And her betrothed looked at her with the cool grey eyes of a Stark, and promised to spare the boy who loved her. That fight was over almost as soon as it began. Brandon was a man grown, and he drove Littlefinger all the way across the bailey and down the water stair, raining steel on him with every step, until the boy was staggering and bleeding from a dozen wounds. Yield, he called, more than once. But Patar would only shake his head and fight on grimly. When the river was lapping at their ankles, Brandon finally ended it with a brutal backhand cut that bit through Patar's rings and leather into the soft flesh below the ribs, so deep that Catelyn was certain that the wound was mortal. He looked at her as he fell and murmured, Cat, as the bright blood came flowing out between his male fingers. She thought she had forgotten that. That was the last time she had seen his face, until the day she was brought before him in King's Landing. A fortnight passed before Littlefinger was strong enough to leave River Run, but her lord father forbade her to visit him in the tower where he lay abed. Lysa helped their maester nurse him. She had been softer and shyer in those days. Edmure had called on him as well, but Petar had sent him away. Her brother had acted as Brandon's squire at the duel, and Littlefinger would not forgive that. As soon as he was strong enough to be moved, Lord Huster Tully sent Petar Baelish away in a closed litter to finish his healing on the fingers upon the windswept jut of rock where he'd been born. The ringing clash of steel on steel jarred Catelyn back to the present. Savardus was coming hard at Bronn, driving into him with shield and sword. The sword scrambled backward, checking each blow, stepping lightly over rock and root, his eyes never leaving his foe. He was quicker, Catelyn saw. The knight's silvered sword never came near to touching him, but his own ugly grey blade hacked a notch from Savardus' shoulder plate. The brief flurry of fighting ended as swiftly as it had begun, when Bronn sidestepped and slid behind the statue of the weeping woman. Savardus lunged at where he had been, striking a spark off the pale marble of Alyssa's thigh. "'They're not fighting good, mother,' the Lord of the Eyrie complained. "'I want them to fight!' "'They will, sweet baby,' his mother soothed him. "'The sellsword can't run all day.' Some of the lords on Lysa's terrace were making wry jests as they refilled their wine cups, but across the garden, Tyrion Lannister's mismatched eyes watched the champions dance as if there were nothing else in the world. Bronn came out from behind the statue, hard and fast, still moving left, aiming a two-handed cut at the knight's unshielded right side. Savardus blocked, but clumsily, 
and the sellsword's blade flashed upwards at his head. Metal rang, and a falcon's wing collapsed with a crunch. Savardas took a half-step back to brace himself, raised his shield. Oak chips flew as bronze sword hacked at the wooden wall. The sail sword stepped left again, away from the shield, and caught Savardas across the stomach, the razor edge of his blade leaving a bright gash where it bit into the knight's plate. Savardas drove forward off his back foot, his own silver blade descending in a savage arc. Brun slammed it aside and danced away. The knight crashed into the weeping woman, rocking her on her plinth. Staggered, he stepped backward, his head turning this way and that as he searched for his foe. The slit visor of his helm narrowed his vision. "'Behind you, sir!' Lord Hunter shouted too late. Brun brought his sword down with both hands, catching Savardas in the elbow of his sword arm. The thin lobstered metal that protected the joint crunched. The knight groaned, turning, wrenching his weapon up. This time, Bron stood his ground. The swords flew at each other, and their steel song filled the garden and rang off the white towers of the eyrie. Sabardus is hurt, Sir Roderick said, his voice grave. Catelyn did not need to be told. She had eyes. She could see the bright finger of blood running along the knight's forearm, the wetness inside the elbow joint. Every parry was a little slower and a little lower than the one before. Savardus turned his side to his foe, trying to use his shield to block instead, but Bronn slid around him, quick as a cat. The cell sword seemed to be getting stronger. His cuts were leaving their marks now. Deep, shiny gashes gleamed all over the knight's armour. On his right thigh, his beaked visor, crossing on his breastplate, a long one along the front of his gorget. The moon and falcon rondel of Savardus's right arm was sheared clean in half, hanging by its strap. They could hear his laboured breath rattling through the air holes in his visor. Blind with arrogance as they were, even the knights and lords of the Vale could see what was happening below them. Yet her sister could not. Enough, Savardus, Lady Eliza called down. Finish him now, my baby is growing tired. And it must be said of Savardus Egan, he was true to his lady's command, even to the last. One moment he was reeling backward, half-crouched behind his scarred shield, the next he charged. The sudden bull rush caught Bronn off balance. Savardus crashed into him and slammed the lip of his shield into the cell sword's face. Almost, almost, Bronn lost his feet. He staggered back, tripped over a rock, and caught hold of the weeping woman to keep his balance. Throwing aside his shield, Savardus lurched after him, using both hands to raise his sword. His right arm was blood from elbow to fingers now. Yet his last desperate blow would have opened Bronn from neck to navel, if the cell sword had stood to receive it. But Bronn jerked back. John Aaron's beautiful engraved silver sword glanced off the marble elbow of the weeping woman and snapped, clean a third of the way up the blade. Bronn put his shoulder into the statue's back. The weathered likeness of Alyssa Aaron tottered and fell with a great crash, and Savara's Egan went down beneath her. Bronn was on him in a heartbeat. 
kicking what was left of his shattered rondelle aside to expose the weak spot between arm and breastplate. Savardus was lying on his side, pinned beneath the broken torso of the weeping woman. Catelyn heard the knight groan as the sellsword lifted his blade with both hands and drove it down and in with all his weight behind it, under the arm and through the ribs. Savardus Egan shuddered and lay still. Silence fell over the eerie. Bronn yanked off his half-helm and let it fall to the grass. His lip was smashed and bloody where the shield had caught him, and his coal-black hair was soaked with sweat. He spit out a broken tooth. "'Is it over, mother?' the Lord of the Airy asked. "'No,' Catelyn wanted to tell him. "'It's only now beginning.' "'Yes,' Lysa said glumly, her voice as cold and dead as the captain of her guard. "'Can I make the little man fly now?' Across the garden, Tyrion Lannister got to his feet, "'Not this little man,' he said. "'This little man is going down in the turnipoist. "'Thank you very much.' "'You presume,' Lysa began, "'I presume that House Heron remembers his own words,' the imp said, "'as high as honour.' "'You promised I could make him fly,' the Lord of the Airy screamed at his mother. "'He began to shake.' Lady Lysa's face was flushed with fury. The gods have seen fit to proclaim him innocent, child. We have no choice but to free him. She lifted her voice. Guards, take my lord of Lannister and his creature here out of my sight. Escort them to the bloody gate and set them free. See that they have horses and supplies sufficient to reach the Trident, and make certain all their goods and weapons are returned to them. They shall have need of them. On the high road? The high road, Tyrion Lannister said. Lysa allowed herself a faint, satisfied smile. It was another sort of death sentence, Catelyn realized. Tyrion Lannister must know that as well, yet the dwarf favoured Lady Arryn with a mocking bow. "'As you command, my lady,' he said. "'I believe we know the way.' "'John. "'You are as hopeless as any boys I've ever trained,' "'Sir Alistair Thorne announced when they had all assembled in the yard. "'Your hands were made for manure shovels, not for swords.' And if it was up to me, the lot of you would be sent to herding swine. But last night, I was told that Gurin is marching five new boys up the King's Road. One or two may even be worth the price of piss. To make room for them, I have decided to pass eight of you onto the Lord Commander to do with as he will. He called out the names one by one. Toad, Stonehead, Oryx. Lover, Pimple, Monkey, Saloon. Last of all, he looked at John. And the bastard. Pip let fly a whoop and thrust his sword in the air. Sir Alistair fixed him with a reptile stare. They will call you men of the Night's Watch now, but you are bigger fools than the mummer's monkey here, if you believe that. 
you are boys still, green and stinking of summer. And when the winter comes, you will die like flies. And with that, Sir Alistair Thorne took his leave of them. The other boys gathered round the eight who had been named, laughing and cursing and offering congratulations. Halder smacked Toad on the butt with the flat of his sword and shouted, Toad of the Night's Watch! Yelling that a black brother needed a horse, Pip leapt under Gren's shoulders, and they tumbled to the ground rolling and punching and hooting. Darien dashed inside the armory and returned with a skin of sour red. As they passed the wine from hand to hand, grinning like fools, John noticed Samuel Tarley standing by himself beneath a bare, dead tree in the corner of the yard. John offered him the skin. A swallow of wine? Sam shook his head. No, thank you, John. Are you well? Very well, truly, the fat boy lied. I am so happy for you all. His round face quivered as he forced a smile. You will be first ranger some day, just as your uncle was. Is, John corrected. He would not accept that Benjamin Stark was dead. Before he could say more, Halder cried, Here, you planning to drink that all yourself? Pip snatched the skin from his hand and danced away laughing. While Gren seized his arm, Pip gave the skin a squeeze and a thin stream of red squirted John in the face. Halder howled in protest at the waste of good wine. John sputtered and struggled. Mather and Jerin climbed the wall and began pelting them all with snowballs. By the time he wrenched free, with snow in his hair and wine stains on his surcoat, Samuel Tarley had gone. That night, Three Finger Hub cooked the boys a special meal to mark the occasion. When John arrived at the common hall, the Lord Steward himself led him to the bench near the fire. The older men clapped him on the arm in passing. The eight soon-to-be brothers feasted on rack of lamb, baked in a crust of garlic and herbs, garnished with sprigs of mint, and surrounded by mashed yellow turnips swimming in butter. From the Lord Commander's own table, Bowen Marsh told them. There were salads of spinach and chickpeas and turnip greens, and afterwards bowls of iced blueberries and sweet cream. Do you think they'll keep us together? Pip wondered, as they gorged themselves happily. Toad made a face. I hope not. I'm sick of looking at those ears of yours. Ho, said Pip, listen to the crow called a raven black. You're certain to be a ranger, Toad. They'll want you as far from the castle as they can. If Mance Raider attacks, lift your visor and show your face and he'll run all screaming. Everyone laughed but Gren. I hope I'm a ranger. You and everyone else, said Matha. Every man who wore the black walked the wall, and every man was expected to take up steel in its defence. But the rangers were the true fighting heart of the night's watch. It was they who dared to ride beyond the wall, sweeping through the haunted forest and the icy mountain heights west of the Shadow Tower, fighting wildlings and giants and monstrous snow bears. Not everyone, said Halder, 
It's the builders for me. What use would rangers be if the wall fell down? The order of builders provided the masons and carpenters to repair keeps and towers, the miners to dig tunnels and crush stone for roads and footpaths, the woodsmen to clear away new growth, wherever the forest pressed too close to the wall. Once, it was said, they had quarried immense blocks of ice from frozen lakes deep in the haunted forest, dragged them south on sledges so the wall might be raised even higher. Those days were centuries gone, however. Now it was all they could do to ride the wall from East Watch to the Shadow Tower, watching for cracks or signs of melt or making what repairs they could. The old bear's no fool, Darren observed. You're certain to be a builder, and John's certain to be a ranger. He's the best sword and the best rider among us, and his uncle was the first before he... His voice trailed off awkwardly as he realized what he had almost said. Benjamin Stark is still first ranger, John Snow told him, toying with his bowl of blueberries. The rest might have given up all hope of his uncle's safe return, but not him. He pushed away the berries, scarcely touched, and rose from the bench. Aren't you going to eat those? Toad asked. They're yours. John had hardly tasted Hub's great feast. I could not eat another bite. He took his cloak from his hook near the door and shouldered his way out. Pip followed him. John, what is it? Sam, he admitted. He was not at table tonight. It's not like him to miss a meal, Pip said thoughtfully. Do you suppose he's taken ill? He's frightened. We're leaving him. He remembered the day he had left Winterfell, all the bittersweet farewells, Bran lying broken, rubbed with snow in his hair, Arya raining kisses on him after he'd given her needle. Once we say our words, we all have duties to attend to. Some of us may be sent away to East Watch or the Shadow Tower. Sam will remain in training, with the likes of Rast and Cougar, and all these new boys who are coming up the King's Road. God only knows what they will be like, but you can bet Sir Alistair will send them against him first chance he gets. Pip made a grimace. You did all you could. All we could. Wasn't enough, John said. A deep restlessness was on him as he went back to Harden's Tower for Ghost. The dire wolf walked beside him to the stables. Some of the more skittish horses kicked at their stalls and laid back their ears as they entered. John saddled his mare, mounted, and rode out from Castle Black, south across the moonlit night. Ghost raced ahead of him, flying over the ground, gone in the blink of an eye. John let him go. A wolf needed to hunt. He had no destination in mind. He only wanted to ride. He followed the creek for a time, listening to the icy trickle of water over the rocks, then cut across the fields to the King's Road. It stretched out before him, narrow and stony, and pocked with weeds. A road of no particular promise, yet the sight of it filled Jon Snow with a vast longing. Winterfell was down that road, and beyond it, River Run and King's Landing, and the Airy and so many other places. Castly Rock, the Isles of Faces, the Red Mountains of Dawn, 
the hundred islands of Bravus in the sea, the smoking ruins of old Valyria, all the places John would never see. The world was down that road, and he was here. Once he swore his vow, the wall would be his home until he was as old as Maester Aemon. I have not sworn yet, he muttered. He was no outlaw, bound to take the black or pay the penalty for his crimes. He had come here freely, and he might leave freely, until he said the words. He need only ride on, and he could leave it all behind. By the time the moon was full again, he would be back in Winterfell with his brothers. Your half-brothers, a voice inside him reminded him, and Lady Stark, who will not welcome you. There was no place for him in Winterfell, no place in King's Landing either. Even his own mother had not had a place for him. The thought of her made him sad. He wondered who she had been, what she looked like, why his father had left her. Because she was a whore or an adulterous fool, something dark and dishonorable, or else why was Lord Eddard too ashamed to speak of her? Jon Snow turned away from the King's Road to look behind him. The fires of Castle Black were hidden behind a hill, but the wall was there, pale beneath the moon, vast and cold, running from horizon to horizon. He wheeled his horse around and started for home. Ghost returned as he crested a rise and saw the distant glow of lamplight from the Lord Commander's tower. The direwolf's muzzle was red with blood as he trotted beside the horse. John found himself thinking of Samuel Tarley again on the ride back. By the time he reached the stables, he knew what he must do. Maester Eamon's apartments were in a stout wooden keep below the rookery. Aged and frail, the maester shared his chambers with two of the younger stewards, who tended to his needs and helped him in his duties. The brothers joked that he had been given the two ugliest men in the night's watch. Being blind, he was spared having to look at them. Clydus was short, bald, and chinless, with small pink eyes like a mole. Chet had a wen on his neck, the size of a pigeon's egg, and a face red with boils and pimples. Perhaps that was why he always seemed so angry. It was Chet who answered John's knock. I need to speak to Maester Amon, John told him. The Maester is abed, as you should be. Come back on the morrow, and maybe I'll see you. He began to shut the door. John jammed it open with his boot. I need to speak to him now. The morning will be too late. Chet scowled. The maester is not accustomed to being walking in the night. Do you know how old he is? Old enough to treat visitors with more courtesy than you, John said. Give him my pardons. I would not disturb his rest if it were not important. And if I refuse? John had his boot wedged solidly in the door. I can stand here all night if I must. The black brother made a disgusted noise and opened the door to admit him. Wait in the library. There's wood stutterfar. I won't have the maester catching a chill on account of you. John had the logs crackling merrily by the time Chet 
led in Maester Eamon. The old man was clad in his bedrobe, but round his throat was the chain collar of his order. A maester did not remove it even to sleep. The chair beside the fire would be pleasant, he said, when he felt the warmth on his face. When he was seated comfortably, Chet covered his legs with a fur and went to stand by the door. I'm sorry to have woken you, maester, Jon Snow said. You did not wake me, maester Eamon replied. I find I need less sleep as I grow older, and I'm grown very old. I often spend half the night with ghosts remembering times fifty years past, as if it were yesterday. The mystery of a midnight visitor is a welcome diversion. So tell me, John Snow, why have you come calling at this strange hour? To ask that Samuel Tarley be taken from training and accepted as a brother of the Night's Watch. This is no concern of Maester Eamon's, Chet complained. Our Lord Commander has given the training of recruits into the hands of Sir Alistair Thorne, the Maester said gently. Only he may say when a boy is ready to swear his vows, as you surely know. Why then come to me? The Lord Commander listens to you, John told him, and the wounded and the sick of the Night's Watch are in your charge. And is your friend Samuel wounded or sick? He will be, John promised, unless you help. He told them all of it, even the part where it set ghosts at rest's throat. Maester Eamon listened silently, blind eyes fixed on the fire, but Chet's face darkened with each word. Without us to keep him safe, Sam will have no chance, John finished. He's hopeless with a sword. My sister Arya could tear him apart, and she's not yet ten. If Sir Alistair makes him fight, it's only a matter of time before he's hurt or killed. Chet could stand no more. I've seen this fat boy in the common hall, he said. He is a pig and a hopeless craven as well, if what you see is true. Maybe it is, Hell, Maester Eamon said. Tell me, Chet, what would you have us do with such a boy? Leave him where he is, Chet said. The wall is no place for the weak. Let him train until he's ready, no matter how many years that takes. Sir Alistair shall make a man of him or kill him as the gods will. That's stupid, John said. He took a deep breath to gather his thoughts. I remember once I asked Maester Lewin why he wore a chain around his throat. Maester Eamon touched his own collar lightly, his bony, wrinkled fingers stroking the heavy metal links. Go on. He told me that a maester's collar is made of chain to remind him that he is sworn to serve, John said, remembering. I asked why each link was a different metal. A silver chain would look much finer with his grey robes, I said. Maester Lewin laughed. A maester forges his chain with study, he told me. The different metals are each a different kind of learning, gold for the study of money and accounts, silver for healing, iron for warcraft. And he said there were other meanings as well. The collar is supposed to remind a maester 
of the realm he serves. Isn't that so? Lords are gold, and knights steel, but two links can't make a chain. You also need silver and iron and lead, tin and copper and bronze and all the rest. And those are farmers and smiths and merchants and the like. A chain needs all sorts of metals, and a land needs all sorts of people. Maester Eamon smiled. And so? The Night's Watch needs all sorts, too. Why else have rangers and stewards and builders? Lord Randall couldn't make Sam a warrior, and Sir Alistair won't either. You can't hammer tin into iron, no matter how hard you beat it. But that doesn't mean tin is useless. Why shouldn't Sam be a steward? Chet gave an angry scowl. I'm a steward. You think it's easy work? Fit for cowards? The Order of Stuarts keeps the watch alive. We hunt and farm, tend the horses, milk the cows, gather firewood, cook the meals. Who do you think makes your clothing? Who brings up supplies from the south? The Stuarts. Maester Eamon was gentler. Is your friend a hunter? He hates hunting, John had to admit. Can he plough a field? the maester asked. Can he drive a wagon or sail a ship? Could he butcher a cow? No. Chet gave a nasty laugh. I've seen what happens to soft lordlings when they're put to work. Set them to churning butter and their hands blister and bleed. Give them an axe to split logs and they cut off their own foot. I know one thing Sam could do better than anyone. Yes, Maester Eamon prompted. John glanced warily at Chet, standing beside the door, his boils red and angry. He could help you, he said quickly. He can do sums, and he knows how to read and write. I know Chet can't read, and Clytus has weak eyes. Sam read every book in his father's library. He'd be good with the ravens, too. Animals seemed to like him. Ghosts took to him straight off. There's a lot he could do besides fighting. The Night's Watch needs every man. Why kill one to no end? Make use of him instead. Maester Eamon closed his eyes, and for a brief moment John was afraid that he'd gone to sleep. Finally he said, Maester Lewin... Taught you well, John Snow. Your mind is as deft as your blade, it would seem. Does that mean... It means... I shall think on what you have said, the maester told him firmly. And now I believe I am ready to sleep. Chet, show our young brother to the door... Tyrion. They had taken shelter beneath a copse of aspens just off the high road. Tyrion was gathering dead wood while their horses took water from a mountain stream. He stooped to pick up a splintered branch and examined it critically. Will this do? I am not practiced at starting fires. Morik did that for me. A fire? Bronze said, spitting. Are you so hungry to die, dwarf? 
of your tech and leave your senses. A fire will bring the clansmen down on us for miles around. I mean to survive this journey, Lannister. And how do you hope to do that? Tyrion asked. He tucked the branch under his arm and poked around through the sparse undergrowth looking for more. His back ached from the effort of bending. They had been riding since daybreak, when a stone-faced Selin Corbray had ushered them through the bloody gate and commanded them never to return. "'We have no chance of fighting our way back,' Bron said. "'But two can cover more ground than ten and attract less notice. "'The fewer days we spend in these mountains, the more likely we are to reach the riverlands. "'Ride hard and fast, I say. "'Travel by night and hold up by day. "'Avoid the road where we can. "'Make no noise and light no fires.' Tyrion Lannister sighed. "'A splendid plan, Bron. "'Try it.' as you like, and forgive me if I do not linger to bury you. You think to outlive me, dwarf, the sellsword grinned. He had a dark gap in his smile where the edge of Savada's Egan shield had cracked a tooth in half. Tyrion shrugged. Riding hard and fast by night is a sure way to tumble down a mountain and crack your skull. I prefer to make my crossing slow and easy. I know you love the taste of horse, Bron, but uh, if our mounts die under us this time, we'll be trying to saddle shadow cats. And if truth be told, I think the clans will find us no matter what we do. Their eyes are all around us. He swept a gloved hand over the high, wind-carved crags that surrounded them. Bron grimaced. Then we're dead men, Lannister. If so, I prefer to die comfortable, Tyrion replied. We need a fire. The nights are cold up here, and hot food will warm our bellies and lift our spirits. Do you suppose there's any game to be had? Lady Lysa has kindly provided us with a veritable feast of salt beef, hard cheese, and stale bread. But I would hate to break a tooth so far from the nearest maester. I can find meat. Beneath a fall of black hair, Bronze's dark eyes regarded Tyrion suspiciously. I should leave you here with your fool's fire. If I took your horse, I'd have twice the chance to make it through. What would you do then, dwarf? Die, most like. Tyrion stooped to get another stick. You don't think I'd do it? Or you'd do it in an instant if it meant your life. You were quick enough to silence your friend Shigan when he caught that arrow in his belly. Bron had yanked back the man's head by the hair and driven the point of his dirk in under the ear and afterward told Catelyn Stark that the other sellsword had died of his wound. He was as good as dead, Bron said, and his moaning was bringing them down on us. Chicken would have done the same for me, and he was no friend, only a man I rode with. Make no mistake, dwarf. I fought for you but I do not love you. It was your blade I needed, Tillian said, not your love. He dumped his arm full of wood on the ground. Bron grinned. Your bold as any sellsword, I'll give you that. How did you know I'd take your part? No. Tyrion squatted awkwardly on his stunted legs to build the fire. I tossed the dice. Back at the inn, you and Chicken helped take me captive. Why? 
The others saw it as their duty, for the honour of the lords they serve, but not you two. You had no lord, no duty, and a precious little honour. So why trouble to involve yourselves? He took out his knife and whittled some thin strips of bark off one of the sticks he'd gathered to serve as kindling. Well, why do swords do anything? For gold. You were thinking Lady Catelyn would reward you for your help, perhaps even take you into her service. Here, that should do, I hope. Do you have a flint? Bronn slid two fingers into the pouch at his belt and tossed down a flint. Tyrion caught it in the air. My thanks, he said. The thing is, you did not know the Starks. Lord Eddard is a proud, honourable, and honest man, and his lady wife is worse. Oh, no doubt she would have found a coin or two for you when this was all over, and pressed it in your hand with a polite word and a look of distaste. But that's the most you could hope for. The Starks look for courage and loyalty and honour in the men they choose to serve them. And if truth be told, you and Chigan were low-born scum. Tyrion struck the flint against his dagger, trying for a spark. Nothing. Bronn snorted. You have a bold tongue, little man. One day, someone is like to cut it out and make you eat it. Everyone tells me that. Tyrion glanced up at the sellsword. Did I offend you? Oh, my pardons. But you are scum, Bronn. Make no mistake. Duty, honour, friendship, what's that to you? No, don't trouble yourself. We both know the answer. Still, you're not stupid. Once we reached the Vale, Lady Stark had no more need of you. But I did. And the one thing the Lannisters have never lacked for is gold. When the moment came to toss the dice, I was counting on your being smart enough to know where your best interest lay. Happily for me, you did. He slammed stone and steel together again, fruitlessly. Here, said Bronze, squatting. I'll do it. He took the knife and flint from Tyrion's hand and struck sparks on his first try. A curl of bark began to smoulder. Well done, Tyrion said. Scum you may be, but you're undeniably useful, and with a sword in your hand you're almost as good as my brother Jamie. What do you want, Bronn? Gold? Land? Women? Keep me alive, and you'll have it. Bronn blew gently on the fire, and the flames leaped up higher. And if you die? Why then? I'll have one mourner whose grief is sincere. Tyrion said, grinning. The gold ends when I do. The fire was blazing up nicely. Bronn stood, tucked the flint back into his pouch, and tossed Tyrion his dagger. Fair enough, he said. My sword's yours, then. But don't go looking for me to bend the knee and milord you every time you take a shit. I'm no man's toady. Nor any man's friend, Tyrion said. I've no doubt you'll betray me, as quick as you did, Lady Stark, if you saw a profit in it. If the day ever comes when you're tempted to sell me out, remember this, Brun. I'll match their price, whatever it is. I like living. And now, uh, do you think you could do something about finding us some supper? Take care of the horses, Bron said. 
unsheathing the long dirk he wore at his hip, he strode into the trees. An hour later, the horses had been rubbed down and fed, the fire was crackling away merrily, and a haunch of a young goat was turning above the flames, spitting and hissing. All we lack now is some good wine to wash down our kid, Tyrion said. That, a woman, and another dozen swords, Bronn said. He sat cross-legged beside the fire, honing the edge of his long sword with an oilstone. There was something strangely reassuring about the rasping sound it made when he drew it down the steel. It will be full dark soon, the cell sword pointed out. I'll take first watch. Pull the good it'll do us. It might be kinder to let them kill us in our sleep. Oh, I imagine they'll be here long before it comes to sleep. The smell of the roasting meat made Tyrion's mouth water. Bronn watched him across the fire. You have a plan, he said flatly, with a scrape of steel on stone. A hope, I call it, Tyrion said. Another toss of the dice. With our lives as a stake? Tyrion shrugged. Well, what choice do we have? He leaned over the fire and sawed a thin slice of meat from the kid. Ah, he sighed happily as he chewed. Grease ran down his chin. A bit tougher than I'd like, and in want of spicing, but I'll not complain too loudly. If I were back at the area, I'd be dancing on a precipice in hopes of a boiled bean. And yet you gave a turnkey a purse of gold, Ron said. A Lannister always pays his debts. Even Maud had scarcely believed it when Tyrion tossed him the leather purse. The jailer's eyes had gone big as boiled eggs as he yanked open the drawstring and beheld the glint of gold. I kept the silver, Tyrion had told him, with a crooked smile. But you were promised the gold, and there it is. It was more than a man like Maud could hope to earn in a lifetime of abusing prisoners. And remember what I said, this is only a taste. If you ever grow tired of Lady Aaron's service, present yourself at Castle Rock, and I'll pay you the rest of what I owe you. With golden dragons spilling out of both hands, Maud had fallen to his knees and promised that he would do just that. Bronn yanked out his dirk and pulled the meat from the fire. He began to carve thick chunks of charred meat off the bone as Tyrion hollowed out two heels of stale bread to serve as trenches. If we do reach the river, what will you do then? The sellsword asked as he cut. Oh, a hoer, and a feather bed, and a flagon of wine for a start. Tyrion held out his trencher, and Bronn filled it with meat. And then to Castley Rock or King's Landing, I think. I have some questions that want answering concerning a certain dagger. The cell sword chewed and swallowed. So you were telling it true. It was not your knife. Tyrion smiled thinly. Do I look a liar to you? By the time their bellies were full, the stars had come out and a half moon was rising over the mountains. Tyrion spread his shadow-skin cloak on the ground and stretched out with his saddle for a pillow. Our friends are taking their sweet time. If I were them, I'd fear a trap, 
Ron said. Why else would we be so open, if not to lure them in? Tyrion chuckled. Then we ought to sing, and send them fleeing in terror. He began to whistle a tune. You're mad, dwarf, Bron said, as he cleared the grease from under his nails with his dirk. Where's your love of music, Bron? If it was music you wanted, you should have gotten a singer to champion you. Tyrion grinned. That would have been amusing. I can just see him fending off Savardis with his wood harp. He resumed his whistling. Do you know this song? he asked. You hear it here and there, in inns and all houses? Murish, the seasons of my love, sweet and sad, if you understand the words. The first girl I ever bedded used to sing it, and I've never been able to put it out of my head. Tyrion gazed up at the sky. It was a clear, cold night, and the stars shone down upon the mountains as bright and merciless as truth. I met her on a night like this, he heard himself saying. Jamie and I were riding back from Lannisport when we heard a scream, and she came running out into the road with two men dugging her heels, shouting threats. My brother unsheathed his sword and went after them, while I dismounted to protect the girl. She was scarcely a year older than I was, dark-haired, slender, with a face that would break your heart. It certainly broke mine, low-born, half-starved, unwashed, yet lovely. They'd torn the rag she was wearing half off her back, so I wrapped her in my cloak while Jamie chased the men into the woods. By the time he came trotting back, I'd gotten a name out of her and a story. She was a crofter's child, orphaned, when her father died of fever on her way to, well, nowhere, really. Jamie was all in a lather to hunt down the men. It was not often outlaws dead prey on travellers so near to Castley Rock, and he took it as an insult. The girl was too frightened to send off by herself, though, so I offered to take her to the closest inn and feed her while my brother rode back to the rock for help. She was hungrier than I would have believed. We finished two whole chickens and part of a third and drank a flagon of wine talking. I was only thirteen, and the wine went to my head, I fear. The next thing I knew, I was sharing her bed. If she was shy, I was shyer. I'll never know where I found the courage. When I broke her maidenhead, she wept. But afterward, she kissed me and sang her little song. And by morning, I was in love. You? Ron's voice was amused. Absurd, isn't it? Tyrion began to whistle the song again. I married her, he finally admitted. A Lannister of Castle Rock, wed to a crofter's daughter, Bron said. How could you manage that? Oh, you'd be astonished at what a boy can make of a few lies, fifty pieces of silver, and a drunken septon. I dared not bring my bride home to Castle Rock, so I set her up in a cottage of her own, 
and for a fortnight we played at being man and wife. And then the septon sobered and confessed all to my lord father. Tyrion was surprised how desolate it made him feel to say it, even after all these years. Perhaps he was just tired. That was the end of my marriage. He sat up and stared at the dying fire, blinking at the light. He sent the girl away? He did better than that, Tyrion said. First he made my brother tell me the truth. The girl was a whore, you see. Jamie arranged the whole affair, the road, the outlaws, all of it. He thought it was time I had a woman. He paid double for a maiden, knowing it would be my first time. After Jamie had made his confession to drive home the lesson, Lord Tywin brought my wife in and gave her to his guards. They paid her fair enough, a silver for each man. How many whores command that higher price? He sat me down in the corner of the barracks and bade me watch. And at the end, she had so many silvers, the coins were slipping through her fingers and rolling on the floor. She... The smoke was stinging his eyes. Tyrion cleared his throat and turned away from the fire to gaze into the darkness. Lord Tywin had me go last, he said in a quiet voice, and he gave me a gold coin to pay her because I was a Lannister and worth more. After a time, he heard the noise again, the rasp of steel on stone, as Brun sharpened his sword. Thirteen, or thirty, or three. I would have killed a man who did that to me. Tyrion swung around to face him. You may get that chance one day. Remember what I told you? A Lannister always pays his debts. He yawned. I think I will try not sleep. Wake me if we're about to die. He rolled himself up in the shadow skin and shut his eyes. The ground was stony and cold, but after a time Tyrion Lannister did sleep. He dreamt of the sky cell. This time he was the jailer, not the prisoner. Big, with a strap in his hand, and he was hitting his father, driving him back towards the abyss. Tyrion? Bronn's warning was low and urgent. Tyrion was awake in the blink of an eye. The fire had burned down to embers, and the shadows were creeping in all round them. Bronn had raised himself to one knee, his sword in one hand and his dirk in the other. Tyrion held up a hand. Stay still, it said. Come, shed our fire. The night is cold, he called out to the creeping shadows. I fear we've no wine to offer you, but you're welcome to some of our goat. All movement stopped. Tyrion saw the glint of moonlight on metal. Our mountain, a voice called out from the trees, deep and hard and unfriendly. Our goat. Your goat, Tyrion agreed. Who are you? 
When you meet your guards, a different voice replied, say it was Gunther, son of Gurn of the Stone Crows, who sent you to them. A branch cracked underfoot as he stepped into the light, a thin man with a horned helmet, armed with a long knife. Iron Shagger, son of Dolph. That was the first voice, deep and deadly. A boulder shifted to their left and stood and became a man. Massive and slow and strong, he seemed, dressed all in skins with a club in his right hand and an axe in his left. He smashed them together as he lumbered closer. Other voices called other names, Con and Torric and Jagat, and more that Tyrion forgot the instant he heard them, ten at least. A few had swords and knives, others brandished pitchforks and scythes and wooden spears. He waited until they'd done shouting out their names before he gave them an answer. I am Tyrion, son of Tywin, of the clan Lannister, the Lions of the Rock. We will gladly pay you for the goat we ate. What have you got to give us, Tyrion, son of Tywin? asked the one who named himself Gunther, who seemed to be their chief. There is silver in my purse, Tyrion told them. This hauberk I wear is large for me, but it should fit Con nicely, and the battle axe I carry would suit Shaggy's mighty hand far better than the wood axe he holds. The half-man would pay us with our own coin, said Con. Con speaks truly, Gunther said. Your silver's ours, your horses are ours, your hauberk and your battle-axe, and the knife at your belt. These are ours, too. You have nothing to give us but your lives. How would you like to die, Tyrion, son of Tywin? In my own bed, with a belly full of wine, and a maiden's mouth around my cock at the age of eighty, he replied. The huge one, Shaga, laughed first and loudest. The others seemed less amused. Con, take their horses, Gunther commanded. Kill the other, and seize the half-man. He can milk the goats, and make the mothers laugh. Bronn sprang to his feet. Who dies first? No, Tyrion said sharply. Gunther, son of Gurn, hear me. My house is rich and powerful. If the stone crows will see us safely through these mountains, my lord father will shower you with gold. The gold of a lowland lord is as worthless as a half-man's promises, Gunther said. Half a man I may be, Tinian said, yet I have the courage to face my enemies. What do the stone crows do but hide behind rocks and shiver with fear as the knights of the vale ride by? Shaga gave a roar of anger and clashed club against axe. Jagat poked at Tyrion's face with a far-hardened point of a long wooden spear. He did his best not to flinch. Are these the best weapons you got steel? he said. Good enough for killing sheep, perhaps, if the sheep do not fight back. My father's smiths shit better steel. Our little boy, man, Shagger replied, will you mock my axe after I chop off your manhood and feed it to the goats? But Gunther raised a hand. No, I would hear his words. The mothers go hungry, and steel feels more mouths than gold. What would you give us for your lives, 
Tyrion, son of Tywin. Swords? Lances? Mail? All that, and more, Gunther, son of Gurn. Tyrion Lannister replied, smiling, I will give you the Vale of Aaron.'